afternoon, everyone. It is November 5th, 2022, and this is Cheryl. I welcome you to the Ascent to Pantara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary and Galactic History History, and True History History of Nisara. Infinite blessings to all of you on this sacred day. We have our upcoming eclipse that is going to bring, bring amazing transformation. And uh, <clears throat> so many of you may have received the email from Patricia Kotorovo. Uh, describing what's taking place at this time, I encourage you to take a look at it and come and celebrate with us uh, on the next two Sunday and Monday calls. So let's get started as we begin our work of bringing heaven to earth. And we start by going into the heart center. So setting aside the rest of our everyday lives as we go into the heart portal to all that is, and call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, with all of our multidimensional beings, through to our God presence, goddess presence. And as we see ourselves in our pillar of light, there is a beautiful, soft, golden light coming in directly from source, anchoring through each of us into the heart of Mother Earth. See it, sense it, feel it. As it fills you completely and surrounds you and expands your pillar, expanding your sacred heart to carry more and more of this ascension frequency. We invite everyone to join us on the planet as we say. Please repeat after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And in that oneness, again, we invite everybody to join us. And we see every man, woman, and child in their own golden floor of light, bringing forth frequencies to all of divine peace, illumination, divine wisdom, Christ consciousness, enlightenment, including infinite abundance and prosperity as well. We invite in for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul family and soul past. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the divi kingdom, 
the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature. The whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams and healers. We welcome all of our friends <clears throat> from the Ascended Master realm, all of the Ascended Masters, including the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We also welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work most closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service and the assistance of the entire company of heaven. As we call forth our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth for everyone, all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well, all in divine order individually and collectively, ever expanding to perfection. We ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody everything that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support. From the very first name that created it to each and every man, woman, and child, each and every family member and loved one, each and every pet and animal, each and every situation, condition of life, each group and organization, each business and corporation, each institution, each aspect of government for the U.S. and for every nation, the executive branch of each nation, the legislative branch of each nation, the judicial branch of each nation, no matter what it may be called, all those that work in those branches in each government, the divine government may be manifest and we hold that perfection in our mind's eye now. And we call forth into the circle of support every weather pattern, every storm, every flood, every 
set of winds. Every fire, every situation, every imbalance in the climate and weather. And again, all situations, every nation, every military, every government, all governmental leaders. Everything that we placed in the circle of support from the beginning of its time. As we hold the divine blueprint for one and all. Hold the divine perfection. For all of life. And we call in all of the energy around this upcoming November 8th election. All of the energy around all of the world events going on. Whether it's conflict. Whether it's competition. Whether it is the upcoming G20 summit. We have all of the focus on all of the things going on planetarily in our collective cup of consciousness to transmute and transform the consciousness of every man, woman, and child on this planet to really anchor heaven on earth and all that that manifests, including divine government, eternal peace, infinite prosperity, Nasara and all of the blessings that we are holding for this planet in its highest consciousness. And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her auric fields multidimensionally on a conscious. level for for one and all into every ley line and song line all the grid system the love grids the light grids the unity grids all of the multi-dimensional grid system through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power every stargate every city of light as we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution along with Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We give thanks for this opportunity to serve at this time as we continue to commit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. And thus we hold perfection for one and all. And we call forth all of the blessings of this new golden age, especially divine government here this weekend. Mighty I Am Presence and Mighty Ascended Masters come forth in all outer activity. Seize control of America, the government, her people, and her resources. Hold them forever in the heart of thy perfection. And bless all with thy happiness and transcendent light. In the name of the mighty I am presence, I call the light and love the ascended masters into the White House, into the national capital, into the Supreme Court, 
into every state in the union, into all of this election process, and into the hearts and minds of all politicians and candidates to produce perfection now and bring everything into light victory of divine love. In the name of the mighty I am presence, I charge the minds and feelings of everybody in America with St. Germain's Ascended Master Consciousness and Perfection. God bless, illumine, and perfect, and set them free in the service of the light forever. Mighty I Am Presence, shatter and consume all activity of the sinister force in America. Its cause, effect, record, remembrance, and memory replacing it forever by the eternal perfection of the Ascended Master's light of God that never fails. Mighty Ascended Masters and great legions of light. Fill America with that light, love, protection, and power as of a thousand suns and keep her forever invincible to all but thy mighty perfection. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. This is the Ascended Master, the Ascended Host Decree for America. Spoken by Donald Ballard. In the name of by the power of the Ascended Host. And the Ascended Master, St. Germain, I voice their decree for the blessing and protection of our beloved America. America has been brought into being by the Ascended Host as a radiating center to all the world for the light of God that never fails in the age which has now begun. Unto this end, there has been brought into existence a sacred document upon which the government of the United States of America has been founded. This is the sacred constitution of the United States of America. Therefore, it is the decree of the ascended host that every official in our government shall uphold and defend the constitution of the United States of America unto the best of his ability so help him God. Thus America shall go forward unto greater glory than has ever been known on earth. The ascended hosts who are all powerful throughout the universe have decreed America shall remain at peace with the world. And to those who have sought to draw America into destruction, into which some of the nations of the earth seem determined to open themselves. The ascended hosts have issued the all-powerful command that America and her people, those beloved children of God who have sought the light, shall be protected and that glory by which they have earned shall go forth into manifestation. Thus speaketh the ascended host unto the children of earth. Their decree, decree goes 
unchallenged into manifestation from now on, henceforth and forevermore. In their name I have spoken, Donald Ballard. Take a nice deep breath again as we hold the divine blueprint, as we hold the perfection of this nation and every other nation, if we hold the perfection of this planet and all upon her. And we decree. Mighty infinite I am presence, thou mighty guardian presence for America, come forth in thy cosmic action of the unfed flame of divine love and the eternal quenchless light. Blaze forth everywhere in and through our beloved Americas, all three continents, North, Central, and South America, is what they're referring to. Thy light as of a thousand suns, charged with ascended master consciousness and fulfillment of the divine plan for their freedom and perfection. We say to the consciousness of everyone in the Americas, awake. Awake, awake, to the truth of this mighty I am presence and the full perfection meant for the Americas. Great ones, release them throughout, release throughout them that activity of thy light, which takes position everywhere of the Americas, the governments, and the people. Control their resources, direct their activities, fill them with thy lavish abundance of all good things and release that ascended master consciousness, which compels divine justice to come forth for everyone within their borders. Surround them with thy invincible protection. Blaze forth thy mighty activity of light and love of the ascended masters and the angelic host that once and forever brings all into divine order through divine love. Charge forth thy full perfection everywhere forever. In the name of the mighty I am presence, we decree that the Americas shall manifest as nations of ascended masters to lead the rest of the earth into their eternal glory and the victory of the ascension. America, we love you. America, we love you. America, we love you. And our love and call to the mighty I am presence is great enough to bring forth your perfection now and keep it forever sustained. We charge you, our beloved America, with the ascended master's eternal victory of the light of God that never fails and the mighty mastery of the I am presence, expanding its perfection everywhere within your borders. So long as the stars remain and the heavens send down dew, So long shall our beloved, beloved America carry the grail of light high and feed the rest of the earth with the ascended masters outpouring of freedom and perfection of the mighty I am present. America, we fold you on our mantle of light and love. Within it is all power. We hold you sealed within our hearts and your mighty victory shall manifest every hour to the glory of the I Am and the Ascended Ones forever. So be it, and so it is. 
and we give thanks for this, and we give thanks for this, and we give thanks for this. We call forth for the obedience to the divine plan, for the perfecting of America. Mighty I Am Presence, great host of Ascended Masters, great cosmic beings and lords of the flame from Venus. In thy full authority of the great cosmic law, project the great cosmic light with irresistible force throughout the government of the United States of America and hold all individuals true to their oath of office in obedience to the divine plan of the great cosmic being for the perfecting of America, the government, and her people. Come forth, take possession of all governmental offices. Hold your dominion and divine justice everywhere within our government forever. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call, and it is eternally sustained and ever-expanding. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Now, we've called in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws, and all the ascension ways. Right now, we're going to call in the ascension waves individually. Breathe and receive that you might receive them individually and for the collective. As we begin, can we call each of the 12 ascension waves that are co-created through the braiding of many higher rays of dimensional love, light, and creation currents through the hearts of ascension bodies in our universe. Breathe them into every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of your orc field, as we call them in individually for every man, woman, and child. As we call them in to the conscious, subconscious, superconscious level, <clears throat> And for every person, everything, individually and collectively, on a multidimensional level, into the U.S., into every nation, into every eligible voter, every voter, every vote, every government official, every candidate, every politician, every secretary of state, every poll worker, poll watcher, Everyone who is at any level of consciousness connected to this election, November 8th, or any future election, we call in the following waves of ascension. Breathe and receive as we work with the first wave of ascension, the wave of wisdom and grace heralded through Kisutumi, Lord Sananda, and Vawamis. We ask for the highest magnification and intensification, actualization, anchoring, and integration of the first wave of wisdom and grace that brought the integration of divine truth to the planet 
and we ask for its acceleration in divine order, individually and collectively for all beings. Breathe and receive as we call forth the second wave of ascension, the wave of divine love and surrender. Heralded through Serapis Bay, Mother Mary, Lord Melchizedek. This wave brought to the planet the integration of divine love and the positive intention to transform. We humbly request that it be accelerated, magnified, anchored, and integrated in divine order individually and collectively. We call for the third wave of ascension. This is a wave of peace and tranquility, heralded through El Moria, St. Germain, and Sanat Kamara, bringing divine intention and divine will to be one with divine love and divine truth in every moment while on the earth. We ask for the highest of blessings individually and collectively. As we ask in divine order for the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration, individually and collectively for all. Take a nice deep breath as we integrate this, calling for a Zion and sandal fun. Easily and effortlessly integrating this for all. As we call forth the fourth wave of ascension, the fourth wave of ascension being the wave of divine union and being. breathe and receive. This is heralded by Paul the Venetian, Lord Maitreya, the great divine director, and brings divine will in accordance to divine plan to serve the divine plan for earth in communion with God's self. We call forth the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration in divine order, individually and collectively. (laughs) We welcome now the fifth wave of ascension, the wave of transfiguration and alignment, heralded by Lord Arcturus, Lord Sirius, and Lord Sananda. This wave brings us the grace to receive the karmic dispensations for clearing all old traumas and wounds held from previous experience on this planet in the neighboring three galaxies. In divine order, we call for the highest magnification, acceleration, anchoring, and integration that we can receive individually and collectively at this time. We call for the sixth wave of ascension, the wave of radiant glory and illumination. Heralded by Archangel Michael, Lord Metatron, and the Elohim Council. 
the wave of radiant glory and illumination brings the divine awareness of God presence and the power to assist and guide the life of our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual walk on earth. We call this forth individually and collectively for all. As we humbly request for the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration of the wave of radiant glory and illumination. We call forth at this time the seventh wave of ascension, the wave of remembrance, ascension, rebirth, and transformation. Heralded by Amnea, the Galactic Mother, the Radiant One, and the Divine Mother. This wave is the first galactic wave to connect to the Earth, bringing galactic remembrance and an awareness and deeper connection to the starry nature of every human being. In divine order, we call forth its highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration individually and collectively for all on the planet. May we all understand the starry nature of our being. We call forth the eighth wave of ascension, the wave of love within Divine Mother's heart, heralded by Divine Mother, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the galactic Mother Romeo, and Gaia, our Cosmic Earth Mother. This wave brings a higher dimensional form of love to the feminine heart of all beings. And we call it forward to align all to their divinity to receive God's energies for embodiment. We ask for this in divine order for the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration of the wave of love within Divine Mother's heart. We welcome now the ninth wave of ascension, the wave of union of God presence, heralded by Lord Sananda, Lord Melchizedek, and Saint Germain, bringing a higher dimensional communion with our own God presence, beginning the process of higher dimensional soul braiding to our being. As we are attuned to this wave, So we call this forth, this wave of union of God presence for one and all in divine order for each being with the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration that we can receive individually and collectively. We welcome now the 10th wave of ascension, the wave of God consciousness and God's truth heralded through the command of the Great White Lodge and Sirius, the Karmic Board, the Mahatma and Lord Metatron breathe and receive as this wave activates in through and around you. And for one and all, we call it forth. This wave brings forth the dispensations of the higher dimensional truth in relationship to the journey of all to Godhead and will, if integrated in divine order, free the mind, transforming it to divine mind. So we ask to receive this, the maximum that we can receive, 
we ask individually and collectively for the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration of this tenth wave of God consciousness and God truth. We call forth now the eleventh wave of ascension, the wave of soul communion, heralded by Lord Maitreya, the Elohim Master Faith, and the Elohim Master Principle of Life. Braided together as one, they hold the divine 11th wave of ascension for the communion of all souls within the planetary body. And as we call this forth individually and collectively, this wave of soul communion, we ask in divine order for the highest acceleration and magnification, anchoring and integration that we can receive on all levels of beingness. And we call forth that 12th wave of ascension, the wave of enlightenment and radiance, heralded by our beloved God, the great divine director, and Gaia, the cosmic mother earth, flowing directly from the heart of source in a higher frequency form than any of these, any other of these 12 waves. Breathe and receive as we ask to receive this individually and collectively in divine order. As it activates our path to enlightenment, once we hold our mastery on this planet. And as we request to attune to this, we ask it to assist us, one and all, to integrate our self-mastery. One must be on a fully committed path of service to receive this full wave of activation, but we ask for this humbly requesting the highest acceleration, magnification, anchoring, and integration of the wave of enlightenment and radiance in divine order for each being on this planet. For all of us here, we ask for each of these waves to flood through our being and the highest divine potential for ourselves and every man, woman, and child as we call forth our God consciousness to fully manifest and bring us through this very powerful time. Shift every man, woman, and child in a very powerful acceleration of our divine consciousness and thus the manifestation of heaven on earth. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. Just take a moment just to integrate. Know that these waves will be working with you. They're telling me through to the um, eclipse the end of the eclipse portal, out through to the 1111 and that portal as well. So basically they'll be working with us um, all week long, perhaps beyond. So I hope you enjoy these activations of light as we again recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age. 
on the open door, then no one can shut. So I hope you've enjoyed this, and I welcome you to join us every Sunday and Monday for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. It's going to be a very powerful weekend once again as we uh, celebrate the eclipse and then the 11-11 portal before our next weekend's call. So please plan on joining us. We begin each Sunday and Monday at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have greetings for about 25 minutes, and then we have Tarn Rama bringing us a brief update. Then we begin our ascension work, our work of anchoring heaven to earth through our meditations, our decrees, our visualizations, our activations. We begin at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time which reminds me to remind everybody to change their clock tomorrow if that affects your time zone and your state. So I think there are a few exceptions who we're, we're falling back. We get an extra hour of sleep tonight through tomorrow morning. And so I hope everybody will appreciate that. So check your clocks. Check your times before you join us at 9.30, whether it's Eastern, whether it's Standard Time or, or Daylight Savings Time. It's 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific for meditation to begin. We're a teleconference call. If you haven't joined us, I'm going to give you the number right now. It's area code 425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. There are a number of, of lines that you can use to get in. If you have problems with that one, let me know. Um, there are... <clears throat> not only lines throughout the nation, but there are um, international numbers. You can get on through the Internet. I can send you that link as well. I haven't tried the app. I'm not an app person, but there's also an app for freeconference.com, and you can join our, our program through that as well. So infinite blessings to you, and I will be joining you next. Saturday, um, for my you'll be part of my birthday celebration, so um, I look forward to that. And I send you infinite blessings throughout this week. So may magic and miracles fill every moment. And with that, I'm going to thank Tor and Rama for their divine service, as well as thank each and every one of you here today. Again, join us for divine service Sunday and Monday. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Torin Rama. Thank you to, to Rainbow for her divine service as I pass this talking stick. You know, as always, it, cover, it covers every frequency. 
but it is really filled with this golden light of Christ consciousness and divine illumination and wisdom and the golden light of victory. So we're going to affirm victory is ours and love governing this planet as we pass the talking stick to my sister Rainbird. Blessings to one and all. Thank you. I'll take that talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl, for your divine service as well and all these beautiful activations of life today and 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 looking forward to this weekend as well, Monday, Sunday and Monday. So I'm here to do the the um what? Oh yeah, here we have the housekeeping. As we are a listener supported radio program, it's all of us that make it happen. So each week we need $300 to cover our expenses with DBS Radio. And this week we need exactly that plus another 300 that we lost in the calculations <laughs> from October. So um, that's also due. So $600 is what we're looking for for the radio this week. And it's due like tomorrow. So it's one of those things that if we're going to do it, let's get it done and make this contribution. Here's how we do it. Go into your heart space. He was yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2, and you'll see the menu for Radio Station 2 there. That's what you're looking for is the menu. And as you find on for Saturday at the 1.30 Pacific hour, that these all all the times on the menu are in Pacific time, you'll find this program, The True History, Hershey, and the Sarah, My Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. You click on that icon, and you can make your donation in any amount right there. Uh, so thank you for taking that action. If you choose to go to the radio station one menu for our Friday and Thursday programs. They are on Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour, a night at the round table with the panel, and on Fridays, the, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama at the 6 o'clock hour as well. So any one of those two icons will also take you to our account where you can make a donation in any amount. So thank you. Thank you for taking that action. We're grateful for your support. We're grateful for for you showing up here and also for all the ways that you show up in your lives. So lots of gratitude. And the more of us that can contribute, the easier it is for all of us. So thank you for new people jumping in and making that contributions and thank you for all your regulars as well. So we're assisting uh, Tara and Rama with their needs as well. And all I need this week is just the basic expenses for their for their living. So Rama's asking for two hundred dollars to cover those basics. Gas, food, capital, all those things. So um here's how I make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address which is rainbowroundtable.net and there on the home page click on that menu grid at the top of the page. And they'll drop a menu down near the bottom of the menu. You'll see a donate link. And you, as you click on that, that'll link you to Rama's PayPal account. Where again, using your bank card, you can make a donation in any amount. 
So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. Um, if you want to access the friends option, you need to go to just paypal.com and put in Rama's email at PayPal and his account there and that email address for Rama. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999949 at hotmail.com. And so doing it that way gives you friends option. Just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way is perfect. We're so grateful for all your contributions. Thank you so much for your donation to Tara and Rama for all that they do and for all that you do. <laughs> so um, as we're sending something, let's send Rama an email and let him know what you said and when you sent it. That email address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net, and then as you need it, there's a mailing address, and it is as follows, Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Berkowitz, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87 Five six seven. I'll say that again. Eight seven five six seven is the zip. That's all the information you need. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your support, Tara and Rama. We're grateful for the mission that we're all on individually, and knowing that we're we're getting her done. So <laughs> with that, I'm sending this talking stick, and I want to say happy birthday. Also to our our brother Richard and our brother Birdman, as I think Richard's birthday is on the fourth, and today is Birdman's birthday. So, and then I'm catching this talking stick, and it has lots of bird feathers on it, and lots of all those all those just full of those healing rays and flavors. This is Cheryl yeah. Dare. Rainbird, this is Shiro. I hate to, to interrupt. Um, you've been coming through beautifully, but um, if anybody out there from BBS is listening, and I don't know, maybe it's corrected already, but I got text that you were looping, that the, the same thing was being said over and over again. Oh, no, I'm looping? You were, yeah, that we were, you, what you were saying was being repeated over and over again. So let's make sure Tarama have that corrected before you guys go on. Uh, Cheryl? Hi. Cheryl, we didn't hear any of that, so I don't know what that is. Okay. Well, this was from from Padme. Oh. Padme's in a different part of the world, and maybe it's looping there, but it's not looping from our ears. Right. Okay. Yeah, whatever she was on, I just wanted to let you guys know. Okay, and and everybody, anytime there's something that's really loopy going on, it's really the best place to call is to call BBS Radio because they can correct what you're hearing. And I've had an experience of looping when I turn my radio off and then come back for after a couple of minutes and turn it back on again if I don't refresh it. It will loop. 
And that's been my experience using the radio and turning it off and coming back and putting it on again. So if that helps, Padme, I hope it does. You know, you just need to try refreshing and see if it eliminates the problem. You're talking about the Internet radio. Yes, I am. And I don't know of any other radio, actually. I think it's only on the Internet. I hope you're hearing all this, Don. I don't know. Did you hear this? Well, it is possible on the phone. It's still an issue. Pardon me, but you can call. Because it seems like there's things happening in different parts of the country that are not happening in other parts of the country. And I think that we're in a time here where... Shenanigans are going on. Indeed. There's a lot of shenanigans going on. So we're going to call on the angels and the fairies of technology to help self-correct things for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. And I hope, and if you do uh, still have trouble after all of this, then please call. Or if it's not getting better, please call Don. All right. I would yes, like I, to I, I, let her, I let her know personally, and um, blessings to all of you. Thanks. Thank you, Cheryl. Namaste. Blaze by the fire. Okay, Rayburn. Yes. Continue. Yes, I, I would. I would like to give out the number for listening in case there is an internet problem. You can always call in and listen um, at BBS Radio Station Two Eight O Four. Two two zero six four eight four. And I'll give that again. Eight zero four two two zero six four eight four. And that way you can listen. And if you're listening and you're still hearing the looping, then that's when you definitely need to call the BDS radio help. But um, thank you, Padme, for bringing that up to us as an issue. And I'm passing this talking stick, and it's filled with the golden light of Christ consciousness and victory, and it is more gold than anything. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels. And um, I hope everybody's doing well um the weather's getting very chilly here and um cheryl was saying that it was very windy there meaning over there in michigan detroit michigan uh all of that being said there's uh, an overwhelming amount of in- input from all of the places all over the world, things going on. And uh, one thing that Rama was telling me uh, about Iran, that there were demonstrations going on in Iran. Yeah, there are. 
still with the students. And people were walking to the tomb of Mache Ami. She is the lady that was killed in the hands of the morality morality police of Iran. They beat her unconscious into a coma and then she died the next day. And the thing that Rama was telling me, and this is 40 days later after that happened. That's how fast things are going. Uh, you were telling me that, uh, or I was hearing it somewhere, uh, that the, uh, the Secret Service of Iran, whatever that's called, have been walking into the schools grammar schools, high schools, college, and taking away all of the students' phones. Yeah. So they have no connection at all to what's going on or what's being reported about Iran and what's going on to the world. And this is where intervention comes. And we, the people of the world are asking in unity for peace. Ditto. And that is reported all over the world. Peace, peace, and more peace. The empire thinks war for profits, killing for profits, still a thing. That's not what we're hearing from people at the level because war is killing civilians at the moment, what we're doing right now. The people that are dying are civilians. And the oligarchy, just to repeat, that's something we've said a number of times, uh, has got a lookalike of Putin out there. And then the agenda is being orchestrated uh, for the media by the oligarchs of the West. And so the lookalike Putin, as Caroline said so well, is, doesn't look like him at all. And energetically, not even a smidgen of his energy is there. It's like a frenetic, crazy person. And uh, this is something that a lot of people don't know how to take, but President Putin's been in the same body. I think it's about 2045 or something. He will have been, since he was born, that many years ago, 500 years ago. He'll be 500 years old in that body. That's a whole different story. And the only place that I got well-informed uh about who he is is when uh, was on when when I was able to watch RT on Dish Network on screen and the intelligent uh, question and answers and the students and the people there it was a whole different level. Hello, hello, everything okay? <laughs> okay. 
And if you're having any trouble hearing us without looping, I mean, call God. <laughs> okay. So what I'm saying is that a well-informed public is a requirement for uh, a consensus on what to do together to make the world a better place. And that's not happening in general. You might say MSNBC is kind of like MSNBC light. And, I mean, it's, it's like uh, Fox News light, excuse me. Yeah. And not that much more light. It's just another another, another shade of the oligarchs who spread misinformation. Right. And so yesterday they fired uh, Tiffany Cross. So this morning, instead of getting to see Cross Connection with Tiffany Cross at 8 o'clock Mountain Time or 10 o'clock Eastern Time, we got one hour, the first hour, 8 to 9, from Ali Velshi. And then the second hour from 9 to 10 was... Alex Witt, who usually doesn't come on until 10. We're talking about mountain time. All I can say is that I remember Ali Velshi very well in the past. And he was a very, you know, do-what-you're-told kind of guy in terms of working for MSNBC and reporting things without deviating. And so that's a problem, but that's what we got. He's been a very uh, active. He's been traveling all over the world to on-site locations. And I always look at that and I wonder, you know, like they're sitting out there and there's nothing happening and they're right there. And, I mean, they're acting like there's no war going on. Really. And again, it tells you something. And the incidences, incidences of deaths in Ukraine of civilians is overwhelmingly outlandish. Astronomically. Astronomically. Amy reported on Friday possibly and probably 8,000, 800,000 people dead. What? I was going to read one thing. Uh, our, our sister Helen sent this piece. It's just a proverb. Well, Bruce Lipton was the author, so I guess I can't say a proverb, but it says here, the new physics provides a modern version of ancient spirituality. In a universe made out of energy, everything is entangled it is. And then the last line is, everything is one. And there indeed is only one of us here. One beingness. So as we share and converse with one another, with love, something brilliant happens. It's called lighting up the world. Literally. 
And since there's only one beingness of us that can really make a much larger dif- difference, especially as we perceive it from that place. We perceive that the only thing that does exist is love. Because that's what's true. So, I'll stop quacking. <laughs> All I can say is that uh, in terms of the hard news I heard today, um, I talked for by text with Rosa from Palestine, and she told me that uh, the former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, is calling out the current Prime Minister and saying that there is a, a plot against him, Imran Khan, to assassinate him by the current Prime Minister, and this is getting bigger kind of by the day. This is what Rosa said, and it goes into the larger story that the deep state runs Pakistan, and that's kind of a big issue, because Ukraine, Pakistan, uh, I don't know what to say except we are in this moment, like Patty describes, the generational changing of the guard, where the diamond crystal children are here, the rainbow crystal children, and peace is the order of the day. <laughs> okay. That's good, Mom. Thank you. Yes. So let's, we're going to play a little four-minute piece before we start with something else here. And it goes back to 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. And a young girl between 12 and 13 years old, her name being Severn Suzuki, David Suzuki's daughter, she addressed that UN, and she, this was June 3rd to the 14th in Rio de Janeiro, 1992, four minutes. And it's uh, right here. Let's play this. Ready, Rama? Yeah. Hello, I'm Severin Suzuki speaking for ECHO, the Environmental Children's Organization. We're a group of 12 and 13 year olds trying to make a difference. Vanessa Setti, Morgan Geisler, Michelle Quigg, and me. We've raised all the money to come here ourselves, to come 5,000 miles to tell you adults you must change your ways. Coming up here today, I have no hidden agenda. I am fighting for my future. Losing my future is not like losing an election or a few points on the stock market. I am here to speak for all generations to come. I am here to speak speak on behalf of the starving children around the world whose cries go unheard. I am here to speak for the countless animals dying across this planet because they have nowhere left to go. I used to go fishing in Vancouver, my home, with my dad, 
until just a few years ago, we found the fish full of cancers. Mm. And now we hear of animals and plants going extinct every day, vanishing forever. In my life, I have dreamt of seeing the great herds of wild animals, jungles and rainforests full of birds and butterflies. But now I wonder if they will even exist for my children to see. Did you have to worry of these things when you were my age? All this is happening before our eyes, and yet we act as if we have all the time we want and all the solutions. Here, you may be delegates of your government, business people, organizers, reporters, or politicians, but really, your mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, aunts and uncles, and all of you are someone's child. In Canada, we live the privileged life with plenty of food, water, and shelter. We have watches, bicycles, computers, and television sets. The list could go on for two days. Two days ago here in Brazil, we were shocked when we spent time with some children living on the streets. This is what one child told us. I wish I was rich. And if I were, I would give all the street children food, clothes, medicines, shelter, and love and affection. If a child on the streets who has nothing is willing to share, why are we who have everything still so greedy? At school, even in kindergarten, you teach us how to behave in the world. You teach us to not to fight with others, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess, not to hurt other creatures, to share, not be greedy. Then why do you go out and do the, uh, do the things you tell us not to do? Do not forget why you are attending these conferences. Who you're doing this for? We are your own children. You are deciding what kind of a world we are growing up in. Parents should be able to comfort their children by saying, everything's going to be all right. It's not the end of the world. And we're, and we're doing the best we can. But I don't think you can say that to us anymore. Are we even on your list of priorities? My dad always says, you are what you do, not what you say. Mm -hmm. Well, what you do makes me cry at night. You grown-ups say you love us, but I challenge you, please, make your actions reflect your words. Thank you. Wow. Okay, Rama's going to, oh, let me see. Maybe I'll share this before Rama starts. Mm -hmm. This is Aurora Ray's latest uh, for today. She says, <clears throat> she says, through the mastering of meditation, we can connect to the roots of our existence. Once we raise the frequency to that of a higher spiritual realm, we expand our conscious awareness. We access source information. 
the living library of the Akashic Records. That might be a new word for some people, but not too many that are listening to us lately, but <laughs> it's a record of all time and space. And we can access the Akash right now. Or as this one's saying, the full name of it's called the Akashic Records. Yes. It's a record of consciousness. And we're getting interference from all the computers and the... Uh, 5G. Yes, and uh, uh, there's something that can help one's eyes when one is watching a television or a computer screen. There are the, there, they clip onto your glasses, whatever glasses you might be wearing. Even if they're just glasses because you don't need glasses, but you just have glasses that you can clip these on. <laughs> um, and they have a slightly yellow tint. And you get way too many of the blues and, uh, other excessive uh, colors <coughs> watching the television so this this texturizes it and uh, it really uh, in, helps you to keep your eyes uh, a, a dear friend of ours at BBS Radio is saying that they're having a lot of trouble with their eyes and I wanted to put this out and Maybe Rama will look for a place on the internet where you can actually buy them if you can't find them in the stores. Yeah. Can you do that, Rama? I think so. Yeah, and then we can send them <clears throat> to people. Because yeah. I was just remembering and that thank God for this uh, in terms of myself. Uh, so I will continue here. Meditation and breathing from ego to oneness. On a physical aspect, meditating strengthens the connections between brain cells and helps activate the part of our DNA that is asleep, waiting for us to awaken it. Yet often, we forget that one of the most essential aspects of meditation is breathing, as our entire focus is to inhale and exhale. The difference between conscious and unconscious lies here in the moment of the silence between breaths. The life giver and taker. Allow yourself to feel the force of life within you. Awareness of the breath brings understanding, understanding, overstanding to the now where the I am presence resides, which is the only possible reality where we exist. Mm -hmm. Think of no future or past. Focus only on the potentiality of our presence. Through meditation, we connect to the roots of our existence. We tune into our inner world and the frequency of higher spiritual realms. Through meditation, we expand our conscious awareness 
turn this down. I think I got some sound on here. A little bit more. Okay. Um, excuse me. Uh, we expand our conscious awareness and access source information. The living library of the Akashic Records. Once we experience the greatness, we become enlightened. And when we achieve enlightenment, we live the death of our misguiding human ego. We see that we are all one. And so, we are reborn with unconditional love and a blissful sense of oneness. Of course. The ego fears its death through meditation. Mm -hmm. That's why sometimes it is so difficult to not lose our focus on our breathing. Once the silence of our ego is ultimately achieved through meditation, we expand our conscious awareness from me to we. And we start to understand the concept of universal consciousness. That is why our ego will do anything to keep us away from sitting down in solitude and silence. It's true. <laughs> our ego, somebody's talking from their own experience here. Yep. <laughs> our ego will come up with endless reasons why we don't need to meditate. I don't have time. It'll, I'll do it tonight. I want to go to the gym now. Even as you finally achieve resonance of your heart and mind through meditation, your ego will still try to interfere with its overwhelming, never-ending mind chatter. Mastery comes with practice. And the key to this great challenge lies in muting the ego mind, with its chatter of sorrow from yesterday, its fear of tomorrow, and worry or jealousy or any other emotion of duality created and amplified by the ego to keep us from tuning into the frequency of the higher realms of conscious awareness. Through distracting us from the now here, However, as we become enlightened, we shift in vibrational frequency. The ego has no place there. It is there in the silence of our mind between our breaths where our I am presence, our angelic godly higher self is, capital I, capital S, the isness of it all. <laughs> Here and now is the only reality. It is the only place where we exist. Next time we sit down to meditate, instead of fighting against our ego, try to befriend it. Our mind consists not solely of a fearful ego. It also has many advantages, mm -hmm. advantageous abilities. And even our ego only wants to be loved. 
unfortunately. It has learned to control us. Yet now, we must learn to be the master. Before we sit down in meditation, tell our ego mind that all is well. Say, dear ego, we are going to meditate now for only 20 minutes. And I want you to be quiet during this time. So I can recharge. And afterwards, I will give you a chocolate cookie as a reward for being silent. And such a good friend to let me meditate a few minutes. It is a trick that really works for many. Thoughts will still come to your mind, yet you shall not engage in them. Rather, distantly observe them. Let them pass. Instead of being the actor in the movie, step a few steps behind and become the silent watcher of the film inside your head, created by your thoughts. Watch without judging these thoughts and let them pass by until it becomes quiet. Another thing that could help us is listening to calming music or frequencies during meditation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we will sit for 30 minutes, yet unable to silence our mind. So, to still our mind, we need to focus on something straightforward, yet essential for our survival. And this is all in capital letters. Our breath. Breathing will be bringing you back to the present moment. Now. Here. Breathe in and out on the count of four. And relax. It is here where all wisdom and mysteries of eternity and immortality are kept. And I want to make sure that everybody heard that second word called immortality. I know it's mind-boggling, yet Rama has a friend. Her name is Leonardo, and she's been in the same body for 20,000 years. Yes. And she is a caretaker of an underground library underneath the New Mexico State Library that goes for miles. And it's a holographic library of the 20,000 years of her life. And all of the things that were going on with the human race for all those 20,000 years. It exists. Think about that for a moment. In silence between breaths, people always ask me. Oh, I see. The uh, the uh, mysteries of eternity and immortality are kept in the silence between breaths, as well as all wisdom. People always ask me, Aurora, where are we going? Then in all capital letters, she says, 
nowhere. <laughs> we are going nowhere. <coughs> we are arriving now here. Right here, right now. Put your hand on your heart, breathe deeply, and say, I am now here. I ground myself fully into this now moment on Gaia. And remember, you are not alone. We love you dearly. We are... Excuse me. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. (coughs) (laughs) Divine blessings to all. Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Okay. This is almost three hours long, this piece Rama wants to play. And you could go and find it on YouTube. It is called The Real History of the Americas Before Columbus, 1491, Complete Series Timeline. And it's a two hour and 56 minutes long, right? Three hours and six minutes. Oh, it went up. (laughs) (laughs) From the time you told me last time. Oh, that was something different. Oh, no. Okay, well, we better get started. And there'll be moments where there's more just music. And if I am inspired or Rama's inspired, we'll describe the scene. But usually you can understand what the scene is. In the beginning, for instance. They're talking about the indigenous people that have been here since the time when our family from the stars came and uh, helped to create civilization along with the great silent watchers. They don't go into any of the, as far as I know, the stories that Graham Hancock or Greg Braden or Freddie Silva talk about, but it's related in the sense of these people were here from the beginning and well, we all were. Yeah. Uh, and we're all children of the stars. That's right. We're different levels of awareness of that fact. Different creation stories. At the moment, it seems like people think they need, uh, they don't need democracy. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much what's, so we're going to wake them up. We're going to help. As they ask. Yes. And I'll just say, you know, with a herd of deer, and I've seen this, they have a democracy. They have a language all they all their own, and they know what to do. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. This channel is part of the History Hits Network. We are the first peoples. Commercials. <laughs> Happy hearts. Governor Lujan Grisham made childcare free for most New Mexican families. Mark Ronchetti will cut crucial programs and eliminate affordable childcare. The only way to keep childcare affordable is with your vote. Vote for Governor Lujan Grisham on November 8th. 
Troy, you work here? I'm never not working. Like head and shoulder scalp shield technology, up to 100% dandruff protection, even between washes. Never not working. <laughs> never not working. Never ever not working. Head and shoulder scalp shield, never not working. Of the Americas. We have been here from the beginning. Our ancestors navigated by the wind and stars, crossing vast oceans and mountain ranges, searching for new lands. Over thousands of years, our ancestors became astronomers and architects, philosophers and scientists, artists and inventors. We created distinct societies and built vast trade systems that covered two continents. In 1492, our world was changed forever, but we did not disappear. Today, the languages and teachings of our ancestors remain, and these are the untold stories of the Americas before Columbus. When did the first people arrive in the Americas? Indigenous creation stories tell how our ancestors emerged as humans from the earth, the water, the sky, and the land below. Some people believe that we walked into the Americas on foot across an ancient land bridge that once connected Asia and North America. Others say we paddled here in ocean-going canoes along the Pacific coastline. There's one thing that all of these views of arrival have in common. They all begin with a journey. By 1491, tens of millions of indigenous people were living in every part of the Americas, from the high Arctic to the southern tip of South America. There were countless indigenous nations each with their own distinct language and ways of life. But this didn't happen overnight. It took thousands of years to build this diverse world from a very small founding population. Since 1492, we've shared our traditional territory with people from every part of the world. Today, we continue our search for the origins of our ancestors and the roots of our cultural identity as indigenous people. We have two different kinds of dates. We have the archaeological date that says probably somewhere between 18 to 20,000 years ago, the first non-native born human came into this hemisphere. In terms of indigenous perspectives, we've always been here. Philosophically, we've never been anywhere else. Every indigenous nation has its own creation story. These stories have been passed down from generation to generation for thousands of years. Creation stories form a powerful part of each nation's identity and our sense of who we are as a people. In the beginning, 
there was a great flood. A few animals and birds survived by clinging to a log. Among them was the tiny muskrat. The creatures decided they needed to find land, but the world was covered in water. One by one, they took turns diving deep into the water, looking for some dirt to bring back to the surface. But each animal came back empty-handed. Finally, the tiny muskrat dove under the water. When he came back, he had a paw full of earth. He placed it on the back of a turtle shell. This is how North America became known as Turtle Island. In the beginning, there was only the sea and sky. The gods created the earth and populated it with animals and birds. But the animals couldn't worship them, so they decided to make humans. The first humans were made from mud, but they fell apart too easily. Then the gods made humans from wood, but they had nothing in their minds, so they destroyed them in a flood. Finally, the gods made humans out of maize dough. They had intelligence and knowledge and could worship the gods, so they became the first people. In the beginning, people lived in the sky, and the only creatures they knew were birds. A young hunter set out one day to find a rare and beautiful bird. When he finally found it, he shot his arrow, and when he went to retrieve it, he discovered a hole in the bottom of the sky. Looking through it, he saw forests and rivers and wild animals. He asked the other hunters to travel to this world with him, but they refused. So he made a rope and lowered it down the hole and climbed down to the world below. He shot a deer and brought it back to the sky world. The others wanted to hunt deer too, so they climbed down the rope. The last person to go through the hole in the sky was a woman, and she became stuck, preventing the people from returning to their home. She can still be seen in the sky as the morning star. Historians have long supported a theory that our ancestors walked into the Americas across an ancient land bridge that connected Asia and North America during the last ice age. Until about 13,000 years ago, great sheets of ice kilometers thick covered much of the northern sections of North America, Europe, and Asia. But there were some ice-free regions in the northern hemisphere where people lived. One of these regions was known as Beringia. This thousand-kilometer expanse of land connecting the two continents emerged when glaciers locked up vast quantities of water, causing sea levels to fall more than 100 meters. You see evidence that people came across a, a land bridge. You see evidence that a land bridge did exist in the past. In the northern parts of North America, Alaska, the Yukon, even northern British Columbia, we have a collection of some of the most ancient sites across the continent. And of course, that would be up in an area that archaeologists refer to as Beringia.
I mean, you know, those people who made it across the land bridge, all they had were their wits and a few stone tools. And yet they managed to explore, uh, discover, and colonize two continents. So that's a pretty amazing achievement in the annals of uh, human history. And they did this by being very aware of their environment, of being able to manipulate their environment to their own benefit. The water between the two continents dropped so low, it exposed the bottom of the sea. This arid, prairie-like landscape remained ice-free, and the abundant birds and mammals provided people with food and materials for clothing and shelter. But Beringia was a temporary landscape. Around 20,000 years ago, the world's climate began to warm, and the glaciers started melting. By 15,000 years ago, the rising sea levels had covered up the Beringia land bridge, and people living there either had to return to Siberia or stay in North America. The melting glaciers and rising sea levels created major environmental changes in the Northern Hemisphere. The land between the two North American ice sheets widened about 12,000 years ago, offering an ice-free corridor for people to travel through. Historically in archaeology, it was believed that the spread further south into the continent was between the Laurentide and Cordilleran ice sheets. And this is known as the ice-free corridor hypothesis. And so many researchers are saying this was the gateway into the Americas. But taking this route south through such a harsh terrain would have involved a tremendous risk. If they had a people who were up in Alaska and they see this opening between two ice sheets, they're taking a big leap of faith to say, well, maybe we go a thousand miles south of here, we'll find better land. The ice cream corridor would have been a very dynamic landscape. It would have had terrible winters, like harsh, cold winters, and, and not much better in the summer. The summers would have been cold and rainy. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for people to find stable land that they could colonize. The end of the last ice age set the stage for the movement of people overland into North America. The indigenous people who traveled into the continent on foot from Beringia could not have known it at the time, but they were not the first people to settle south of the ice sheets. In fact, humans had already been living in both North and South America for thousands of years before the glaciers melted and opened up routes south through the ice-free corridor. Glaciers covered much of the Northern Hemisphere until about 12,000 years ago. As temperatures warmed worldwide, ice melted and sea levels began to rise. These changes to the environment led to animal, bird, and human migration throughout North America, Asia, and Europe. Tens of thousands of years ago, the climates in parts of the Asian subcontinent was much wetter than it is today. In India, the Thar Desert was once a vast, fertile grassland. Hunters following the herds eventually settled permanently in the region. As the glaciers retreated, the warming climate created new agricultural zones in the Northern Hemisphere. Early agriculturalists 
cultivated new food resources in the fertile soils of the Middle East. And this led to the formation of farming settlements and eventually cities. During the last ice age, sea levels were 100 meters lower than they were today. And this created a thousand kilometer wide land bridge to appear between Siberia and Alaska. This became one of the migration routes that humans took into the Americas. Changes in climate over the millennia has influenced the migration paths and hunting practices of humans throughout the world. they first started doing uh, their surveys in the uh, what would be the ice-free corridor the observation they made was that the sites were getting younger as they went north which is counterintuitive you'd expect that the oldest sites would be in the north and they'd get progressively younger in the south so it looked like people were moving north instead of south so this has always been very paradoxical and the only way you can explain it is that there were people already living south of the ice sheets and where did those people come from? The recent discovery of an ancient village and campsites in the Americas that are more than 14,000 years old supports a new theory that people first arrived by boat along the Pacific coastline of North and South America. In the 70s, researchers propose an alternative hypothesis to say that the coastal route was also viable. And this sparked a huge debate in archaeology that it had to be one or the other. Which one was it? We're now coming to an understanding that it was likely both happened. However, archaeologists are more leaning towards the coastal route as the earlier alternative. Any journey along the Pacific coast during the Ice Age would have been treacherous. Keep in mind that the West Coast at that time uh, would have been choked with uh, icebergs and lots of ice flows. So for people to uh, travel that way, they would uh, certainly require some good ocean-going skills. And that's not out of the question, because we do know uh, from the archaeological record in East Asia that as early as 40,000 years ago, uh, people were able to make open ocean voyages. When people go on journeys like this, their destination is usually unknown to them. We may never know what compelled indigenous people to embark on this treacherous journey by sea. What is the history of humanity in North America? We have indications that humans were here and they were producing culture, they were burying their dead, they were becoming a part of the landscape, they were taking taking ownership of the landscape in their own way. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is investing in education to deliver the high-quality education New Mexicans deserve. Her administration created universal pre-K, raised educators' pay, and invested one... Once arriving on land, these seafarers would have found themselves in a strange and foreign world filled with unknown peril and promise. When people are, are traveling into unknown countries, they really have to rely on the skills that they bring with them. And so if they know how to live off the land, if they know what seafoods they can consume, 
this will give them a better than average chance of surviving a new country or a new terrain that they're uh, starting to settle in. The idea of where we come from is extremely important. It gives us that sense of place. It tells us the locations that we are tied to both as a people, as individuals. It's the part of the landscape that continues to reside in, in our bones, in our blood, but particularly in our minds. It's not known how many indigenous people arrived in the Americas by water, but evidence suggests this was not an isolated occurrence. Archaeology keeps finding more and more localities which add pieces to the puzzle. When we look at them all in a very broad picture, it does give us that story, that deeply complex story about the first people to come into North America. Somebody in no, the... they didn't bury them yet. They just covered them with a blanket and some seashells and some stones around the place. And they're on the sand at the shore. And they're, they are a, um, a, a, a native man and a native woman. I think they might be connected. Yeah. And uh, at the very beginning, uh, they showed... Uh, the the woman uh, holding holding the the young woman's hand together over the young woman's heart who was passing over. Yeah. So these are all practices. Okay, here we go. mushrooms and drinking some water. That he just found on the forest floor. Yeah. 
whether our ancestors arrived by land from Beringia or by water along the Pacific coast, people were soon living in every corner of the Americas. Native Americans were at the southern tip of South America more than 14,000 years ago. So the hypothesis is that they took a coastal route just because traveling over land would have been uh, very difficult at the time. We have a much greater understanding of the fluctuation in sea levels, so it's easier for us to locate those most ancient sites along the coast, spreading all the way down to California, and of course all the way down to places like Monte Verde in South America. Monte Verde is an ancient village site located in Chile, about 50 kilometers inland from the Pacific coastline, that was occupied at least 14,800 years ago. The village was discovered in the 1970s beneath a creek and was largely preserved within the wet environment. The village consisted of 12 small huts that would have supported about 20 or 30 people. The huts were made from wood, animal hide, and woven rope. There were two large and several smaller hearths in the village. The people at Monteverde collected plants in the mountains, grasslands, and coastal regions of southern Chile, suggesting that they traveled widely to collect food and building materials. Along with the remains of mammoth and llama, ten types of seaweed and the shells of crabs and clams were found at the site. The marine-based diet of those who lived at Monteverde points to a people who were well adapted to a marine lifestyle. Over the course of many thousands of years when you're doing things such as experimentation of new lifeways or trial and error in new food types, all of this accumulates over many generations and gives us what we call traditional knowledge. Since first arriving in the Americas, indigenous people have hunted wild game for food, shelter, tools, and clothing. The type of tools used by these ancient hunters are often used to define their cultures. One of the most important discoveries of ancient stone tools in the Americas was made at Clovis, New Mexico in the early 20th century. The distinct way of manufacturing these spearheads led to the Clovis First theory, which suggested that the earliest people in the Americas arrived shortly after the glaciers melted and used the same tool technology. When we look at the history of archaeology as a discipline, early on, say in the early 1900s, scholars believed back then that North America had only been inhabited by indigenous people for two to 3,000 years. However, this changed, of course, with the findings of Folsom and Clovis points in association with what we call megafauna, or Ice Age giant mammals and creatures that walked the Earth along with the indigenous people. The discovery of mammoth bones alongside stone tools at the Clovis site revealed that indigenous people were hunting megafauna with spearhead technology around 13,000 years ago. Clovis was the type site where the first stone tools were found. And so after that kind of became the umbrella term for fluted point technology. This lethal tool was sharp enough to penetrate the thick hides of large game, such as bison and mammoth. 
Clovis points were made from jasper, chert, obsidian, and other brittle stones, and were eventually discovered throughout North America. The Clovis tool uh, complex spread across North America very rapidly, so this has always given the impression that people are moving along and occupying new lands. And there's lots of lots of variety across North America with geographical variations. And for many decades, it was believed that the Clovis culture was the first and only culture to be across all of North America. However, most recently, in the last 10 to 20 years, the Clovis first model has pretty much been thrown out the window because we have ample evidence across North America, Mesoamerica, down to South America of sites that predate the Clovis time period. And this data and these sites are really interesting in pushing the boundaries of what we know about that distant time. Think of Clovis as an idea and that there was already a pre-existing population that was receptive to this new invention. So when the new invention came along, it was the idea of it that spread into a pre-existing population. Although stone tools were widely used in the Americas for thousands of years, tools made from animal bones were also used for hunting and fishing. Before people had uh, Clovis points, they actually used bone technology. And the bone tools were just as lethal as the stone tools. Now there's starting to be a whole series of sites that have been discovered. And one of the uh, discoveries was actually made very early on at the Manus Hill site in Washington State. There was a, a bone tool that was embedded in the vertebrae of a mastodon, and it was actually made from another mastodon's bone. From that, uh, he could get a radiocarbon date off the element of the tools, but he could also get a radiocarbon date off the kill that it was embedded in. The remains found at the Manus kill site date back 13,800 years, a full millennium before the glaciers melted enough to open up the ice-free corridor to the north. A hunter likely took down a mammoth once in his life and talked about it for the rest of his life. As the glaciers receded and the lands opened up, allowing migration across North America, hunting techniques changed based on the terrain and their prey. There's uh, certainly a long history of uh, hunting as a, as a way of life, going right back to the Ice Age when humans first appeared on the scene. And of course, as uh, people moved into the farther north regions, they started coming across animals like, uh, such as reindeer and caribou, and these are herding animals, so they started hunting them communally. Clovis tools were very lethal, and whatever they hit would have been injured. But of course, you'd have to be very close to that animal. And you bring them into natural traps, and then once they're into the natural traps, and then you can uh, use your stabbing spears to kill them. Brian Echeverria, a Charlotte area parent, explains why we need to stop critical race theory in its tracks, especially in relation to our public schools. And one of the things I wanted to thank you for tonight was the resolution, the non-discrimination resolution. Critical race theory is not taught in any public schools, period. Stones and animal bones were the first material. And I'll just say, 
is a propaganda tool by the Republicans. And what's that doing on this program? Materials used by humans to craft tools for hunting. Some of the earliest tools to be discovered date back more than two million years. Twenty thousand years ago, nomadic hunter-gatherers lived in the Kabara cave region in Israel. They developed the Kabaran tool technology using flint to make spear points and arrowheads. Solutrean tool industry emerged in Western Europe around 19,000 years ago. The people of this region made tools by napping tiny flakes off the flint core. Hunters also used heat to make the flaking more precise. One of the earliest stone tool technologies in North America was the Clovis point, named after the site in New Mexico where the spear points were first discovered. The people who created these tools hunted a wide range of megafauna, including mammoths. Throughout the world, the different styles of tools that people developed determined the type and size of the game they hunted. As our ancestors settled throughout the two continents, creating hundreds of nations, languages evolved and diversified, and through these languages came stronger social and cultural identities. The Western Hemisphere is the most linguistically diverse region in the world. It's estimated that there were as many as 2,000 distinct languages spoken in the Americas in 1491. Each of these languages are part of a language family, connected through common words, grammar, and diction. Languages are more than a means of communication. For ancient societies, they contain the cultural, historical, and traditional knowledge of a nation. Many of the languages spoken before 1491 are still in use today. Quechua in South America. Mayan in Mesoamerica. Pueblo in North America. And Inuktitut in the Arctic. Ah. Mesoamerican cultures like the Maya and Aztec had a complex writing system. But most indigenous languages were based on an oral tradition. Language doesn't leave marks on the, on the land. 
Language isn't a thing that we can point to in the world. It's something that um, is done by people. And especially without writing, um, you, all you have are people as your evidence. In North America, there's a very complex tapestry of different language families that have crossed over each other. And there's probably about 30 families in North America. There's probably another 30 or so families in Central America and maybe even 100 families in South America. The original work on comparative linguistics was reconstructing languages that had long written histories like English and the Romance languages like French and, um, and Italian. So it was early on believed, no, you simply couldn't do that in a language that didn't have a written history. The early anthropologist linguists in North America proved that, yes, you could. You could reconstruct these languages and often could show materially that language here was actually a close relative of a language that was quite far apart from it, separated by a number of others. They applied these methods that had been developed in Europe and proved that they could be used for unwritten languages, and that opened the door for people to work on Native American languages and figure out well, where did they come from, which is always you know, the question that presses a lot of people um, when they study us. <laughs> They also found sometimes that um, the indigenous people themselves would tell you, oh, well, our language is actually related to those guys over there. I mean, you can ask and you find out, well, yes, we share a whole bunch of words in common. And you go talk to them, you can tell. And although they can't really communicate in each person's language, they still find quite a large number of words that are similar. Indigenous languages carry deep cultural and traditional knowledge, but tracing their histories is a challenge to linguistic researchers. Even though we have reconstructions, internally reconstructed and externally reconstructed language families, we can show that they're related, but we can't go back any further. And that's because unlike biology, language doesn't have a constant rate of change. It changes in fits and starts with long periods of um, little change, um, sudden dramatic reconstructions of how the language works. It's not uh, something that we can predict um, with any reliability. We can show that a language is internally related, but we can't tell you how long the, um, the connections are. And we rely almost entirely on archaeology to give us some sort of calibration to our, our guesstimates. Oral entomology is both fluid and fragile. And of the thousands of indigenous languages that existed in the Americas in 1491, hundreds have been lost forever. The exact question of when these all these languages came here as far as linguistics can tell, they've just been here. Archaeological sites in every part of the world tell the story of ancient peoples and the cultures and civilizations they created over thousands of years. Zurich is one of the first major cities in the world that featured monumental stone buildings. It was built at the center of a vast trade network in the Middle East. Five thousand years ago, Egypt was divided into upper and lower regions. A pharaoh named Narmer created a unified kingdom, and there are sites throughout Egypt that represent the artistic achievements from this era.
Cahokia was the largest urban center in North America a thousand years ago. It was part of an elaborate intertribal trade network that connected people as far away as the Gulf of Mexico and the Great Lakes. The archaeological record in every part of the world continues to inform us of the accomplishments and ways of life of our ancestors. Indigenous people settled in every region of the Western Hemisphere, from the high Arctic to the Caribbean islands to the southern tip of South America. Historians estimate that by 1491, the population of the Americas may have been as high as 100 million people. Population growth in societies worldwide can be traced to the advent of agriculture. As people began to grow annual crops, the need to travel to find food lessened. Villages grew into towns and towns into cities, with the farmers providing a steady supply of food. The impact over thousands of years was a significant growth of population in the Americas. Throughout the Americas, civilizations rose and fell like an oscillating frontier through time. Some of them had great periods of development, innovation. Their technologies were among the most incredible. Their populations were significant, and then they collapsed. Archaeologically, we're looking at a palimpsest. In other words, we're looking at layers and pieces and fragments. It's like looking at a wall of graffiti and seeing one layer on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. And when an archaeologist digs, he may be digging through 10 different layers, or she may be uh, recovering uh, the relics of maybe 10 civilizations. An example of a significant population surge was the Aztec city-state of Tenochtitlan, founded in 1325. Governor Lujan Grisham repealed New Mexico's outdated abortion ban law. Mark Ronchetti promised his supporters he would completely ban abortion. The only way to keep abortion legal is with your vote. Vote for Governor Lujan Grisham on November 8th. On a man-made island Don't in the present-day Mexico City, who stands, it was the capital of the Aztec Empire. The city had a complex social strata that included the working class, military members, priests, and the elite. It was a vibrant city with a bustling marketplace. At its peak, Tenochtitlan was home to more than 250,000 people and was the center of an empire with a population of between 2 and 3 million. In 1491, Tenochtitlan was the largest city in the Americas. The question then is, what about North America? The Mississippian side of Cahokia was a, a center that maintained significant populations into the tens of thousands. Cahokia was arguably the largest and most influential urban center in North America before 1491. At its peak around 800 years ago, Cahokia had a population of 40,000 or more. The city's strategic location, where the Mississippi, Missouri, and Illinois rivers meet, made it a natural gateway for intertribal trade. But over time, like the major cities in Mesoamerica, Cahokia also disappeared. We have factors like drought. We have warfare. Uh, we have invasion and conquest. All of these things factor into the variable landscape of demography and population in the Americas. Indigenous archaeologists are much more adept at thinking about the who of the past and the why of the past rather than just the what of the material culture. It's not just a piece of pottery that happened here without 
humans being involved in either transportation and, and breaking it and moving it from one place to another. I think that's what drives a lot of good archaeologists is recognizing that we're not in it for the artifacts. We're in it for the stories that the artifacts can tell us. One of the most important things about being an indigenous person involved in archaeology is knowing the importance of story, the importance of the individual, and knowing how these all fit within who we are today. There are so many tribal people involved in trying to relate the history of individual tribes, individual places. In the past, it has been perceived to be the role of the expert to tell what the history is, history of place, and it often has been based on someone else's stories, some written reports or such. Now it's extremely important that indigenous groups have the authenticity, the authority, and the right to present the history as they know it. There are so many indigenous people who are getting advanced degrees, who are getting recognized as authority. And so now they're able to take that and tell the stories that their communities want them to tell so that people outside of the community can really understand what has gone before. The sequencing of the human genome has led to many significant discoveries about the migration and ways of life of ancient peoples throughout the world. Ancient Egyptians believed that the soul remained with the human body after a person died. Egyptian rulers and their families were buried in tombs with gold, tools, food, and animals to help them on their journey to the afterlife. The Kavza Cave in Israel is the site of the earliest known human burial. The remains of several adults and children were found, including a boy buried with a deer antler placed across his chest. At the bottom of a cenote in eastern Mexico, archaeologists found the remains of a young woman who died more than 13,000 years ago. Her DNA is a close match to many indigenous people living in Central and North America today. For tens of thousands of years, people in every part of the world have been carrying out rituals and ceremonies as part of their burial practices. While there were tens of millions living in the Americas in 1491, the population soon after people arrived would only have been in the thousands. It's not surprising that the discovery of an ancestor from this period is an extremely rare event. 13,000 years ago, a teenage girl in the Yucatan fell into a deep hole and died. Over the millennia, sea levels rose and water filled the cave. In the 1990s, a group of underwater archaeologists found Naya, as they named her, in 40 meters of water deep in a cenote near Tulumba. Testing Naya's DNA confirmed that she is a direct ancestor of the indigenous people living in North and Central America today. When the human genome was sequenced early in the 21st century, it opened the door for geneticists to study the biological blueprint of human beings. 
The data collected from studying the DNA found in human cells can be used to trace a person's ancestry. By comparing the DNA of modern indigenous people with that of ancient people, we can see how our ancestors migrated and settled down during the past several thousand years. It's using your DNA to look at similarities between different populations. So there are many different ways we can do it. We can look at your maternal lineage, we can look at your paternal lineage, or we can look at everything, which is uh, the whole genome. And in that instance, we're sort of looking at the entirety of your father's contribution, your mother's, and all of your ancestors. This is just another way to think about our past and figure out how we were related to each other. We are all really connected, and our genetics is telling us that too. To have a really rigorous study, you want to have ancient samples because with the ancient samples, you can tell, date it back really accurately how long ago did they live and what did they eat and also where were they. If we're looking at ancient DNA, we're only looking at the people that they actually were able to extract DNA from. These are only 50 people, but there were thousands of people at that time. And there are very few samples that have been included from the United States and also from Canada. The majority of them have been from South America and Central America. What does DNA from the ancient ancestors we've discovered tell us about our origins? Actually, the closest um, uh, relations to natives in the Americas is from sort of Central Asia. So we know that we migrated in, but a lot of people have questions about, was it just one big migration? Did it happen at multiple times? Did we actually migrate and stay in one spot or did we just spread all over the Americas? And how many migrations occurred? DNA can only tell us so much. We need to know actually when these occurred, where they occurred. So if a group split off from another group, uh, just by looking at DNA, we can sort of make a guess, but we won't actually know where it occurred or when it occurred unless we have archaeological data. The study of DNA from ancient peoples requires a culturally sensitive approach and ongoing consultation with indigenous communities. While archaeology and genetics may seem at odds with our indigenous origin stories, they all contribute to the overall history of our peoples. Going back to my creation story that I grew up with, it was a journey because I think a lot of creation stories are journeys and that's how I sort of reconcile it with the genetics. We're talking about population migration our ancestors, they went on this huge, long journey for thousands of years, and I'm a product of that. So not only did they have to journey across continents and oceans, but we they also had to fight disease. And once European contact came, so many of our people died, our ancestors. But we here as living people are actually the products of all of that uh, that long journey. Mm-hmm. 
when Christopher Columbus first encountered indigenous people in our traditional territory more than 500 years ago, he mistakenly called us Los Indios. He thought he'd found a new route to India, but he'd actually arrived in a world unlike anywhere else on Earth. A world that was home to thousands of distinct nations and millions of people. Today, we keep our history alive through our stories and traditional knowledge. And we stay connected to our ancestors through the material culture they left behind before 1491. We are the first peoples of the Americas. We have been here from the beginning. Our ancestors navigated by the wind and stars, crossing vast oceans and mountain ranges, searching for new lands. Over thousands of years, our ancestors became astronomers and architects, philosophers and scientists, artists and inventors. We created distinct societies and built vast trade systems that covered two continents. In 1492, our world was changed forever, but we did not disappear. Today, the languages and teachings of our ancestors remain. And these are the untold stories of the Americas before Columbus. We've been taught that the Western Hemisphere before 1491 was a sparsely populated wilderness virtually untouched by humans. But this pristine world was nothing more than a myth. In reality, there were millions of indigenous people living throughout the Americas, and the majority... They had a different title, Rama, but then it went on from there, so I don't know. I'm just going to... I gather... Yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> It's, I don't know. It's all it, in the same three hour. It sounds like the, the beginning, but uh, okay. Already lived in large cities and towns. To provide for these large urban centers, innovative techniques were invented to modify and manipulate the environment. Our ancestors used fire to clear the land. They constructed canals that turned deserts into productive farmland. They built terraces on steep mountainsides to grow crops. And in Amazonia, 
They manufactured a soil so fertile it transformed an entire ecosystem. These impressive modifications to the environment were driven not only by the needs of a growing population, but by an ancient respect and connection to the land and water. Like a lot of indigenous metaphors, uh, convey whole bodies of thought and philosophy and understanding. And this is many times not captured in uh, an anthropological record or a archaeological record or historical record, uh, because this, this is really the thoughts that guide the people. We have relationships to water, which is the most basic elemental relationship, because water is life, you know, in all cultures, in all traditions. And so we have a lot of metaphors that uh, reflect and that represent and that symbolize uh, water in all of its various uh, stages from from uh, water sitting in, in, a, in a lake or a pond or, or moving in a stream or a river to water that is cycling in clouds and coming down as rain and snow. And so all of those uh, forms of water uh, are sacred in the context of indigenous thinking. Covering an area as large as the continental United States, Amazonia holds 10% of the world's plants, birds, animals, and insects. It also had an indigenous population that numbered in the millions in 1491. So that idea that the Amazon is a tropical, pristine rainforest is probably very recent. Rainforests grow up on the top of places that used to be settled before. If you could go back a thousand years ago, we'd see a different landscape than we see today. About 2% of the land lies within the floodplain of the Amazon River and its many branches. And the soil here is fertile. The Amazon comes from the Andes, brings lots of like uh, nutrients with its waters, and then it floods every year. It brings nutrients to the floodplains. So these soils are very rich. But the majority of the soil in Amazonia is too acidic for extensive agricultural use. Normally, Amazon soils are not very rich and very acidic. The pH is not very good. Tropical soil, very fast, will lose its fertility because of rain, leaching. In the places where the land was less fertile, indigenous people engineered a soil called terra preta, or dark earth. Made from broken pottery, plant waste, fish bones, and charcoal, terra preta has been found in village sites that date back 7,000 years, about the time that pottery was first produced in the Amazon. In Guyana, they go back to 5,000 years, even more. In, in, in southern Amazon, they go back to 7,000 years. What's interesting, though, is that terra preta, if, if the idea that they're used for farming, for improving the conditions, natural conditions of the soils, were valid, Traditional knowledge of farming, plant cultivation, and soil management is passed down from generation to generation among indigenous people. Terra Preta has been found throughout the upland areas of Amazonia, 
often far away from rivers. Developing a way to make these soils fertile and productive for agroforestry was a matter of survival. But the abundance of terra preta soils next to village sites that were already in fertile areas has raised many questions about its origins. It's interesting because we're finding also terra preta soils in areas which are very fertile. The essential ingredient in terra preta is charcoal. The people who made this soil used a slash and char method to create the charcoal. This causes less carbon emissions and produces a more stable product than slash and burn. And these terapeutic soils are very productive. They're really, really rich and productive soils. They allow one to cultivate in the same spot for many years. Some of these orchards or this you know, managed forests, there was no need for farming. Those are very highly productive environments. That entails a different relationship with people and their surrounding landscape. Villages were often situated in rings. And while the center of such a ring would be barren, on the outskirts of each village were middens where food waste was deposited. The people who developed and used this rich soil were not farmers in the traditional sense, but horticulturalists. They simultaneously cultivated domesticated and wild vegetables, fruit, grains, and trees. The terra preta soil found in these villages may not have been intentionally manufactured in the same way as the upland sites. It may simply be the result of thousands of years of man-made organic waste. One would expect to find those soils away from the settlement areas. But what we do find is that in most cases, the sites, distance, are, the soils are in the very same place where people used to live. In order to live well in the Amazon, one has to really be aware of the wealth of information, and it takes really very sophisticated societies. The ancient Amazonians discovered a way to sustain a growing population despite having acidic soils in much of their territories. The ability to engineer the soil to meet the needs of the people is one of the most significant environmental achievements of our ancestors. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is investing in education to deliver the high-quality education New Mexicans deserve. Her administration created universal pre-K... Throughout North America, indigenous people depended on access to hunting grounds as well as distant communities for trade. 
It's quite clear that people used to travel very, very long distances. It seems incredibly difficult, but people knew how to travel back then. Communities were often hundreds of kilometers apart, with forests, mountains, and prairies in between. Finding consistent and predictable routes of travel year-round was a necessity. The answer was a natural highway system embedded in the surrounding environment. Whether flowing in summer or frozen solid in winter, the rivers of North America were a dependable transportation route for indigenous people. The Dene people could travel thousands of kilometers on frozen rivers because they had such highly developed snowshoe technology. Traditional Dene snowshoes are still better than uh, commercial snowshoes in many ways. They're designed for your feet. They're designed to deal with um, the exigencies of the climate in your region. You pick particular uh, uh, wood and sinew for them. They're sewn in different ways so that they adapt to different snow conditions, and you might carry more than one pair for different kinds of snow. And then, of course, in, in the summer, traveling thousands of kilometers along many of our huge rivers, the Mississippi, the Yukon, the Mackenzie, these rivers are enormously long, and you can travel on them quite easily throughout most of the year. The preferred vessel for transportation along North American waterways and coastlines was the canoe. The canoe was always central because we're a marine-based people. The, the rivers and the oceans were our highways. So we needed the canoe. So we became very skilled canoe makers. To adapt to the stormy weather and strong currents of the Pacific Ocean, the peoples of northwest North America carved heavier canoes from cedar. If we know how the waters are here in the northwest coast, you could lose yourself out there. While some coastal vessels were smaller and more suited for shoreline fishing, Others were ocean-going canoes carved from massive logs that required exceptional craftsmanship to build. They had various types of canoes depending on what duty it served or what purpose it served. So you'd have canoes for traveling to potlatches, canoes for, for gathering foods and medicines and plants, canoes for warring, canoes for whaling, canoes for fishing. And so you had various types of canoes that were carved for a specific purpose. So variations to that canoe existed. Inland water travel required a different style of boat. Using the same basic vessel, the canoes of indigenous people living inland were smaller and lighter to accommodate long stretches of river or lake travel. These canoes were typically constructed from the barks of trees. Sturdy enough to withstand river rapids, birch bark canoes were also light enough to portage or carry long distances between waterways. People thought nothing of um, packing up with anything that they could carry and then going off for six months or a year to go travel. Um, to go visit uh, distant, distant relatives or just to go explore. There's absolutely no question that people would get around all over, all the time. Man-made earthworks created an artificial topography throughout North America before 1491. These mound structures were built over thousands of years. One of the largest concentrations is located on the Mississippi River near present-day St. Louis. 
the ancient city of Cahokia at 120 mounds, with the largest known as Monk's Mound. This massive earthwork covered five and a half hectares and was 30 meters high. To construct this mound, thousands of workers carried more than a million square meters of earth in woven bags to the site. For my own tribe, we have a story about a mound site in Mississippi called Naniwaya, and we came up from from below. We came up um, out of that mound, according to one story, or we followed uh, two brothers, um, Chata and Chiksa, uh, from the west. Uh, we came, we traveled east, and um, finally stopped at a place and, and built that mound, and we carried the bones of our ancestors with us and built the mound. Either story, it talks about this one place that's very significant in um, Choctaw tradition, and it places us in Mississippi, so it tells us where how we came to be in that area. And the stories tell us about our relationship with other tribes, the, the Chickasaw and the Cherokee, among others. Um, the science actually fits in well with that if you think about people moving from the west into the east and if you think about mound sites in the um the southeast that, that frequently function as burial mounds so there are mounds that have human remains in them mounds are also part of the creation stories of indigenous peoples a large concentration of ceremonial mounds are located throughout central and eastern north america as family groups form societies and settled into villages and cities, the practice of burial mounds expanded. We can follow the evolution, if you will, of, of mound construction from 300 AD on up. We get small mounds, we get a little bit larger, we get mortuary mounds, we get mounds that have houses on top. So we can see an, an in situ development. Around 2,000 years ago, the mound-building tradition intensified throughout the region and resulted in ceremonial centers along rivers and lakes. The mounds were spiritual gathering places where people would travel to make offerings and bury their family members and leaders. So we can recognize that at one point in time, there was a large group of people that probably all spoke the same language all agreed to serve under whatever political structure was in place. And then after a time of stress, probably during the, the, the little ice age in 12, 1300s, people started realizing that they could no longer exist within one large area that they had to, to pull apart again. But we also get some indications of influence from the South. The first pottery that occurs in North America is in Florida, and then it disappears. And then it comes again from in the Southwest and it moves across. But I think one of the important things is for North American tribal people to recognize that we, our cultures did develop in place and whether we had some influence or not, these are North American cultures and that we don't have to rely on someone from coming from somewhere else to help us move forward. Cultures throughout the world constructed earthen mounds for religious and ceremonial purposes. People would travel long distances to bury and honor their dead at these sites. The 
Kurgan people, who originated in the Black Sea region, buried their dead in deep shafts topped by mounds. The name Kurgan in Latvian means mound builder. Kofan are distinctive keyhole-shaped structures that were used as burial tombs in Japan. They range from several to 400 meters long. Thousands of burial mounds still exist throughout the Great Lakes region from the Hopewell era. Sacred objects and personal belongings were part of the burial ritual. In every part of the world, mounds and other man-made structures were used to honor the places where ancestors were buried. The steep mountainsides high Commanding officer called you one of the best pilots he's ever seen. It must be hard being the uh, naval aviator. The toughest job there is. Based on the incredible true story. It'll take you how many times? It's high altitude and cool climate of the Andes would seem a most inhospitable environment for humans to thrive, let alone agriculture. And looking at the American hemisphere, we are looking at a region that is highly mountainous, very fractured, part of what we call the neovolcanic axis. These regions of Bolivia and Peru have been home to successive indigenous societies over thousands of years. And the vertical topography didn't stop them from developing one of the most productive farming regions in the world. In places like Lake Titicaca and Sacred Valley of Peru, People began to sculpt the landscape into a series of stepped flat plateaus to make the mountainsides more accessible for agriculture. The same tendency occurred throughout the Americas, but perhaps the best known such terraces are those of groups like the Inca. They have terraces from the formative times, that is probably 1,000 years before Christ. By the time the Inca civilization came into existence 600 years ago, Terraces already covered more than one million hectares of mountainous land in the Andean mountains. As the terraces became larger and more structured, laborers built them with expertly cut stone, sand, gravel, and soil. In some cases, you have the leveling of an area, uh, the soils are pushed away, and then agaves and other plants are planted along the, the boundary. And then through the course of time, these become formal masonry structures.
harvesting corn. Those systems were among the most sophisticated, uh, I would I would contend, given that not only were these terraces often cut from stone that was easily fitted, and entire hillsides were terraced, but in order to prepare the terrace, soils were basically cleared, uh, the area was cut, and then gravel was placed in the basins of these terraced walls. The terrace's stone walls and multi-layered soil were designed to prevent the leaching of nutrients from the soil, retain heat during the cold mountain nights, and provide a natural gravity-fed watering system. This formed a kind of uh, uh, like a carbon filtration system in which clays and other soils and then rich soils for agriculture were placed over that and the entire terrace packed such that it could sustain crop year after year. know that they are cultivating potatoes and in some islands of the Titicaca Lake they grow a corn. Also they have uh, quinoa. Because of the nature of the clay soils in the region, uh, Peru for instance, those soils uh, were almost impervious to erosion. So this allowed those terraces to be maintained through the course of centuries. And even today, many of the terraces built as much as a thousand years ago are still in use. By literally moving mountains, the Andean people of South America manipulated their environment to create one of the world's greatest engineering achievements. I just wanted to say that what they're not saying is that the ETs came and helped them build those terraces and those walls. Pyramids, uh, too. Yeah, all the pyramids. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why these folks, you know, aren't saying that, but whatever. <laughs> well, the ads are Thousands ridiculous. Of- Oh, it is. Keep going. Farmers have been sculpting mountains and hillsides to create usable land to grow crops. Rice, potatoes, and yams are some of the grains and vegetables that are grown on terraced farmland. In Southeast Asia, farmers grew rice on terraces that were otherwise unusable hillsides. They used a system of ditches and canals to move rainwater between platforms. Pond fields were constructed on hillsides in Polynesia a thousand years ago. They were designed to produce larger yields of yams and taro for a growing population. Indigenous farmers first built terraces in the hilly terrain around Lake Titicaca more than 2,000 years ago. By the time the Inca farmers were working the land 600 years ago, there were 20,000 square kilometers of terraces in the Andean mountains. 
terraces offered farmers larger amounts of arable land, which in turn provided food to support the growing populations in nearby urban centers. During the long winter months, the Arctic region becomes an endless expanse of snow and ice. Further south in central North America, the prairie summer landscape is a never-ending sea of grass. With few naturally occurring landmarks to guide travelers and hunters, both environments can be daunting and even dangerous places to travel through. Ancient peoples have erected stone markers on the landscape for thousands of years. In North America, two of the most prominent stone structures are the Inukshuk in the Arctic and subarctic and the Medicine Wheel on the Central Plains. A lot of the Inukshuks that we have have been there for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. The Inuktitut word Inukshuk means... And these stone structures look like the dolmen structures in Russia. What does that look like? They're like these stone structures yeah, where... Yeah, but you got to describe it because a lot of people that they're can't like see. They're huge square blocks of stone that have entrances underneath and uh, there's rocks piled up on the top of them and they, the dolmen structures actually create a portal. They're kind of like the mounds that the mound builders built and you could go in there and you can go into a alternate reality. There's no place to go in on that one. On the other side of the stone there is. There's an opening? Yeah. They're not showing that. Only one person could fit in that. Yeah, it's kind of like a meditation cell where you go in there. Built and you, of stone. Yeah, and you mm-hmm. go in there and you teleport where you want to go. Oh, that. <laughs> that too. Well, they're talking about that. <laughs> Put no. some on drama. It's one that looks like a person. From Alaska to Greenland, these anthropomorphic stone structures have been built for more than 2,000 years. Inukshuks have many purposes, including keeping track of seal caught during hunting expeditions. If you catch a seal sometime in the summer, it sinks. And if you want to retrieve that seal and you don't have anything to retrieve it with, uh, you go ashore and you put up a couple of Inukshuks to point to exactly where the seal went down, you know, so uh, you can get back in that water and line up, you know, and you'll find your seal. And that's, um, you know, so we made the little ones just to point where, uh, you know, where our seal had gone down or some animal had gone down. Another purpose for an Inukshuk is to serve as a guiding landmark on the landscape. You grow up uh, living there, you know, and all these Inukshuks are everywhere. You get to recognize them, you know. They help you navigate out on the land. In 1973, we went on a canoe trip down the Ferguson River, and it's about 160 miles long. And um, at one point, we were completely lost. You know, we had two canoes and four people, and we're paddling around this huge lake that had twice as many islands as there were supposed to be. And by the end of the day, we had gone nowhere, you know, still looking for the way out. And 
So late in the evening, um, we decided we'd stop and, you know, spend the night and look for the way out the next day. So he saw Inukshuk way off in the distance, and I said, let's go camp there. And so we paddled around all these islands, got up to the Inukshuk and put up our camp. And before I turned in, I said, you know, I'm going to go up there to the Inukshuk and take a look around. And um, so I climbed up and got, you know, stood beside the Inukshuk, and there was the river that we had been looking for all day. After that, every time we got lost, we would just find an Inukshuk on, on the horizon, and we would paddle, paddle there, and it led the way all the way up, and that's why we navigated the, the Ferguson River. The Inukshuk is one of the most enduring symbols in the Arctic of ancient Inuit life. Found in various locations across the central plains of North America are low-lying man-made stone circles known as medicine wheels. Medicine wheels are enigmatic. They come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are effigies of uh, turtles or uh, other animals. Some of them are effigies of humans. Uh, but what they all have in common is uh, some relationship to the landscape. Medicine wheels had many possible purposes, such as ceremonial gathering places or as a place of cosmological alignment. Medicine wheels may also have had more practical uses. There has been some uh, attempt to try and find calendrical devices of astronomical alignments uh, from them. Myself, I'm skeptical of that area. In fact, I think the, uh, the better explanation is that they are geographical markers. Wherever we find medicine wheels, they are usually on a very prominent butte, so you have a good view of the surrounding landscape. But there are also areas where major rivers are easiest to cross, you know, like the Majorville Medicine Wheel is located right near Blackfoot Crossing. Uh, which is uh, the best place to cross the Bow River. Uh, and when people don't have bridges and they have to uh, wade through the water, this is crucial knowledge. I think in, in actual fact that these, uh, what we call medicine wheels, are not so much uh, calendrical devices as they are mnemonic devices for the cognitive geography on the plains. One of the oldest stone structures in Central North America is located in Blackfoot Nation territory. Nation territory in southern Alberta. At the center of the Majorville Medicine Wheel is a nine-meter central cairn connected by 28 stone spokes to an outer ring. People didn't just build this at one time. It was a slow accretion of uh, the central cairn and then also creating the outer rings and sometimes the spokes that joined the cairn and the outer ring. Besides being a significant geographical marker on the landscape, indigenous people traveled to Majorville for ceremonies and gatherings. Majorville Medicine Wheel, at the very bottom of the cairn, that the artifacts came from a time that is closer to 5,000 years ago. And they discovered uh, a lot of artifacts, like projectile points. 
But they also found other things like uh, phalanges or finger bones of people. Yeah, and again, that was a very common thing where people would, uh, if somebody is grieving, they would cut off a, a tip of a finger mm. and then leave that at the, at the medicine wheel. Recently, the University of Calgary wanted to repatriate those artifacts back to the Blackfoot community. Uh, but Blackfoot people say, no, we don't want those because when somebody left an artifact at the medicine wheel, they were leaving their troubles with that artifact. So if you come along and you take that artifact today, all you're doing is taking somebody else's troubles with you. They have ceremonial functions in that people go there to leave their troubles and make offerings. But they also serve as geographical markers when people are traveling across the prairies. As one of the oldest continually used ceremonial sites in the Americas, Majorville suggests that the Plains cultures were strongly rooted to a traditional homeland and continue to maintain their sacred gathering place for thousands of years. The ancestral Pueblo people have lived in southwest North America for more than 10,000 years. To survive in this semi-arid region with its seasonally high temperatures, it was crucial to find a way to control the rivers to irrigate land for farming and to provide a year-round supply of water for cooking and drinking. Given the requirements of living in this kind of uh, landscape, this kind of, of environment, uh, the essential uh, foundation uh, for uh, developing communities in uh, this area, because it's, uh, it is a desert, uh, was your access to water. Known for their multiple-story, multi-family adobe apartment complexes, the ancestral Pueblo were also master engineers when it came to manipulating and controlling the region's limited sources of water. Beginning about 1400 years ago, the agriculturally based peoples in the Phoenix Valley designed and built an advanced irrigation system of canals and reservoirs known as the Hohokam Canal. The main sources of water for the canals were rivers that originate in nearby mountain ranges. And the Salt River were the ones that delivered the water or brought the water. And it was through these irrigation canals that they were able to acquire farm. The largest canal measured about 6 meters in depth and more than 20 meters wide. The longest canal was 32 kilometers long. The Hohokam Canal System irrigated more than 40,000 hectares of farmland. A great deal of physical effort, a great deal of planning, cooperation, and everybody had a common goal. That was to achieve that, that uh, agricultural way of life. The Hohokam Canal really represents a application of uh, the communal mind in both uh, the construction of the canals and also the conceptualization of the canals, the essential way you survive it was through the community and through participation in community work. It was a realization of the part of the community as a whole that these structures were necessary, again, to, to reach towards that goal of the good life through the production of food in ways that allowed for the people to grow communities to grow. 
The Hohokam Canal system that flowed from the Salt and Gila rivers transformed the desert landscape and supported a prosperous agriculturally based society. It was as much an engineering achievement as it was a life-giving source of year-round water. Although a long drought likely forced the people in the Phoenix Valley to move, the footprint of this elaborate water system is still visible today. The Hohokam were one of many indigenous peoples in the Americas who developed sophisticated irrigation systems. In northern Peru, rivers flowing from the Andean Mountains brought water to the semi-arid Norte Chico Valley, where tens of thousands of people lived in cities between 4,000 and 5,500 years ago. Irrigation canals carried water to fields where cotton and food crops were grown. In Mesoamerica, the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan was built on a man-made island in Lake Texcoco. An intricate system of dikes, canals, and reservoirs were built. This supplied the hundreds of thousands of people in the city with fresh water for drinking, bathing, gardening, and fish farms. A few thousand years after humans started domesticating wild vegetables and grains, they began to devise ways to manage and divert water to irrigate fields and orchards. Irrigation and water control systems were common throughout the Indian subcontinent for thousands of years. In Sri Lanka, a massive artificial lake called Parakrama Samudra, built 1600 years ago, is still in use today. One of the oldest irrigation systems in the world was built 6,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. Rainwater and runoff from the mountains was caught and held in dams, then diverted to irrigate farmland. Valley was transformed from a desert into a highly productive agricultural region through the building of an 800 kilometer long canal system that irrigated over 40,000 hectares of land. Canals, artificial lakes, and dams built thousands of years ago form the ancient footprint of irrigation systems still in use throughout the world today. Throughout the Americas, indigenous peoples extensively altered and manipulated the environment, sometimes changing entire ecosystems in the process. What we see in eastern woodlands is intensive modification of the landscape over thousands of years. Archaeological research has currently shown that the development of agriculture in that region occurred a lot earlier than previously believed. We are, as archaeologists, as researchers, just coming to realize and acknowledge how the land was shaped and formed. And we tend to call this anthropomorphic shaping of the landscape. 6,000 years ago, we do find the occurrence of stone tools that have been polished and shaped and have an edge. And we can we believe that they were used to chop down trees to clear the land. The earliest plant cultivation in the eastern woodlands of North America began about 4,000 years ago. Among the earliest crops were sunflowers, goosefoot, and squash, 
Later, maize, beans, and nuts were grown widely in eastern North America. People in the southeast ate fairly similar types of things,、uh, and then you move across, and people live differently because、um, you know there are different cultures, different tribes, different communities. After the introduction of maize about 1,000 years ago, eastern North America was transformed into a patchwork of agricultural fields and orchards. This intensive production of crops was the result of a new organizational structure for farming, and better tools made from antler, bone, and stone. Throughout the eastern region, farmers cultivated a variety of nuts, including pecans, acorns, walnuts, and chestnuts. Forests were even designed and modified to attract animals for hunting. Eventually, they would plant the crops. They would create gardens. The gardens actually brought in animals that they could use for food. And so, as they started creating these gardens, they did cut down the trees. They would open expanses up. They also used the the trees for building. They built homes. They also used them for fires in the houses, for heating, for cooking. So they would open up landscapes. It was a new balance of nature and farming, completely manufactured by indigenous peoples. As people in many parts of the world began leaving behind a hunter-gatherer lifestyle in favor of farming, it became necessary to clear land. This led to the development of cultivated farmland in areas that were once forests and wild grasslands. Around 10,000 years ago, in the Middle East, people progressed from harvesting wild grains and hunting to cultivating wheat and barley and domesticating livestock. This change to a farming lifestyle ensured a supply of food throughout the year and led to the establishment of permanent villages. Broom corn and foxtail millet were first domesticated in northern China 6,000 years ago. In southern and central China, one of the first domesticated crops was rice. Indigenous people in eastern North America have been cultivating plants and grains for thousands of years. To grow three of the most important crops—maize, beans, and squash—they cleared vast areas of forests using fires and tools. As hunter-gatherers started domesticating animals and growing annual crops, farming villages appeared. Permanent settlements required an ever-increasing agricultural land base, and this led to larger urban centers. New Nariva Sleep helps me get quality sleep for quality mornings. Beach again. Nariva, think bigger. As communities in North America became larger and more centralized, the need for stable food sources increased. This led to man-made changes to the landscape to open up land for agricultural and hunting purposes. An expedient way to manage the landscape was to carry out controlled burns. 
fire is like indispensable and and I really you know I, I think this goes right back to when our ancient ancestors first discovered fire and how useful it was in several parts of North America indigenous people used fire one to clear land to create agricultural plots and of course burning of that landscape enhanced the soil for a certain amount of time on the west side of the continent people literally burnt parts of the forest and what this did was encourage other kinds of plants to grow notably berries which could also be mass harvested to support large populations on the central plains grasslands were cleared with fire to encourage new plant growth in the spring this in turn attracted large herd animals like buffalo Fire was also used to drive buffalo to certain hunting locations. When Blackfoot people were uh, preparing a buffalo jump, they knew in advance where they were going to hold their buffalo jump. So they would send somebody there in the fall time to burn the grass in the gathering basin, and by burning the grass, you put the seeds back into the ground, but also you give a little bit of uh, fertilizer with the ash. So in the springtime. that's where the grass is going to be greenest first and so that's going to attract grazing animals like bison a buffalo jump didn't just happen it was very purposeful you know people uh created the conditions that would ensure success controlled burns generated higher yields for farmers and hunters and brought about significant changes to the natural ecosystem Indigenous peoples before 1491 impacted the natural environment through agriculture, earthworks, urban development, water management, controlled burning, and deforestation. These were innovations that were driven by the need to provide food, clothing, and shelter for a constantly growing population in the Americas. All of these adaptations created an artificial landscape and had a profound effect on the climate, soil, water and wildlife in the Americas. Today we have a powerful tradition of land stewardship that evolved from these ancient technologies. ancestors navigated by the wind and stars crossing vast oceans and mountain ranges every time they knew a new section they do that at the beginning of it that's why you're recognizing it but then they go further so okay here we go yeah i mean you could fast forward a little bit right but i don't know i don't know when it's going to be the new part so just let it go Just like oh. Um this might be I'm just looking 
No, they're talking about something different here. Okay. Searching for new lands. Over thousands of years, our ancestors became astronomers and architects, philosophers and scientists, artists and inventors. We created distinct societies and built vast trade systems that covered two continents. In 1492, our world was changed forever, but we did not disappear. Today, the languages and teachings of our ancestors remain. And these are the untold stories of the Americas before Columbus. Throughout history, people in every part of the world hunted, fished, and gathered wild plants for survival. Over time, these foods became a central part of the cultural identity of each nation. In the Americas, our ancestors harvested fish, seals, and whales, and hunted mammoth, bison, and other animals. And we adapted more species of wild grasses, vegetables, and fruit than anywhere else on Earth. But no single food has had a greater influence on the history of our ancestors than maize. For thousands of years, maize has permeated every aspect of Maya culture, from the practical to the spiritual. Not only is maize the foundation of their creation stories, it is the heart and soul of the Maya civilization. In Maya oral and written history, the gods created the first humans from cornmeal after attempts to make people out of mud and wood failed. The maize god was referred to as the first father, and the maize goddess is associated with fertility, the moon, and new corn. Maize appears in the most sacred of Maya ceremonies and in the simplest acts of everyday life. Maize has nourished and inspired the Maya people for close to 4,000 years. It really is a very integral part of people's lives, everyday life um, from, you know, again, providing them with nutrition, but also spiritually is really important. I mean, this is what has shaped people's lives and the history of people, culture. Not only does it include, you know, our beliefs about creation, for example, it has allowed people to survive to this day. The Maya people didn't actually develop the maize plant. That honor goes to the indigenous farmers in the Balsas Valley in Mexico, who initiated one of the world's earliest forms of agriculture by cultivating a wild grass known as teosinte which became the maize we know today. After each growing season, 
farmers selected the plants with the most desirable attributes and planted their kernels. In looking at the evolution of maize, we have a, a history here, beginning with Diosinte, that extends back some 8,000 years. Maize could well be the first act of genetic engineering in human history. Between six and 7,000 years ago, maize had traveled to the Andean and Amazonian regions of South America. We begin to find maize moving over these ancient routes early on, so we know that foodstuffs were critical. Maize was also easy to transport and store, which the Maya used to their advantage. Considering the importance of corn for people's uh, diet, I'm sure it uh, was a valuable commodity, valuable food to trade. How do you get those products when you yourself don't grow maize? You trade beads, you trade shell, you trade obsidian, and you get the product. As the Mayan population grew, so did the need to generate food on an industrial scale. One method used by the Mayans to mass-produce maize was known as slash and burn. So that would mean that, you know, you live in an area, you cut down the forest, you grow corn, and then... Uh, after a while, that soil might not be able to provide for you anymore, so you move on to another place and you cut it down and, and do the same thing. Other agricultural methods were adopted as well, including stepped terrace farming along hillsides and raised farm beds in marshes. They would take um, weeds or plants growing in the water and would mound them to as a source of uh, nutrients. Crop diversification was also essential to the health of both the people and the land itself. And maize was grown alongside chili peppers, squash, and beans. Corn is, it requires a lot of nutrients. And so beans is actually a, a plant that provides nitrogen into the soil. So, um, so the beans help the corn to grow. You obviously need to have these crops grow together so they provide for each other or help one another to grow better. By using a variety of methods for growing maize, the Maya developed intricate agricultural infrastructures in Mesoamerica. As maize spread throughout the Americas, it contributed to the development and growth of the Inca, Aztec, ancestral Pueblo, and many other indigenous civilizations. Okay, 
As Mesoamerican civilizations rose and fell over the millennia, there is one thing that remained constant, the central role that maize held in the diet traditions and mythology of the people. Today, maize is one of the world's most widely grown crops. Its development remains one of the most impressive acts of agricultural achievement. 10,000 years ago, people in three different regions in the world were domesticating wild vegetables and grains. Rice in China, wheat in the Middle East, and maize in central Mexico were three founding crops. Rice was first cultivated in China and grown on terraced hillsides. In classical Chinese languages, the word for agriculture is the same as the word for rice. Wheat was first cultivated in Mesopotamia and is thought to be the first grain to be domesticated by humans. 5,000 years ago, the Egyptians made the first bread by adding yeast to wheat flour. Maize was first cultivated in Mexico and within 8,000 years had spread to every part of South America and much of North America. Maize can be ground into a flour, the cobs burned as a fuel, and the husks woven into mats and baskets. Today, rice, wheat, and maize are three of the most widely grown crops in the world. The potato is to the Andean region of South America what maize is to Mesoamerica. A stable source of food and essential to the cultural identity of the people. Unlike corn, the potato grows at high altitudes and can be left in the ground for a year or more. The potato was first cultivated between eight and 10,000 years ago near Lake Titicaca, which straddles the borders of Peru and Bolivia. Over time, indigenous farmers created more than 5,000 varieties of potato, each with its own unique flavor and color. From the Andean point of view, color is also in, uh, important for this for these people because e each kind of potato have a social role. The planting of everything in the Andes have a, a powerful uh, ritual. It's, it's, it's very entangled with uh, many things that they are doing all the time. The communities, the real communities in the Andean highlands, they don't get the distinction between the ritual, political, or economic things. For these people, it's almost the same. The planting of the potato each season was accompanied by prayers performed by priests. Farmers carried out a planting ritual that involved the men breaking the ground and the women planting the potatoes. 
The potato is especially adaptable to the climates of the Andes, as it grows well in the cooler, higher mountain ecosystem. Using the agricultural process of terrace farming, the Andean people sculpted the sides of mountains to create flat sections of land to grow potatoes and other crops. Like maize, potatoes were hardy and easy to transport. But unlike maize, which traveled from Mesoamerica to South America soon after its development, the potato did not arrive in Mexico until about 500 years ago. From there, it was traded with other indigenous communities, and eventually made its way to the northwest coast of North America, and as far north as Alaska. Cultures in、uh, Mexico,、um, along the、uh, along the western coast of Mexico, all had potatoes in some way or another. It's only when you get into、um, the United States region that potatoes start to、um, completely disappear, and yet they reappear up in Washington. And in Oregon, simply called clinket potatoes. There are old potatoes. They're the ones that everybody used to have before we got these big ones. A potato research lab in Wisconsin sequenced the genes of the、uh, Cassan potato and the clinket、uh, Maria's potato, and they found that the nearest relatives of them were the Ozette potato, that was、um, known from the Maha area and Ozette、um, on the、uh, outer coast of Olympic Peninsula in Washington. Then the next nearest relatives are in Mexico. It remains a mystery as to how long potatoes have been grown along the northwest coast of North America. The earliest explorers said explicitly that they saw people with gardens、um, in the northern northwest coast. It could have been the very earliest Spanish ships that introduced this, but it's hard to see because the Spanish didn't spend very much time up in Clinka country. They came, they named things, they stopped, said hello in Yakutat, and then left. I'm of the opinion that these are probably pre-European. If potatoes that originated in Mexico reached the west coast of North America before the arrival of European seafarers, how did they make the journey to Alaska? If we know that a, Clinket, a couple of young Clinket men could paddle all the way down from Wrangell in southeast Alaska to Fort Vancouver on the Columbia River, there's no reason that people wouldn't have traveled as far south as California to pick up potatoes and bring them north. And what's more extraordinary is that in the intervening centuries, we've maintained the exact same potato line, and I have it growing back at home. Maize and potatoes were integral to the ancient economies of the Americas, and are still vital components of the world's food supply today. Drying and storing plants and vegetables offered ancient peoples a year-round food supply and valuable trade products. Coffee is one of the world's most popular beverages, but its ancient history remains a mystery. It originally grew wild in Ethiopia, and about 500 years ago, coffee beans were being exported to northern Africa and Europe. Tea traces its origins to medicinal use by the emperors of China. 
it eventually became a popular beverage throughout Asia and the world. Potatoes were first cultivated in raised gardens in the high altitudes in Peru and Bolivia. Inca farmers developed a dried potato product called chimu that could be stored for more than a year. Tea, coffee, and potatoes were an important part of ancient diets and economies, and they still are today. The population in Amazonia before 1491 numbered in the millions. People lived in small coastal villages as well as large cities along the tributaries of the Amazon River. The wild plants and small game that were harvested from the rainforest could not sustain this growing population. Indigenous people needed to find a way to produce high-yield plants. Plant domestication is as old here as it is in places like China or Mesopotamia. But these guys, these people here in the New World, they were like domestic. They're domesticated with squash very early, chili peppers, and then maize, corn. And we know there are many Amazonian plants, like cacao, for instance, that was so domesticated in the Amazon. For thousands of years, people living in the Amazon River Basin have practiced a form of agriculture that led to the development of dozens of varieties of vegetables and fruits. Unlike potatoes and maize, this type of plant cultivation didn't involve the intensive clearing of traditional style farming. Instead, they practiced agroforestry, which is the mixing of wild and cultivated fruits, vegetables, and nuts in a forested environment. These people, they're eating all of corn, for instance, but they're also eating palms, and Brazil nuts, technically they're wild plants. They're not domesticated. But I mean, they didn't become farmers. They were generalist hunter-gatherers that had domesticated plants in their backyards for thousands of years. Unlike the farming practices in Mesoamerica and the Andes, agroforestry required less intensive labor to prepare the land and harvest the crops. So traditionally, how would an archeology span look at this? That archeology span would say, oh, these this people, they were incipient farmers. Traditionally, how scientists would look at that, oh, these guys are backwards. They're not farmers. They haven't achieved. Like, they haven't climbed to another step or another layer in cultural evolution. That's a false premise. If you look at the evidence today, we see that, you know, these were stable lifestyles. Agroforestry was as innovative and productive as farming methods used elsewhere in the Americas. Each type of environment demanded different approaches to agriculture. Normally, places where farming become more important in the beginning were places where there was scarcity of resources. Places like Caral, for instance, it's a small river, valley, surrounded by desert, very dry desert, and the mountains. Whereas if you look at places where resources were abundant, like the Amazon or the Northwest Coast, there was no pressure for these people to become farmers. And the idea that farming necessarily is a, is a change for the better is a modern idea that's been applied from Western Europe but in areas which are covered by tropical rainforests, I think we're dealing with different strategies. The Amazonian record really help us to rethink things that we take for granted. In the Amazon, we see this context of abundance, so much protein in the waters, in the rivers, but also lots of plant diversities. Better strategies work based on diversification. If you look at the, the biological data, it's one of the most 
biological diversified places in the world. So it's only natural that people who are living there were aware of that. Fruits, vegetables, and grains such as squash, beans, and quinoa, cultivated in South America thousands of years ago, are now widely distributed throughout the world. You can look at the forest as a library. There's so much information there, and to be able to classify, understand. Arthritis pain. Choose Voltaren gel. Voltaren, the joy of movement. Find, understand, and actually find a way to use all those resources. It's a very sophisticated knowledge. A constant source of abundance, the Amazon remains one of the most biologically diverse places in the world. Among the first tree crops to be cultivated by humans were apples in Asia, olives in the Middle East, and peach palms in South America. The wild ancestors of olives grew throughout Mesopotamia. They later spread to the Mediterranean region and northern Africa, where they were domesticated and grown for cooking in lamp oil, fruit, and wood. The domestication of wild apples first took place in the mountains of Kazakhstan. Farmers planted apple trees in orchards and over time cultivated new varieties of the fruit. Peach palm trees are a wild plant that developed into an important cultivated tree in Amazonia. The tree eventually spread throughout South America, the Caribbean, and Mesoamerica through human intervention. Today, apples, olives, and peach palms are an important source of food throughout the world. Thousands of kilometers north of the Amazon is another major rainforest, the Pacific Northwest. Like the Amazon, the vegetation and waterways provide such a diversity of flora and fauna that indigenous people had little need to engage in large-scale farming. One of the few exceptions is camas. The nutritious bulb of this purple-flowered plant was a significant part of the Coast Salish diet. While it grows wild, it became an important food source and trade item through long-term cultivation. The women who had the role and responsibility to manage these food systems, they knew all the different things that needed to be done, the burning that had to take place in the fall, and managing the areas where the canvases can be harvested, all the different other plants that needed to be taken care of throughout the year and harvested as well. The process of cultivation used by Coast Salish women to grow camas was a hybrid between farming techniques seen in Mesoamerica and the Andes and agroforestry found in the Amazon. It's not running lines and dropping seeds in a row. It's 
harvesting the camas when they're in seed and uh, turning the soil, selecting the bulbs you're going to take, putting them back, the ones you're not going to take. You're dropping the seed just before you're putting the final bits of soil back down. They maintain their plots through regular clearing and controlled burns. Camas was cooked for 24 hours or more to break down the bulb's crystalline fibers into a digestible sugar. Once cooked, camas was mixed with berries, flattened, and dried into a fruit leather. It was cooked with other foods or dried and ground into a flour. I would say, if anything, it might be close to a parsnip, but have a consistency of a sweet potato. They wouldn't be here if the women didn't manage these food systems in a way that sustained the community. Like the maize of Mesoamerica and the potatoes of the Andes, camas holds practical, spiritual, and cultural significance for the Coast Salish peoples. I know when me and my family go out, we harvest camas and um, we do pit cooks. It's a whole different kind of conversation that takes part. We're talking in a different way that you normally wouldn't be at a, at your dinner table. We're connecting to the land. We're connecting to the food. And all of these memories come up of our what we've been taught about our history. We start talking about the history of the area we're harvesting. We're talking about the food. We're talking about the stories that come within our ancestral lands and within the food system as well. And I imagine when I'm there how it must have been for our ancestors to have that kind of conversation and to uh, connect to the food and remind everyone that we're still a part of this food system. In addition to their agricultural achievements, indigenous people throughout the Americas developed innovative ways to fish and hunt. The Arctic region of North America has been home to a succession of indigenous cultures over the past 5,000 years. They found ways to survive the harsh winter climate without the advantage of wood, stone, or clay to build houses. The primary source of food for the Thule, Dorset, Inuit, and other northern peoples was the sea. Inuit, all across the north, survived mainly because of one animal, and that animal is the seal. We would travel mostly out on the sea ice, uh, hunting seals all winter, because that's what we lived on, seals. The traditional way was to use a harpoon because, you know, the seals are very wary and, but apparently they don't see very well, you know, when they're out of the water and they have to come up, you know, because, you know, they have to breathe and they come up and they have these holes. They sun themselves really close to their holes um, so they can just dive down when, you know, when we or polar bears come. A successful seal hunt depended on patience, skill, and cunning. In the spring, when all the uh, snow was gone from, you know, the the ice, uh, we would have to crawl basically on on the sea ice, pretending to be a seal, you know, uh, until we got close enough to go and harpoon it. We had all these implements that we used to detect when they were coming up to see when the water was going up, you know, uh, up and down when the seal swam under or came up, you know, and took a breath. We used dogs to sniff them out, and then we would use a harpoon to catch a seal. 
we study the animals that we hunt so that we can outsmart them. But we're also very grateful to them for supplying us with, you know, what we eat. In a region where people lived off the land for months at a time, hunters used every part of the animal. Every part of the seal was used. We ate the meat, of course, and then we used the skins, you know, mostly for what we call kamik, which are sealskin boots. And they're warm, they're waterproof, and, um, and they're very comfortable to wear. We used the fat to, to burn in our kudlas, which are like a half moon shaped lamps, you know, to, to cook with and to heat our igloos with. And the fat uh, from the seal was pounded to, you know, release all the oil. And that's what we burned. We eat seal. We eat whale. We eat caribou. We not only hunt them, but we also thank them for supplying us with all this food and, and our survival. more than 30 tons and measuring 15 meters, the largest animal in the sea would be a formidable challenge for any fisherman. For the Macaw and Muchanov nations in the northwest region of North America, the hunting of whales was more than an exercise in man's superiority over animals. It was a way of life. Whales are central to our identities as Muchanos and Macaw peoples. In our oral traditions, we say we were whalers from the day we were created. With the archaeological evidence in both Muchanos and Macaw territory, demonstrate a connection to whaling for over 5,000 years. That's from the whale bones they've collected, from whale in the middens showing that it was a major food product. The whale bones were used as part of the equipment and tools that we utilized. The whaling culture permeated every part of these nations' lifestyles, from trade to ceremony to art. You grow up knowing that you come from whaling, from Tikin, from the Thunderbird, who gave Ihtup, the whale, to us with the Ihtlik, with the, with a sea serpent. And you see it everywhere. I mean, it's in our songs, it's in our dances, it's in our artwork. That's how we keep that whaling culture alive. In the springtime, when our foods were being depleted, that's when we would hunt the whales in the early spring when they were going up through their migration pattern up to Alaska. Whales contributed to over 70% of the food in our diet, especially in our early spring, because whale meat, oil, and fat had major nutritional benefits. Within the Nuchanoth and Macaw nations was a distinct hierarchy that dictated the role of each person in the whale hunt. The chiefs were the people who whaled, so the chiefs were the ones who basically had the rights to the whale products, to the whale meat, oil, and fat. The oil itself was a very highly prized trade item. It was traded up and down the coast and to some interior communities as well. The Tai Hawif, which is the highest chief, would ultimately oversee the distribution. He and his family would keep the choice pieces of the of the whale. And the Chukwasi, which is the dorsal fin, which is where the spirit of the whale lives, 
They would have prayers conducted for four days after that to show the respect of that spirit. And when that spirit left, the chukwasi, the dorsal fin, would stay with that chief. The rest of... Okay, we'll continue the story. I just wanted to say, the way these folks are talking, you know, the whale and the people are one, not what the white folks did with the whaling industry. That's all I wanted to say. The whale and the people are one? Yeah, in a sense, they had a relationship with the whales, even though they ate them, they did what they did. I don't condone that. I never ate whale, and I won't. But I think they had some kind of relationship on a spirit level because, you know, those people somehow connected with the whales in their ceremonies, connected with the ETs. That's all I wanted to say. I pass the talking stick. Well, we're going to say we'll take a little break here. It seems so appropriate to play this history at this time. And, yes, we know there's galactic uh, beings, and they did too, and the producers are unsure of themselves. <laughs> but uh, it's well done. Yeah. Very well done. So we will see you after a short break, everyone. And we'll have a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha and music. <laughs> so see you soon. Big hugs. Namaste, everybody. Thank you, Richard. Okay, thank you very much. Happy birthday. birthday. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, okay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I don't count them. I don't really count them all that much anymore. All right, it's the 5th of November. And the situation's pretty much the same as it was last week. Except Mars is retrograde and it's at 26 Gemini. Uh, Mercury, Sun, Venus are at 12, 14, and 18 there in Scorpio. Opposite Uranus in the north node, sitting on the south node. So I would interpret that is that uh, uh, we are reaping the results of stuff we've done in the past. So South Node is the lessons from the past that we get to work with. So we get to work with the results of the activities of prior aspects of our great and wonderful civilization. So, you know, in many ways it just sucks. But uh, I try not to bring my my attitude to this call. Um, Yeah, uh, the moon is in Aries, and it's been conjunct Chiron today. 
uh, yesterday it was conjunct Neptune and Jupiter. You could see, uh, was it last night? I think it was last night. It was clear and I stepped outside and you could see the moon right underneath Jupiter. And it was very, very interesting. If you've never seen moon conjunct Jupiter, <laughs> it was out there last night. Oh, I saw it. it. I got a picture of it. Yeah. It's a little farther away tonight, but still pretty close to the moon. Oh, yeah. They're only like 15 degrees apart. Yeah. Because Jupiter's in 30 Pisces, and the moon's at 17 Aries, so they're, they're 17 degrees apart. But yes. I've had, it clouded up today, and it, <coughs> but it's been, it's been warm over here. It's been dry. All the, almost all the leaves are down in north central Georgia, except for the red oaks and the maples. Ooh. The red, the red maple, which are very, they were, all the leaves were really bright, brilliant, and, and gorgeous this last month. Mm. But most of the leaves are on the ground. Had a windstorm blow through here last night. That took a lot of, a lot of leaves off the trees. Mm. But, uh, the only thing, I wait until all the leaves are down before I start moving leaves around. You know, there's no point in take, raking leaves yeah. if the wind is just going to blow them around again and <laughs> yes. fall more, more need to fall. I just wait till they're all down and then I do my, my winter leaf harvest. <laughs> I got some baskets scattered around. I fill up with leaves. Anyway. Uh, the full moon is 6.02 a.m. Tuesday morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where that's at. Uh, I don't think, let me see here. I did, I did run a chart for the full moon. And let's see, is there anything there that, What? No, the full moon is on October, I mean, on November um, 8th. Tuesday. Yeah, the 8th. Yeah. That's Tuesday. That's Tuesday. Did I say something different? Yeah, you said Thursday. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Kai already ran, ran, ran his report for the, for the, Full moon last week. It's a T square. Mm -hmm. Square square Saturn is going to be squaring that sucker, and uh, they're going to be trining uh, trining Jupiter and Neptune along with that full moon, and Mars is going to be trining Saturn, and that's all I got for right now. Okay. All right, well, let's see what Kate Patsy has to say then. 
This simple 30-second method reverses memory loss for good. It's so easy you can do it from... This is Guy Pacha with the weekly Pele report for November 2nd, 2022, here in Tepoztlan, where it is the week of the dead. Mm. Yes, there's the day of the dead, but it goes on and on and on, particularly with two eclipses as the sun moves through Scorpio, sign of death, endings, and transformation. Today we have the moon in Aquarius, and she's moving into a trine with Mars down there in Gemini, and then we'll trine the sun, Venus, and Mercury all traveling together through Scorpio, and then she'll sextile Uranus. Before then, uh, you know, she moves into Pisces later on today. And then, of course, on Friday, she'll go into Aries. And then on Sunday, she'll go into Taurus. Getting closer and closer. Waxing, getting fuller and fuller. And as she moves through Taurus, she will conjoin with Uranus. And we'll have the north node of the moon, the moon herself, conjunct Uranus in a full opposition to the entire family of sun, conjunct Mercury, conjunct Venus, conjunct the south node of the moon to make a total lunar eclipse. And that eclipse is happening next Tuesday. So you'll feel the energy building between now and then. And it's not, I I mean, this is such a huge event because it involves so many planets. I'm 
also have to bring in that Venus squares Saturn exactly on Sunday and Monday. And so this whole full moon total lunar eclipse is in square to Saturn. The sun will square Saturn, Mercury squares Saturn, moon squares Saturn, Venus squares Saturn. The moon's nodes square Saturn. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. <laughs> you can look at that chart at the beginning and get a good idea of what this energy is all about. Hola from Deposlan, Mexico. <laughs> He's got a mask on his face. Let's know. Hand painted. Día de Muerto. <laughs> Semana de Muerto. Mesa. A month. The sun is traveling through Scorpio. For a year and a half, the south node of the moon is moving through Scorpio. The sign of death Endings, loss, betrayal, abandonment, transformation, leading to resurrection, transpersonal consciousness, deeper, wider, greater awareness of all that is. This is what this eclipse season is all about and you may have felt and I talked about setting an intention with the solar eclipse and the new moon was the time when the solar energy of this is what I want to let go of this is I am the snake shedding my skin I am the butterfly emerging from the cocoon and it's necessary for me to let go and release everything that I once was. That identity built up in Leo dies in Scorpio. I've just uh, been here on this retreat, uh, a Tantra retreat with Harish. And we've gotten a full dose. We have been exploring the mysteries of death for days, doing Tantra practices, hundreds, a couple thousand years old, these practices. And, and the, one of the main things was that we are all terminated. We will all be meeting our death. It will come at any time, at a moment just like this. You could be watching the Pele Report. It could be tomorrow. It could be in your sleep. It could be any time. And so the teachers and the spiritual masters of Tantra die before they die. Die now. And what do they mean by that? They mean to shed the separateness, the mind, 
the ego, the identity that I've made for myself, that I have built up from parents and teachers and preachers and religions and governments and schools and bosses and in jobs and spouses and children and we carry so much. I love one of the famous one-liners that I remember is don't shoot on yourself. <laughs> don't shoot on yourself. We've gotten a lot of shoulds since we were born and they've contributed to creating this separate, separate self that needs to be something. And the process of awakening, this process of awakening is shedding, releasing, letting go of all the shoulds, of all the good and the bad. And this is where it's interesting because this is like a step up from even the evolutionary astrology. <laughs> this is stepping outside of polarity. Those of you that have been following me for a while and studying evolutionary astrology, we evolve through the Pluto polarity point and we try to balance out the Scorpio-Taurus axis Okay, but this teaching wants to take us beyond polarity. That each and every one of us is perfect. That every moment is perfect. That we are each a unique expression of oneness. And there is nothing wrong. That creation wants to experience itself through the lens of each one of us and experience the full spectrum, the whole range of variety, of differentness, of good and bad and right and wrong and light and dark and victim perpetrate. And we create these stories with our mind. And the problem comes when we believe the story and we believe our thoughts are real and we, and we, we take our mind candy and turn it into a reality. So this lunar eclipse is such a very powerful time. It's such a powerful period. Because now the moon, which is our habits, our childhood, our mother, our past, our inner child, our need for security, our neurosis, okay, uh, you know, this subconscious inner child that wants to be held and safe and secure and can be afraid of loss is opposite to the sun, Venus. Mercury, all together in Scorpio, that says, let go. So we're, this is a time period coming into this November 8th, next Tuesday. This lunar eclipse is all going to bring up the resistance, the insecurities, the fears, the 
I want to go back. I want to, you know, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I want to give me that snake skin back. <laughs> I want to go back into that cocoon. I want to shrink down into the old identity that I was. But we're being afforded an opportunity. But that opportunity is just like sailing out to sea. And this is where the mantra comes in today a little bit. Yes? And today's uh, the, the song for this week. Yes? <laughs> ride, Captain, ride. <laughs> it is as if we are all a drop of water from the ocean of oneness. And we can return to that ocean of oneness. But we can be afraid of the emptiness, of the void, of the expanse, of the cosmic sea. And we can want to stay in separation rather than dissolve that old identity into the one unity. So this is our challenge. This is our call. This week, through this intensity, we can fear the emptiness, we can fear the sea, we can fear returning to oneness, because there's nothing to hold on to. There is no I, there is no past, there is no future. We simply come into the now, and in the now there is a void. And we can fear the void. And there's many writings and teachings about the void. And the sense of emptiness, longing, loneliness, isolation. We, we step out of the amusement park and we are alienated and we are alone. But the teachings I got this week was really, it's kind of maybe a secret. Don't tell anyone. But the void is not void. (laughs) The void is void of everything that we know, of every form of materialism, of all emotion, of all thought of all sensation, of all pleasure, but it is love. It is love, pure essence of being, the fullness of the totality of infinity, It is beyond knowing. It is beyond the paradox. It is the paradox of the paradox, or the paradox that there is no paradox. It is beyond the mental constructs of our mind that I talked about in last week's mantra. If you remember last week's mantra, outside the mind, outside of time, My naked, true self. 
I will surely find. <laughs> so, I want to read to you the Sabian symbol for this degree of this lunar eclipse. It is this, it is the seventeenth degree of Taurus, and it has very much to do with exactly this tantra, this moving beyond polarity into the ocean of unity, outside of judgment, outside of separation. Check it out. It is a symbolical battle between swords and torches. The keynote is refusing to depend upon the past. The seeker turns warrior, fighting anew the eternal great war. (laughs) Now, you would think this has to do with polarity, fighting and opposite sides. I know, a battle, right? But listen to what the battle is. When Gautama, having sought in vain for the answers to his questions, among the teachers of tradition, sat under the Bodhi tree. He had to fight his own battle in his own way, even though it is an eternal fight. The spiritual light within the greater soul must struggle against the ego will that only knows how to use the powers of this material and intellectual world. There is no possibility of escape. It is the energy that arises out of the present moment, the inescapable now, that the daring individual has to use in struggle. Feel into the void. Let go of all thought, craving, desire. Center yourself in that heart space. Did you know that the exact bottom of your heart is exactly midway between the top of your crown and the absolute perineum, the bottom of the shishuna, centered in the heart? There is a portal. And it's interesting, and what I want to really bring forward here with this, also I was even thinking of another song, for this week, it could be talking about a revolution. Terry Chapman, another good song for this week. Because this moon is conjunct Uranus, the planet of revolution, the planet, the archetype of liberation, of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods and brought enlightenment, enlightenment, the light the light. And we learned this week from Harish, there is one thing you can give away, but never run out of. 
and that is love. Give it, give it, give it, give it. You will not run out. You may even have more to give. So this enlightenment is not about knowledge and knowing and seeing, but it is about moving, liberating ourselves even beyond that. And it is a revolution. And then the revolution comes in where I want to talk about that this is square to Saturn in Aquarius. So we have this total lunar eclipse with Uranus, right? You know, it's almost like the sun, Mercury, Venus, you know, in this full moon, right? Relative to Uranus. I mean, the Earth is right in between directly in between. It's it's blocking out the light of the sun from hitting the full moon. <laughs> That's what an eclipse is. Talk about a lineup. This is a direct alignment between the moon and Uranus and the earth, us, Gaia, the mother, in between these two powerful forces. And we can just feel this polarization, but what is there? Saturn, the Lord of Karma, form, structure, time, Kronos. And it is in a 270 degree square to Uranus. And that 270 degree square has to do with liberating and breaking out and breaking free from societal expectation. So not only are we breaking and liberating ourselves from ourselves and our identities and our past, but on a global scale and on a personal scale, we are also breaking out of old structures, old forms, old careers, old jobs, old positions that we used to hold, even with our friends, groups, organizations, corporations, the whole political realm. This is, this is, this is time of revolution. This is time of thinking new thoughts, seeing a new way, moving in a new way, dancing, being moved by the energy rather than mindfully moving the energy. We're talking about a step beyond mindfulness. This is mind emptiness. This is death leading to the resurrection. Let me read to you the degree of the sun for this total lunar eclipse. 17th degree of Scorpio. A woman fecundated by her own spirit is great with child. A total reliance upon the dictates of the source within. Here we see the result of a deep 
and complete concentration, reaching to the innermost center of the personality, where the living spirit acts as an impregnating power. This reveals the potency of the inward way, the surrender of the ego to a transcendent force, which can create through the person vivid manifestations of the will of the goddess. Let's feel into that goddess earth energy at the time of the lunar goddess in all of her fullness with the shadow of Gaia blocking her out totally. It'll just be for an hour or so. <laughs> Won't be for that long. But you know, the solar eclipses, you can only see a solar eclipse across a thin, a little strip of planet Earth. But the whole, you know, the whole dark side of the Earth will be able to see yeah, this lunar eclipse. And I can even give you the time if you want to, you know, if you want to go out, if it's nighttime where you are. The challenge is here that, um, the lunar eclipse happens exactly at 3.02 in the morning, Pacific time, which equals 6.02 a.m. on the East Coast, uh, New York time in the United States. Yeah. And, of course, South America, Central America, you, you will be able to. Uh, uh, to see this. Other than that, uh, Hawaii definitely will be able to see it. But yeah, that's, that's the, the half of the Earth globe that will be covered with this. So, what I want to encourage you to do is to set sail, to return to the ocean of oneness. Yeah. Like a ship setting sail into the unknown. I gather up all I need, then say farewell, shove off, and turn my face to the wide open sea. And in this case, I encourage you all that you need is nothing. Let go. Your consciousness is the ship. And all that you need is your consciousness to set sail. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> like a ship setting sail into the unknown. I gather all that I need. Then say farewell, shove off, and turn my gaze to the wide open sea. 
May you turn your gaze to the wide open sea, the void within the self, that emptiness that is filled with nothing but everything. Love. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. This changes everything we know about Alzheimer's. After using the most powerful atomic microscope in the world, scientists made a shocking discovery. It appears we have finally uncovered what exactly triggers Alzheimer's through this brain scan. No, it's not old age, genetics, or vitamin deficiencies. Um, okay. Richard, did you hear? Pass the talking stick to you. Richard? Are you there, Commander? Well, um, maybe there was an emergency or something, but uh, we'll go ahead and we'll call on Richard when we're with uh, Tanya. What? What? Oh, there you are. Yeah, I was I was uh, doing a quick look up here. Um, the oh. keynote for the full moon meditation is "Warrior I Am," and from the battle I emerge triumphant. That's uh, according to the. Uh, Lucy's trust, folks. Right, and from the battle of what? And warrior I am, and from the battle I emerge triumphant. Very good. From Lucy's trust, huh? Yeah. Go go over there to Lucy's trust and click on full moon. And then you can click on uh, 12 Spiritual Festivals. Mm. It says here, The time of the full moon is a period when spiritual energies are uniquely available, facilitating a closer rapport between humanity and the hierarchy. It's true. Yes, indeed. It's also got full moon charts. It's got the meeting calendars if you're in New York, London, or Geneva. Mm -hmm. 
got a reference for Full Moon Talks. It's got broadcast stuff and all all kinds of interesting stuff here. So, this is the uh, 11th festival, <laughs> this one. Hmm? This is the 11th of the 12 festivals, this, 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 this one right here, November. Now, it it's a circle, so there's no beginning and no end. Oh, so the 12th festival. cycles, yes, it's a cycle. Okay, we'll have to look at that. All right. So, other than that, I got nothing else to say tonight. I'm okay. very yeah. Well, I, I I worked I worked out in the yard, uh, dragging firewood. So I, I'm I'm sore and I'm sleepy. I see. Okay. Okay. So, well, I'm going to stay. I want to stay up and see what Tanya has to say, and then I'm going to hit the sack. Okay. Well, here, well, we, here, right. we, here we go. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrometrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at a celestial event in the stars and numbers to get a message, a reading on how it will impact us and what we can do to prepare and navigate through it. And in this case, it's a really big event, probably the biggest of the year. It is a total lunar eclipse in Taurus with the sun in Scorpio. And lunar eclipses are full moon eclipses, so you can imagine the intensity. Well, the numerology code echoes that, as do the astrology transits around this eclipse. So let's start with the date. It happens on November 8th, 2022. And that date adds up to the number 16, which we'll go into in a moment. It happens at 11.01 a.m. Universal Time, which is 6.01 a.m. Eastern and 3.01 a.m. Pacific Time. So, as I said, the date adds up to 16. 8, November 8th, 2022, add up all the digits, it equals 16. And this eclipse takes place at 16 degrees. The sun in Scorpio at 16 degrees and the moon in Taurus at 16 degrees. So we have not only a... Triple 16 code, which is the code of unbelievable change, shifts that you have to navigate with your intuition, with your heart. Your mind will not assist you in these sudden changes, unexpected events as they appear. So there's a lot of like, almost like the shifting of plates, the shifting of energetic frequencies. This is going to demand all your intuitive resources. And the number eight is also doubly activated because November 8th echoes November's eight universal month. November 2022 resonates to eight and it's an eight universal day. So 
We have a double eight, and eight is the number of leadership and strength and courage and overcoming obstacles through tremendous sense of responsibility and confidence, and it's also a number of abundance. So it's the infinity sign, the number eight, and it also represents the upper and lower. It has two windows, top and bottom, and so it represents the light and the shadow as well, right? That both are part of living life on Earth. So a lot already there. And then in the astrology, the same themes are activated. We have an exact conjunction with Uranus and the moon. Uranus is also at 16 degrees. So this makes it a quadruple 16 code. Uranus echoes the theme of the number 16, unexpected events, needing to really tune into your intuition for guidance. All of those are the same energetic frequency. So it's like we just have to know that this will be part of the eclipse, that major, major shifts and changes. And of course, Uranus is opposite the sun. And that also leaves a deep impact because the sun then will want to bring balance through dealing in the best way possible with unforeseen events. So adapting to them, not resisting to the changes, transcending fears that come up. So it's very important to be very proactive with this opposition to the sun. And then we also have a stellium, a triple conjunction of the sun with Mercury. So sun 16 degrees, Mercury 15 degrees, and Venus on the other side at 20 degrees in Scorpio. And this is tremendously empowering because Scorpio is a very powerful themed sign as it purges and rebirths. And as a result, you know, we gain empowerment from that. So when we add Venus and Mercury, it feels very personal. It feels really exciting and uh, very deep, you know, very profound. And then, of course, this is a Taurus eclipse, a Taurus lunar eclipse, and Taurus rules productivity and your values. It rules pleasure and beauty and security and grounding and your voice through Venus, the ruler. And because Venus is opposite the moon, remember the Venus is part of the stellium, so it's opposite the moon merged with the sun and Mercury. Venus is the ruler of this full moon eclipse. So there is again this tension that needs to be resolved. So a lot of energy that's coming to a head here regarding your values and perseverance and inner peace and contentment and sensuality and everything to do with what you appreciate. These are all Taurus themes and abundance and financial flow, persistence and progressing step by step. And speaking of progressing step by step, there's one more amazing, powerful component to the astrology that gets activated. And that is that the sun and moon create a T-square with Saturn. Saturn's at 18 degrees in Aquarius. Aquarius and Scorpio and Taurus are all fixed signs. So this creative creates a fixed T-square, which is, you know, definitely not wanting to move very easily. So it'll take some exciting energy, surprising energy that will then lift it up and take it out of the 
fixity, if that's a word. I don't know if it is. But so this fixed square is very deep because Saturn is very much about timing and destiny and taking responsibility and creating boundaries and bringing in a sense of limitation, but not to limit you, but to create more of a honed in feeling of what you need to focus on as opposed to what you might be distracting yourself with. So Saturn always takes you back to the core. So again, the theme of taking responsibility is really, really strong. And of course, Aquarius, where Saturn is, is the symbol of the age we are transitioning in into from the Piscean age. So the timing of our awakening, which Aquarius represents, is tuned into Saturn being in that sign and Saturn creating a T-square with a total lunar eclipse in fixed signs means all the stuff that we've been holding on to for dear life or not realizing we're holding on to because it's unconscious, all of that will come to the surface. That's what Scorpio will do, right? And Taurus will want to attend to these things. Taurus is very responsible and reliable. So much to consider here. And remember that Venus is conjunct the sun, And Mercury is also conjunct the sun. And and Venus being the ruler of this amazing eclipse will bring a lot of relief through beauty and creativity, pleasure, just focusing on things that feel good, that taste good, that feel pleasurable and beautiful. So now I'm going to circle back to the number 16 because there's so many themes with this eclipse. And the reason I'm going to circle back is 16 reduced to 7, and that sets up a 7777 code, quadruple 7 code as well as the quadruple 16 code. And 7 is the number of nature. Yes, it governs research, and it governs meditation and silence and serenity and everything to do with listening, and therefore it also governs you being able to get that sense of silence and meditation and serenity by going out into nature, by hugging a tree, by walking barefoot on the ground if you're able to, and if not, just being outside. Appreciating Mother Nature is going to be a key component of staying in balance at this time. And keep in mind, too, that next year, 2023, is a seven universal year. So this activation of the seven and 16 is, in a way, a preparation. It is taking us into a place of absolute release and intuitive awareness and opening up our heart Right, breaking open the heart basically through all these incredibly strong transits and numbers codes that are so intensified through their doubling up and quadrupling up that we have no choice really but to do that. And so it prepares us then for that incredibly fortunate seven universal year in 2023. Now to get more details about 2023, go to 2023forecast.com. 
I am going to hold an incredible live stream called the Ultimate Yearly Forecast. It's my ninth year of doing this. That's so the ninth edition. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be tremendous. The actual live stream is on December 14th, but there'll be a replay as well. And there's so many bonuses and handouts. And I think you'll really enjoy that. So if you're interested, we still have the early bird price available for a little bit longer. Go to 2023forecast.com. So with this lunation, with this unbelievable eclipse, it's a priority, especially now, to relax daily into your heart, your inner sanctuary. Scorpio cleanses. Taurus is there to basically hold your hand and guide you and ground you. So it's very important to release any feelings that as they come up, so not to, uh, not to ignore them or wish they weren't there, but to literally feel them and any beliefs that are, that are causing you stress, causing you separation from others. It's important to really look at that and feel your way through that. So you feel the wholeness again, the unity again. Now during any full moon, the sun and moon are opposite each other. And so it is during this Taurus total lunar eclipse. Now due to the nature of the astronomerology code, the powerful number eight, which is doubled up, the conjunctions to the sun and moon, the T squared of Saturn, this total eclipse will bring in and magnify polarization. And when you take a side in anything, if you prefer one person over the other, for example, you can't see straight anymore because you've made a judgment about one being better and higher versus the other. And picking sides and pitching sides against each other eliminates your ability to tune into the heart and just feel the whole picture. That's really the concept and the idea and the experience of wholeness and unity. So once you engage in that entanglement of polarity, your internal sense of balance is gone. And any full moon is bringing that to your attention in some way in your life. So a full moon eclipse, especially a total one in Scorpio and, and Taurus, the moon in Taurus is going to be extra profound regarding this theme. So what happens then is you've chosen a side and then you only see things pretty much from that one side, from that perspective only. And you miss out on half the experience because you're responding to energy in an incomplete way. It's like cooking a recipe and forgetting chemistry, the balance of sweet and salty, right? Or sweet and sour. And so that creates a perspective that's very, very limited because you're operating from lack or you're operating from separation. So the result is that polarization creates this emotional vortex and that feeds on itself. And the more polarized you feel, you know, I'm against you, the more unbalanced your life will feel because you become more easily unhinged anytime you're triggered by the other side instead of neutralizing the trigger through self-awareness. So, of course, you can change this polarized state at any moment just by 
looking at the emotions that are coming up for you and seeing them as signposts for you, signals for you, like, you know, you light a fire and it's a signal, right? So the fire of this passionate emotional uh, reaction is a signal of what needs to be changed within you rather than opportunities to blame and pass judgment on the other side for whatever attack you feel or trigger you feel. So it's really a choice that you make. And the full moon, this particular one especially, is representative of that choice. So you want to be very vigilant, especially during this eclipse season, about choosing wholeness and harmony rather than separation and division. And always acknowledge that there are two sides of any coin. This is really vital. Otherwise, you show disdain for one side and you're literally showing disdain for yourself because you have, you are whole and you have light and dark, shadow and brightness. So if you show disdain for one side in favor of the other, you disregard half of life's experience. And without fully embracing that, there are going to be many perspectives that arise from many life experiences that lead people to feel a certain way. And then you're going to ignore that truth that depending on what people have experienced in their life, they will lean certain ways here and there. But that doesn't mean that you leave them out because then it's like you've left the sense of unity, the sense of love. So being at one with all requires the acceptance of all. And as we begin to accept others as they are, we also accept ourselves completely, right? Deeper levels come up and open our hearts and we feel more authentic, compassionate, open, kind. And that requires tremendous amounts of love and acceptance, really profound love of situations and people as they are, detaching from your beliefs about them, basically surrendering your opinions. It requires dropping your desire for individual control as well. It, it really requires opening your heart and loving everything as it appears, everyone as they appear, because, and here's the thing, it's just an experience to begin with. So when you love everything, everything then comes to you, and that's when all fear disappears. And this is, again, a big topic of this eclipse season. We started with a Scorpio new moon eclipse on October 25th. We are ending with the November 8th eclipse with the sun in Scorpio and the moon in Taurus. And Scorpio is one of the signs that really address fear. So it is very important to look at everything as part of you. And then fear disappears because there's nothing to be afraid of. And from that higher awareness, all decisions and choices will be made for your highest good because you're considering everything you're conceiving everything and life is flowing unimpeded by separation and there's no more conflict. There's no more resistance. There's no more criticism. There's only an awareness of how to respond to each experience. So this is really the big message of this eclipse and I hope it reaches your heart and you feel it resonates with you. And if it doesn't, that's okay too, right? 
really it is for you to know that you have everything it takes to be self-aware and set yourself free. And we're really going to cover this topic in the 2023 Ultimate Yearly Forecast because it's going to be so critical to navigating the year next year. So again, to discover more about that amazing live stream, go to 2023forecast.com. And I so look forward to sharing that experience with you, giving you your handouts, looking at your star signs, looking at your numerology code. So make sure you get your early bird discount price at 2023forecast.com and have a beautiful eclipse in Taurus. And I will see you next week's Star Codes Uh oh. Okay, it must be sleepy. (laughs) Well, that sounds interesting, everybody. Uh, She's pretty much saying that next year, which is a seven year, 2023, is a seven. St. Germain year is the ultimate year in terms of, I would say, a complete overhaul, transformation. Um, all the all the ways in which we have been linked uh, to the belief systems of the old system and all of the fears that might have been choking everybody (laughs) around the block Um, and what's fun and what's, you know, exhilarating and what's... (sighs) subjugated us to the idea of a human being versus uh, yeah the idea of slavery versus freedom and yes people of color in particular have been targeted um, that note and it's quite uh, the enough is enough statement has uh, reached everybody's crown chakras, I would say. By yeah. Now. But, um, yes, we're walking uh, the good red road. And uh, we shall continue to do so. And, Rowan, do you want to give the, uh, what do we need? The phone number for the conference call. Nice is and loud. Seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three 
863 pound. So there we go. And um, I'll just say we're a little bit early, got a few minutes. Uh, maybe I'll read something really quick that Penny sent us here. Because we do have a few minutes. Um, this is called Rekindling the Sacred Knowledge Within. Uh, we want to share with you some exciting projects happening with the cryon work, specifically the birth of a brand new cryon school. It's called the Chrysalis, K-R-Y-S-A-L-I-S Academy. And it will be home to a growing library of cryon's teachings presented as unique courses. Together with Cryon, we are carefully designing subject-driven teachings that will be accessible online via easy-to-follow lessons that you can view at your own own pace. Thousands of years ago, the Pleiadian star mothers taught core spiritual truths from a five-spoke circle called the Lemurian teaching wheel. Mm The Lemurian children were taught that at the center of the wheel was God. This hub at the center of the wheel was often referred to as the great central sun. All of the spokes connect to the hub, or God, and therefore all the spokes connect with each other. Imagine sitting at the feet of a star mother who reveals that you are part of God and you never have to worship it. Envision growing up, knowing that the creator of everything knows your name and loves you beyond measure. Inside your DNA, angelic energy from the star mothers has been implanted. And then there's a series, uh, invitation here. I think it's time to go now, though. Um, well, let's see. I can read a few more sentences. The Lemurian Teaching Wheel Masterclass Series is an invitation to embark on a journey with us as we rewind the time machine back to Lemuria with the express purpose of reliving some profound moments that took place between the teachers from the stars and their students. In the process, you will learn the core spiritual truths that were given to humanity. Stay tuned for more information as you are a Healing Wednesday member. You'll get earlier access and a document for the program. As you are not a Healing Wednesday member, you can get sign, you can sign up here and it says, I guess you gotta send this to Penny Round. Oh, Penny sent it to you. Okay, well, everybody, uh, Penny will get signed up with Penny's list. <laughs> I'm not sure how to do that, but um, hmm. this was very interesting. Uh, this is Blessings, Lee, Carol, Carol and Monica Mirania, Mirani, Mirani, Cryon Masters. Uh, what's that say? 
www.avast.com. All right, there we go. So you want to say those phone numbers one more time real quick, Rama? 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, we will see you there for the following hour here. And then at the top of the next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is in the universe. So for now, come to the conference and enjoy with us. Satnam, everybody. See you in an hour or on the conference. Namaste. Hello? Yeah. Okay, you're up. That raises the energy up. Thank you, darling. That was great. Okay, we're going to leave what we've been doing for the first part of the show. There's still an hour of that left. We'll do something with that next week. And this is something from last week that we didn't do. This is Regina Meredith. It's called Practicing Elemental Witchcraft. Just what the doctor ordered. <laughs> All of us too far lefties running around here. How can we connect with the etheric elemental beings controlling our natural world? Psychic medium Salicro has been on a path of extrasensory perception for her entire life. Entering mediumship at a young age and connecting individuals on all sides of our reality through harmony within nature. Salicro helps bridge the gaps between elemental forces of unseen realms such as energies, elves, gnomes, and the fae, or the fairies, fairy kingdom, to empower individuals' extended perceptions of the natural world. She offers insight on how we can stay grounded during trying times by uniting with spirit through intentions and mindfulness. I think that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Salicro is a psychic medium, a seer, and an author of the book The Path of Elemental Witchcraft by a, a weird woman's book of shadows. Mm. <laughs> and you found it, Rama. Yeah. Okay, this is 45 minutes. Let's see what Regina and Salicro have to share with us tonight. Here we go. You have a very magical kind of life because you're tapped into these other realms of elementals, trolls, and gnomes, and 
dwarves. I'm a psychic. I can see things, predict things, but I also talk to the dead. Sometimes when people are hearing voices, they really are. I think elemental beings want to be perceived by us. They have things to say. They want to communicate with you and speak with you. If you can get over your own doubt. One of the reasons why a lot of people don't have experiences is because we always have our face in a phone because we don't want to feel awkward, but we're actually missing out on this huge experience we could be having. We all watched with magical eyes as kids when we saw films like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or Lord of the Rings. We wanted to know these special creatures. <laughs> According to Sally Crow, we can, but we need to use new eyes. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and spend some time in this beautiful town and area. You have a very magical kind of life that you bring with you to Boulder because you're tapped into these other realms of elementals and What's interesting, though, is you're a very stable human being. You're a mom. You've been married for decades. You, I, I heard that you were um, head of the uh, school board or PTA or something. I was on a school board for you nine years. You were on a years. school board and for I was nine on years. A regional school board as well. So yeah, I love it. And all the while, everyone knew you were a pagan that practiced white witchcraft, right? Yes. I love it. I love it. Yes. Where do you live? I live in Newark, Vermont, which is part of the Northeast Kingdom. So yeah. I live about 40 minutes from Canada. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to lay that out because you have managed to carve a place for yourself where people just accept you as you are. And this is a big thing for human beings. So many people have these interests and these capabilities and they're spending their lives hiding it from their family and friends. So you're a wonderful poster girl for not hiding who you are. So first of all, let's talk about your name, how you came about your name. Sally Crow, your sister is Sandy Crow. Let's talk about your family and how you came about coming into contact with these realms. Okay, so I am born into a family with spiritual gifts. My great-grandmother was my first teacher, and her father was an Irish traveler, and her mother was Blackfoot. So most of her teachings would now kind of fall into the category described as granny witching or um, Appalachian witchcraft. It's more like folk magic and very practical and down to earth. And my grandmother was a person that everybody called Graham and people came to see her regularly. So my sister and I were being taught about our gifts from the time that we were really little. My first real memories are about from the age of three or four. And so what did she start with? I mean, there has to be a mentoring process for a three-year-old, right? So in my case, my I didn't realize this until later when I had a large spiritual opening of my own. My grandmother was told when my mother was pregnant with me that I was going to be a medium because I'm a psychic. I can see things that are unseen and predict things, and but I also talk to the dead. That's my primary job. Mm-hmm. So I was trained from a very young age I call it the parlor arts. Like I was the one who sat at the table and played card games that were developing my, I thought she was letting me win because I was just really good at it. Um, And I got to sit in sometimes when people would come by because I was well-behaved and quiet. Um, And my sister was a little wilder than me. She was usually sent outside to find something in the lawn that she could eat. Okay. okay. So, and my sister's a magical herbalist Uh and she definitely is 
more into like we both work in the same field, but mine, as she would say, is more um, presentable at a kitchen table. Mm-hmm. What a magical upbringing. Lucky yeah, you. Yeah, very fortunate. I mean, because you, when you think about it, how many kids and how many human beings are carrying this within them, they just don't have anyone giving them permission or showing them the way. Right. And you had all of that. You had it laid out for you with no resistance, and that's fabulous. So at what age did you begin to notice that you were maybe seeing things or hearing things that other people didn't? I don't think I realized that other people didn't have those experiences mm-hmm. until I was much older. But I do remember being in school when teachers would talk about imaginary friends, and I just assumed she was talking about other people, not me. Because uh-huh. in my house, if I saw something, my sister also saw it. Or my grandmother would say, right. what are you looking at? Because she saw it too. So there was, um, I don't think I, w- I think I was probably just about a teenager when I really started to realize that I had the ability to perceive things that other people couldn't. Mm-hmm. Until then, I just thought that this must be normal. Right. Let's, so tell us about your name. I, I mentioned that in the beginning, yours and your sister's names, because you've condensed it to a solo name. Right. Crows. So they're more spiritual names mm-hmm. than they are anything else, and Crow is very sacred to the Blackfoot part of mm-hmm. our family is where that comes from. So I actually have another sister who, while she doesn't really follow the spiritual path, she also still has, like, Crow tattoos and my father um was one of his nicknames that we gave him was one-eyed Richard the Crow because he lost his eye in Vietnam. So oh, yeah. he was also a crow. So the crow part is that. And we're actually known that way, though, even though most kind of like, the crow family, the crow sisters, my yeah. sister and I are. Yeah. And for a while, people thought that my husband and I had gotten divorced. We could be standing next to each other and like, and we're like, no, I'm just because you know, <laughs> they had to be like, why aren't you using this name? And I'm like, because. His last name is a French name, which nobody could pronounce. So I just started using my spiritual name in my work. How do you pronounce his name? It's Tetro. So it's T-E-T-R-E-A-U-L-T. Oh, okay. But everybody's that, like... That could come out a lot of ways. It's not really a good business yeah, plan. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sally Crow works. Okay, let's talk about the elemental world mm-hmm. and all of the beings in the elemental world. We'll start with that and when you started communicating with them. And one thing you say is we have to let go of our perception yes. of what they look like, sound like, personalities and all that, and allow it to be shown to us. Yes. I've always had the ability to perceive nature spirits. I didn't necessarily have a pursuit of it. Like the um, working with the dead came easier for me. And I describe it like shifting a dial, you know, like changing a channel that mm-hmm. – when you have um, developed the ability in one area, it's really easy to then just kind of vibrationally shift into the other area to perceive that. Um, one of the things I tell people is that you really want to use a wide-angle vision mm-hmm. when you're working in the outside world and take words like maybe, kind of, and think so out of your vocabulary. Because often people have experiences all the time. They'll be like, I thought I saw something. And I'm like, well, why don't you say the same thing, but take thought out of it. And then they're like, I saw something. And they almost always can feel that that's the truth. So Mm -hmm. the easiest thing I would tell people is learning to get out of your own way 
And we spend so much of our time coming up with reasons why something isn't something. If we took even a fraction of that time to make something why it is something, Mm -hmm. then we'd all be seeing these things. Absolutely. That is within all of us. And we, Mm -hmm. there's probably rarely a human being that isn't seeing someone walk by out of the corner of their eye or something that's not physically present, but they, they could swear they just saw someone walking by. That's an example of it. And how do you expand out when you see things happening or something moving before you, but it looks really almost like a shadow of something. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, because that's common. It is common, and my explanation of it is that what I've learned, which I learned primarily most things. I actually had a major spiritual opening when I was 30 where I was being taught by um, spirits. We're going to talk. Yes. Well, go ahead and talk about that now, and then you can get okay. to what I I just want to talk about that to say, like, Do. I was taught a lot of ground rules then. Yes. I was taught a lot of ways to perceive. Um, it was a really tremendous experience. Tell us the whole, <laughs> tell us the whole thing okay. so you know what happened. So I have always had the ability to communicate with spirits, but it wasn't. I was working as a psychic reading cards and telling people about their life and their future. I was a Reiki master in six schools of Reiki. I'd done a lot of study already. And I would have spirits where I'd see them and I would have some in, you know, experience. And then I had this experience where it was so loud that, you know, if it was a different situation, I might have been taken to a hospital. Mm -hmm. I really describe it as being scrubbed with a Brillo pad and sprayed with a fire hose. Mm. Like everything in my life was turned inside out. And at the same time, my ability to perceive spirits went through the roof. Mm -hmm. It went from like 10 to a hundred in a period of days. And this intense experience lasted for months. Um, Interestingly enough, I was like begging for the volume to be turned down. Like literally like, please just can I have a vacation? Could you turn the volume down? And when they did, I found I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the lesson, too, was that I had to actually choose it on my own. So we're going to flood your gates and show you what you're capable of. And then we're going to back off a little bit. And you choose. And you choose. And I definitely chose that I wanted to go back into the deeper water. So what was the sound you were hearing? I was actually hearing voices very clearly. It mm-hmm. started with... um a spirit that his name is Adam and he was my youngest sister's best friend. And I knew him through that. And my youngest sister and I aren't a lot alike. So there's an age difference. And, um, the fact that I always loved him was kind of strange because I didn't know him that well, but when he died, he showed up at my house. And I was like, at first I thought it was like to communicate that he was okay to my sister. Mm -hmm. And then he started like telling me these, it really was a plan that we had had before birth and, because he was somebody that I could trust, I could get information to find out if I was accurate. Right. Like a partner. Yes. In this. I was able mm-hmm. to call my sister. So if a spirit was somebody that was like my own loved one, I might have thought, well, I'm just imagining that because I want that. Mm-hmm. But because this was different, I was finally called my sister and I was like, look, I mean, he was telling me about conversations they had in a diner and these really random things. And she didn't hesitate at all to think that I was having it. Like she was like, no, that's true. That's true. So that was really helpful. That kept me above the water of feeling like I was crazy. Right. Um, 
but I definitely was having Kundalini openings on a daily basis. I mean, my husband came home one day and all of our belongings were packed in the middle of our house because I was like, I don't need these earthly things anymore. <laughs> so luckily I came back down, but my husband's also a very, very solid person who yeah. never once thought I was crazy. Never once, like he knew I was going he knew through was, something. Yes, he knew yes. it was an, an initiation yes. of sorts. Yes. Okay, now back to my question. Yes. So after you became more discerning yep. and more open, uh, tell, tell us as an average person that sees shadows and things running around you might think you're seeing a little doggy running through or a person walking yep. by well what are we seeing chances are you are seeing something mm-hmm. um what happens is people have most people will say i saw something out of the corner of my eye and i turned to look and it was gone and the reason why is because you then looked through it spirit right. is perceived best whether it is spirit of the dead elemental mm-hmm. spirits soft if, focus soft focus because mm-hmm. I describe it kind of like those colored folders that people put their reports in that are clear. Mm-hmm. And we all exist in this clear folder and we can see very clearly. Some of us are colorblind though and we can't see into the red folder or the blue folder or the green folder. And that's a good way to put it though because your piercing third dimensional vision yes. is literally looking right through that exactly. other dimension that in soft focus can form itself. Yes. Yeah. So I tell people like if you do see something out of the corner of your eye, don't turn to look just stay and allow yourself to perceive actually i find that because i do live in a rural state um there are a lot of men and women who have hunted before Mm -hmm. and that's an easy way for me to describe it too like if we are looking at an animal or a person with our forward-facing predatorial eyes they can see it we can feel it if somebody's looking at us across the room right but if we don't want to know have somebody know we're looking at them our best bet is also to use our peripheral vision because then there's not that feeling that comes through Mm -hmm. it so you can take that same skill that you might have used to look at the you know the person who you find interesting or you know hunting or any kind of way that you could use it and turn that into a way to perceive spirits better yes wonderful okay let's talk about um specific types of elementals okay um because right now the world that we're living in i think is so complex and so draining for so many people that we're going more and more into fantasy yes but that fantasy world is actually dipping into a reality elsewhere so talk about that well first of all the reality elsewhere has always been there exactly okay (laughs) we've I think that we've gone through times where we were more open to it mm-hmm. and times that we're more closed to it. We're coming back into a time that's more open to it. I also think that one of the things that's different about this time is I think elemental beings want to be perceived by us. Tell, we, tell us about that. We why? are living in a crisis point in our planet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reason why you even form these relationships is to make some kind of change there, you know, like environmental responsibility, stewardship, um, there's things that those beings can do for you, but a lot of it is learning how to be part of the natural now, world. Yeah, drawing our attention back to our beautiful host. Exactly. Yes. And so I feel like there really is a influx of experiences with people with nature spirits, even people who are like catching pictures on film right. and, you know, I say selfies that they're coming forward and doing. There's different types of beings just like there's different elements and i like to look at it that they have different realms so just like we live in a physical realm and our 
beloved dead live in a different realm. You know, fire spirits live in a different realm than water spirits and earth spirits and air spirits. And the astral realm is kind of like where we perceive everything. All of us mm-hmm. have the ability to perceive there or to learn. They're probably easier than any other place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we were talking off camera and you said these realms don't necessarily do business with one another. And we'll talk right. about that in a little bit. Right. Some of them have preferences and, and would prefer to stay with their own kind. Yes. Right. So you say seclusion is also a, an important element in developing this connection with nature, mm-hmm. having some time alone yes let's talk about that for a moment because that's another thing people are challenged by right now yeah i think that the seclusion that we went through with um the pandemic really brought a lot of people into realizing that they needed nature as their healer Mm -hmm. so there was definitely an influx of it during that time period and I feel like we are becoming i think we're going through a psychic evolution i talk about that a lot So I've been a psychic for many years and just watching the amount of people who are changing. And I think that when they spend time in nature, they're more likely to have that experience. They're more likely, you do have to be quiet. You have to still yourself. One Mm -hmm. of the reasons why a lot of people don't have experiences is because we always have our face in a phone. Right. We always have, you know, we can't sit on a park bench by ourselves and experience nature without Right. Because we don't want to feel awkward, but we're actually missing out on this huge experience we could be having. So one of the groups of beings that you say you have a particularly strong relationship are the jinn, often known as genies, you know, mm-hmm. in the Western world, in the Eastern world known as jinn. And a lot of times when you read about jinn, you think, whoa, those, those beings are troublemakers. So let's talk about what jinn actually are, mm-hmm. how you would describe them and how you work with them. So first of all, I have had relationships with Jen. I have a very specific relationship with Jen, which is that I am very cautious in my relationship with Jen. (laughs) Well, every book I've read, it would indicate caution. Well, the big part is, is I don't think that they're evil beings. Mm -hmm. I think that they are um, precise beings. So explain that a little more. So if you say, welcome to my home, Mm-hmm. You've just now told them that your home is their home. Oh, okay. All right. So, so be specific. Yeah. Like Jin are mentioned in the Quran a lot. Yes. Yeah. And in Middle Eastern readings. Yes. Yeah. And um, my daughter's good friends with a Pakistani woman. Yeah. And when my daughter was talking about Jin, she was like, oh my God, we don't talk about that. Yeah. And my daughter's like, okay. But it was really because of this, you, you really have to interact with them like you're interacting with a lawyer. Like if you're saying you're doing something, that's a signed contract. So in my interactions, when I have worked for them, I literally go in and I say, I start with in no shape, way or form. Am I entering into a agreement with you? Mm -hmm. I am telling you what I'm working on. And if this is something you want to work on, we can collaborate together. And I always do it in a sacred space setting. Are they ubiquitous? I mean, is Jen everywhere or just certain parts Uh, of the world, certain types of lands, certain types of families? Definitely certain types of lands are going to be more likely. And also families do count because we have a tendency to bring our otherworldly beings with us when we have settled areas. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like, for example, Appalachian area is filled with Scotch-Irish magic. And it also has a lot of the same fairy lore. Okay. 
you're going to experience gin more often living in a desert environment than you are my environment. My experience with a gin is a personal one that okay. has been through lifetimes. So my area of living in a green forested area mm-hmm. would not be someplace that they would choose to come. Okay. So what is your specific relationship? What do you do together? I don't really do that much with them. So I think that might be um, maybe I have worked with them. Yes, have. I have worked with them when I need to. When they are very to. good at getting things done. Okay. That's a good way. Like it can be used in healing. Any kind of a, of creature can be used. A creature, I hate to use that word. Any kind of being can yes. be used in healing. Okay. Jinn have a tendency to inspire. So they're mm-hmm. really good for artists. They're really good for people who are very intellectual. They're really good for learning magic and dance. And um, I have actually met Sufis who have had bonded relationships with Jin in a form of like improving their artistic ability or their ability in entering dance or trance meditation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through the whirling dervish. My experience has been more of a negotiator. Like I have worked with them in other lifetimes. And because of that, I've been able to help people when they've made poor choices in their communication with Jen, kind of like going okay, in good. as the representative yes, going yes. like, let's clear some You're things up here. I'm between, a mediator between those realms. Okay. I consider myself a mediator in general. Yeah. My, a lot of my work is being a bridge. Right. Let's talk about a name that is ubiquitous, that everybody loves and admires, and that's Merlin. Yes. Let's talk about Merlin energy, and let's talk about caves for, for okay. a moment. So I love caves. I do, too. Um, so much happens. And I have been to Merlin's cave a couple of times in Tintagel, um, which is really powerful. I actually have a photograph from the last time I was there that I do a lot of vocal toning and sacred mm-hmm. singing. And I was singing in Merlin's cave with a group of people on a pilgrimage, and I was standing there with my arms out like this. And mm-hmm. this guy who was on the trip with me took a series of pictures where you could watch this purple light moving closer and closer to me. And it finally was just in the middle of my chest. Uh-huh. So Merlin energy. Well, first of all, Merlin is probably an amalgam. Exactly. You know, of a lot of um, magical practitioners, druids. And that energy is very much, I would say, woven into Druidry, which is based on a view that nature is sacred and sentient. Mm-hmm. And people can be Druids without it being Christian or pagan. There can be whatever religion you want to bring into right. it. So I believe Merlin energy is that. It's that kind of like tapping into the understanding that everything is sentient. Everything works better through, I say everything works better through collaboration than force. Mm-hmm. Like I would rather work with you if you asked me to work with you than if you put me in some box and told me I had to work with you. Right. Okay. Right. So let's talk about caves and yep. expand into that a little bit more. So caves have always been used as places where we can go and enter deep into ourself, into our own personal cave. And well, they're closed in. They usually have pretty interesting acoustics one way or another. They hold shadows amazingly. And you're surrounded by the element of earth. So you're mm-hmm. really grounded inside of a cave, which 
sounds strange that people can have such amazing spiritual experiences there. But oh, I, I do. I love grapes. But I think the reason you can mm-hmm. is because it is so grounded. You also Very feel grounded. like you're, you know, when you said you're in, the yes, earth. you're in the earth. Right. And they're really good for releasing. They're good for any kind of deep dive into consciousness. Um, my sister and I have used a local cave in the White Mountains for healing with people. This one has like this little opening on top of it. And it's a small cave. And we've had people in there while we were singing and drumming on top of it and just let the beings work with them um, inside of that space as well. We've you know, had people go there for themselves for pilgrimage. Like you're going to go spend the night in this cave by yourself. And then this cave is, is small. You're not going to be like, Oh my God, there was something else living yeah, in here. Yeah. Um, I think that it allows us to connect with our personal, um, highest consciousness, you know, well, it's blocking out all of the external artificial signals. Exactly. You don't have any of that happening when you're in a cave, you're surrounded by mother earth. Yes. All natural signals, other natural beings are there mm-hmm. with you. It's so beautiful. I, I'm, I'm with you. I highly encourage people to find a special little cave somewhere and visit it on a regular basis. Yes. If, if possible. Um, uh, three years ago now, um, with Gaia, we took a crew and went to Sardinia mm. and found this series of caves that a local woman told us about. It wasn't, it's not in any tour book. Cool. But it was a series of female initiation caves there Mm -hmm. were four of them you went started as a young girl at one end and it went all the way through till you hit the final cave which was the birthing cave that is awesome it was absolutely stunning in its energy freddie silva was there with me and just he couldn't get enough of the energy. Really. Yeah. Get out. We want to try it. We're the females right. here. Get, no, get, get out. Boys. Go. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but it was it's amazing. It's definitely a place where, where you're talking about you can, because your senses are being shut down from the outside world, definitely mm-hmm. can go deeper into your ability to perceive. Um, I visited Iceland and I tell people that if you can't have a spiritual experience and see other beings in Iceland, you're not going to. Yeah. Because, and I think part of it is because there isn't a lot of living. I mean, there's moss and stuff, but there's not trees everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's horses and sheep, but there's not like a plethora of animals or people. It's just a blank slate. So when you're yeah. seeing something, it really stands out mm-hmm. to you. So it's pretty phenomenal now. And I think caves have that similar feel. They're also, mm-hmm. Iceland is also a big old chunk of rock. Right, exactly. Let's talk about rock and let's talk about earth elementals okay. and the types of beings we're talking about. Uh, trolls and gnomes and dwarves and so forth. And then I'm going to tell you a little story that happened just recently that might help others. All right. So I think the earth elementals are probably the most separated of all the elemental beings in what I've experienced my own and by talking, you know, and reading. And I think it's more that we can differentiate between them more because they are the most humanoid, Mm -hmm. you know, and I put them in categories of the grumpy and the not grumpy. Yes. <laughs> so gnomes, elves, those beings, hold the folk, which are, you know, we have a lot of, there's so many different kinds of beings that it's really hard because different terrains, different areas have their own. I'm still learning. There's like the language. So gnomes cover really the friendlier, more what we would see. They like to live in lush areas that are usually 
green or mossy or plush in some kind of way. They like the sweet things of life. Trolls fall into a different category. They also have beings like giants Mm -hmm. and they don't like contact from the human world very much. And so one of the easy ways, like if you're sensitive to feeling when you're in stepping into a thin space, an easy way to determine whether it is more of a gnomes type space with the elves and the hula folk and the gnomes, or whether it's more of a troll type space is what does the area look like? If it's looks kind of pretty and enchanting, that's probably gnomes. <laughs> if there's like if it's rocky and foreboding debris, no, <laughs> trolls will also use things like They'll put, there'll be spider webs growing over the entrances to their caves. They'll be like, maybe, uninviting. Yes, it's uninviting. Yeah. And some people will actually find that if they're sensitive that when they go to enter a place like that, they actually feel fear. That's mm-hmm. not that there's really something horrible there, but they're being told they're not welcome. Mm-hmm. Just casting off some bad vibes. So the story I was going to share, because it happened recently, is um, I, I love gnomes, right? Now gnomes are everywhere. I mean, you go in any shop, any store, you're going to find a gnome something, which is interesting in and of itself that it's taken on in the mm-hmm. mass psyche. But I have loved them for a while, and so I, I have them around at Christmas time, little knitted ones and things. And I kept one out and started playing with it just for Instagram, right? And I would assign, Harry said this about this, and I thought, this is kind of interesting because it's not the way my mind normally works. And it didn't occur to me till very recently that the things that I was coming up with, because I, I also speak with people who have deceased mm-hmm. and so forth, that I was actually listening to someone from that realm. Mm-hmm. And that my little stuffed Harry, the little gnome, was the surrogate because right. I don't see them. I don't mm-hmm. see, some people see a whole being in full regalia dressed mm-hmm. up standing right in front of them. I don't see that way. I see with my eyes closed, then they'll yep. come into view. And so I want to interface more with the elemental kingdom, not just, you know, deceased people and my right. guides. But I just wanted to know what it felt like. It occurred to me that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, let me just talk to him now through Harry and just say, because I had this deep love also for this being and I understood him and I found him funny and I thought wow this is turning into some kind of aspect of self that's strange right <laughs> in an alter self so I started telling me no we're here and mm-hmm. uh, we love living on your land because it's, it has a lot of granite and we love the piezoelectric energy here but they told me something else I wanted to share with you we went on about that, and I looked it up. Sure enough, granted, it has a lot of piezoelectric mm-hmm. energy, and they said it was very enlivening for them. But they also said, we'll be with you when you go to Ireland as well, because the human species has been through so much tragedy and cataclysm and loss of memory. We've been alongside you all along. Mm-hmm. And what we'll do with you when you're there is you can, I can see into things and read what's happened in the past on a piece of land to an extent. Right. They said, we can fill in gaps for you because where human memory has been lost, we have a continuous memory alongside you that we can share in those gaps with you. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And I also have been informed multiple times that they travel ley lines very easily. Yes. So, you know, when you're saying like, well, how did they get here? You know, because like as a child, you might be like, 
okay, so these came over with our ancestors. So did they ride on the boat with them? And it's like, no, it's more like a calling, you know, like, and that the hot ley lines are really like energetic highways. We can use them ourselves mm-hmm. to astrally project easier. Like mm-hmm. if we were saying like, I want to focus, it's easier if you bend to a place. So if this being has already been mm-hmm. in Ireland, mm-hmm. Then it has like, it's kind of like the destination is already in the map quest. Do you know right. what I mean? Right, right. Um, so it does make sense. And they said there'll be beings there that will be chatting with you as well. Yes. And that what struck me though was the amazing companionship of having unbroken memory where ours has been broken, where there have been right. massive periods of time of destruction. I have a spirit that I refer to as Thomas, who's mm-hmm. more of a I would refer to him as like an elven being. He's mm-hmm. more slender and tall. And when he had been part of my life for many years where I was just seeing him, like because they have the ability to turn two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. So that's why sometimes we will, if we're looking for him, they'll disappear too. Because like, you know, I started having these games where they would like run across the field. And I'd be like, what? And then they disappear. Well, I started realizing that all they had to do was like kind of like shift. Yeah, shift. And then I'm out Absolutely. of here. Absolutely. And when Thomas finally introduced himself to me, one of the things he said was that he had worked with my family for generations and that he had worked with. um, So I call him Thomas. That's not his real name, but it's my Irish traveler family name was Thomas. And that was the family that he like my great grandmother's family, her father, you know, both my great grandmother's father and mother had gifts. So while I have other you know, I'm mostly Irish, but it's right. that's my line I call my line because yeah. that's where my spiritual gifts yeah. came through. Um, but that is a way that they do attach to family lines. They will, you know, sometimes be dormant because they're waiting for somebody that's sensitive enough to be able to perceive them. Right. Well, and I was so happy to understand that it was a larger story than my imagination right. and my stuffed little gnome. Absolutely. And with a friend I'm traveling with, is also very psychic. Nice. So we both tune in and we can journey together. And to now bring the world of elementals with us, we're really excited. And also be still, like we talked about in the beginning, because like I had an experience with the Hula folk in Iceland. I had gone there purposely to do spiritual work. And there is a city just outside Reykjavik called Hypnifjordr that is, there's an elf garden there. Mm. You can get maps of different places and around the city where elemental beings have temples and I was staying on um, Tingvallavatn which is a glacial lake that comes off of Tingvallar the great riff and the people who had it their grandparents had been spiritualists so it was one of the only places that actually had a small clumping of trees like a grove uh-huh. and they had a fairy mound that they uh-huh. had built so I went and I laid in it and then one day and I mean it's like 50 degrees in August but I'm out there laying and one of the Hulda folk where they look like they're like four-year-old children mm-hmm. came over and was just looking down at me, checking me out. Cause sometimes that's all it is. It's yeah. just an introduction. It's like, Oh, Hey, what are you doing here? So yeah, yeah we can definitely, it's in that stillness. Cause I was just yes. like, I'm just going to go lay here and right. see what happens when I do. And right. sometimes Those we must get be the, the ones things. depicted in the books, uh, Fairyopolis. Probably. Um, the Cause they look like children. They do. They're yeah. very, um, they look like, three, four-year-old children. Right, exactly. Oh, I, I love that book. I've given it to so many people. Fairyopolis. Mm-hmm. I haven't so, heard uh, of that one, so I'll oh, have, you have to check, to check it, out. it out. It's You can buy it on Amazon. Okay. Very nicely illustrated from many decades ago, but it has little pop-outs and things from the fairies and letters. It's mm-hmm. the most enchanting book for children. And 
enchanted adults I have ever encountered. Nice. So that sounds was- like it might be a little more accurate too, because you know we have a lot of like the movie stylized version of elemental beings, and that's no, this not is really this was quite a long time ago in Eng- from oh, nice. a garden in England. Um, okay, so one of the things you write about, it, you say glamour is one of the easiest forms of magic. Let's talk about glamour. Okay. Glamour is placing your intention where you want it to be. That's the simplest way of describing it. So we, you use glamour. You put on a different face as soon as you get in front of the camera. When it comes on, some part of your energy, whether you're feeling good or not, knows that you have to present yourself in a certain way and you... Project yeah, that. it's unconscious. It just I've done exactly. it my whole life. Yeah. Actors, mm-hmm. politicians, we they use it all the time. Right. We can consciously learn to use that, you know, and we can use it through triggers because glamour isn't always just about looking good. Sometimes it's about hiding. Sometimes it's about looking bigger than you are because you feel threatened. I once used glamour to become invisible, which is very difficult for me because right. I have a very big personality. Right. So I was standing on the edge of the road and I live in a very rural town. I was picking blueberries and there was like a mist um, and there was a lot of bicyclists where I live. So there was a couple of bicyclists coming down the road and I was like, I'm going to stand right on the edge of the road and they're not even going to see me. And I used wide angle vision and I stood there and with glamour, I put my concentration on becoming one with the dew or with the, yes, like so that it was yes. reflecting off of me. Right. And I could have reached out my hand and pushed yes. them over when they went by and they didn't even notice that I was standing there. You know, so, so that's, that's called a glamour casting. That's a, a glamour. glamour. I do that when exactly. I want to be invisible and people will bump into me. Right. And I, not for any reason. It's just that I don't feel extroverted on any level. Exactly. And you I just to want to be in, in my space. own little space and people don't see me. I've taught classes for years in aura manipulation. Yeah. So teaching people using dowsing rods yeah. of like, okay, first we're going to walk up with the dowsing rod. We're going to see where your aura resting is. And then I'm going to tell you that I want you to think about being small. And maybe that means that you're going to imagine that you're inside of a little tiny box. Mm-hmm. And then when I walk up with the dowsing rod, chances are I can get right up on top of you. Interesting. And what I actually teach them too is that if you really are afraid, that is absolutely not what you want to do. Right. Because you're allowing somebody to get that close to you before you feel them. Mm-hmm. My dad was a Marine, so I have a lot of practical use of psychic abilities too, because he did like recon work. So like I understand being able to feel somebody before they're coming in. I also have, I've owned a bar before, so I've went the only time I ever had to break. Oh boy, you're yeah, talking about entities. Yeah, exactly. And the only, but I used glamour then because yeah. like we never had fights cause it was like a college bar that had bands Yeah, and we had um, one fight happen and I just like went over and I used my voice, but I also expanded my aura mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I mean, I'm not that big of a woman and having like, one of the guys who was a regular who didn't start the fight, he was like, I was afraid you were going to punch me. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, yeah. and that scared you? Like, that was well, an interesting thing. Like, I had become larger than life, and it made it. Your energy had. Yes, yes. exactly. And we're all doing that unconsciously all the time for whatever the necessary moment is, you know, to yes. do that. So that's within our just, a sh- that's almost a shift in how we choose to project ourselves. Right. Or how we choose to contract. I think that water is the easiest element to work with it for that because water is reflective. So it already gives off like illusion really easily. 
And water is not just in an actual, you know, glass of water. It's also if somebody wears glasses or any reflective surfaces, because like mirrors mm-hmm. are jewelry. Like in my book, I talk a lot about how we can do protective work or we can do glamour work and focus it like on a particular thing. Like I've had people focus on their glasses when they want to be more confident or when they want to, you know, like maybe attract a partner. Okay. Well, you don't wear jewelry all the time, but you wear your glasses every day. So let's do some work around what you want to reflect out of those glasses when somebody sees you. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, um, a moment ago, what struck me in what you were saying is that it's not really magical how we work with these beings. It is by our intention, mm-hmm. by our desire, and by our request. And so whether we know the being's name, whether we know what type of entity, I think it's almost an assumption that we're surrounded by all kinds, yes. collectives of entities all the time, and humans can ask for help. Yes, we're on a very layered planet. Very layered planet. <laughs> and so we don't... We don't have to have magical abilities to be able to call upon these various beings. I think the word magic is misunderstood. Mm -hmm. I think magic is science that hasn't yet been explained. Because Mm -hmm. when I was younger, telling people I did psychic readings seemed magical. Now it's when even trying, like if you look at a book, technically talking to dead people and looking into somebody's future or past is magic. But we've also gotten to a point where science can say we know something is happening. Right. We know something is happening. And this is one of the stories I love to tell that is an example of how science has come. One of my friends taught abnormal psychology for years, and he used me as an example because he would say, sometimes when people are hearing voices, they really are Mm -hmm. like this. But there was a time period where somebody would have thought that that was magic. So I think that that's the part that we have to I agree with that. rearrange. Mm-hmm. That magic is science that hasn't yet been proven. It has a cause and effect. There is something that happens. It's a phenomenon that simply exists. You can use it or not use it. Right. And I think this is a good point you talk about in talking to the deceased. One thing that is so, I think, accessible and easy about talking to the deceased is that They have things to say. Mm -hmm. They want to communicate with you and speak with you. If you can get over your own doubt in yourself about what's being told. And if you've done it enough times, the wonderful thing is you can keep practicing. You get validation. And over time you realize, ah, I actually heard them correctly because that fact was validated by a third party, for example. And this is one way to get our sea legs, just like with myself and my little gnome through my little surrogate, Harry. Is so anything we're coming toward the end of our time, mm-hmm. anything you want to impart on that journey for people, where do they begin getting their sense of confidence and validation that they are communicating? Recording things. I tell people a lot, especially through the book, I talk about a book of shadows. And a book of shadows is different from a journal because you're not writing in it like a diary. You're writing in it more like a college notebook where you're writing down structural things that you've had for experiences. You're leaving space to go back and reflect on it. Because when I meet with people and they're like, sometimes I know things I'm like, really how often? And they're like, I don't know. I was like, give me some examples. And they're like, I don't know. I was like, if you started recording it, you'd start seeing how often Often it's happening. It's happening. And you'd be able to go off of that. I love it. Uh, We didn't talk about undines. 
the yes. water elementals really quickly. We all take showers. We all take baths. We all love water. Most everybody loves water. Anything special that we need to know in interacting with an undine? I personally love water. I tell people collect water from springs, from lakes. Take just a little bit of it. Add it to your bath water because uh-huh. water shares its information with yes. each other. So you might say the water coming out of your tap has run through straight pipes, which doesn't make it as like structured, if you will. But once we can take something like water from a sacred well, water from a lake, mm-hmm. a river, we open up an opportunity for us to be able to communicate with those beings in the safety of our own home instead of feeling weird about it sitting on the side yeah. of a lake or Excellent in a dangerous idea. area. Excellent idea. Thank you so much, Sally Crow. And uh, thank you for being so normal and grounded and magical at the same time. It gives people a sense of safety with it all. Yes. Appreciate it. To learn more about Sally Crow and her books, you can go to sallycrow.com. You can also order her book, The Path of Elemental Witchcraft, through major booksellers. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Very interesting, everybody. <laughs> okay, we're going to do something now that's kind of interesting. We've had interactions with the uh, Pentagon. Well, this one says, ex-Pentagon contactee speaks out. And this is with Emery Smith, former Pentagon intelligence officer, Anjali, A-N-J-A-L-I, joins Cosmic Disclosure for the first time to share her conscious communications with various ETs alongside retired counterintelligence agent Richard Doty and host Emery Smith. From her work within the United States government to tactile physical experiences with ETs, Anjali shares what she learned about humanity's potential for connection with intelligences from other worlds. As extraterrestrials are making conscious contact with humans at this time, what are they sharing? So that's uh, 41 minutes, and I'm looking if Mama's got there yet. Is it there? There it is. All right, everybody. Let's do this one. Here we go. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we're joined by Anjali, former Pentagon intelligence officer trained in information operations and warfare. Also joining us is Richard Doty, a retired counterintelligence agent who served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Anjali, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you go from the DIA to ET contacts? 
Well, I had been stationed at the Pentagon, um, and while I was there, I had no access to any compartmental programs that would have any information about UFOs or extraterrestrial life. So I just want to, you know, make sure that people understand that. I left the Pentagon and became a contractor. And that eventually took me out to California. And while I was there, I had a significant contact experience. Can you elaborate on that contact experience? Absolutely. I had begun receiving conscious contact from a being who would appear in my room and would give me messages about what humanity needs to do and how we need to prepare for coming changes. And they would encourage me to talk less and to practice conscious contact. Um, and they wanted me to tell humanity to, to meditate, to be still, to rely less on their human language and to begin to practice conscious communication. And the reason was, was because there was an inevitable coming contact between them and humanity. And they wanted us to be prepared. They wanted us to be able to understand, uh, what was happening, the context of it. Uh, they didn't, they don't want us to be afraid. Anjali, was this contact, uh, you mentioned, you said conscious, was it Consciousness like meditation was in the 3D where you can, you know, actually visualize the being? Okay, that's a great question. I was in a room with my daughter when I first had the being appear, okay? She was not able to to see the being. I was able to see the being. I could orient him in the room, and I could physically see him and where he was located, which was not in my room, uh, behind him was a completely different place. He was there. I could see him. We were communicating. He was doing most of the communicating. It was a, it was a very one-way experience. Was it out beginning. loud or telepathic? It, all of it. Uh, when I say conscious contact, mm-hmm. I mean that it was um, uh, consciousness to consciousness, there was no speech related. There were no sounds. That was at the very beginning of that interaction. We did get to a point where I got myself together enough that I could ask questions and they would respond. But in the very beginning, it was it was incredibly difficult for me to even formulate, you know, a, a thought. I was overwhelmed. Um, I had tears just running down my face, but I I wasn't crying. And I kept getting chills all throughout my body. It was an incredibly physically overwhelming and spiritually overwhelming event. And I experienced this three more times at the end of 2017, leading into early 2018 in January. What year was the first contact that you just had? That kind of contact, Mm -hmm. the first one was in 2017. 2017. Yeah, in late 2017. So it was late November, December time frame. Did the being uh, tell you where he's from? Did he have a name? This being in my room appeared to be about four foot tall. He had spindly arms, a very spindly neck, extremely humanoid, spindly legs, an oversized head, large eyes. I I couldn't see any particular mouth that was visible and slight, very slight nose. What color was the skin? 
the skin was like a lavender, okay? And behind him, this was the interesting part, behind him, it looked like he was in a craft or um, some kind of spaceship home, maybe. Uh, behind him, I could see there was a big arch and a window that he was standing in front of. And then it was the hallway that he appeared to be standing at the end of was all window on the left side as well. So he's, he's two sides windows. Okay. And behind him is, I only know how to describe it as like orange cream colored body. Uh, I don't know if it was a star, if it was a planet, it was quite large in the window frame. Um, I could see it. So he's orbiting, you know, or something he's outside of it. And he wanted me to see that particular image of of this orange cream absolutely yeah. planet he showed other beings other people from throughout time that uh were connected to this experience in some way and i wasn't quite other sure humans or absolutely okay. absolutely and then in 20 2018 was when i had the very intense mojave mountain um, experience where I went into a base mm-hmm. and and met directly with the ETs. How were you approached to go into the secret base? I was sitting in a coffee shop with a friend of mine mm-hmm. and we were having coffee. It was early in the morning and uh, a couple walked into the shop and we were sitting in like a large sitting area for a group, um, which is an unusual in California. And um, they just came and sat down and started a conversation with us mm-hmm. and we all hit it off. And we began talking about our our mutual chronic illnesses and because he had his own health um, issues that he was dealing with. And he said some really interesting things to me. Uh, he talked about the body burden of emotional stress and trauma. And it was something that that resonated with me from something that the beings had said. And uh, I thought, well, this is very interesting, you know, and. I don't remember exactly how it evolved, but he eventually just said, he just came right out and said, you know, um, what do you think about aliens? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, I, well, you know, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, would you like to meet some? And I couldn't believe it. I said, yes, of course I would. And he told me a story of how he had been seeing craft above his mountain for some time. And so he crawl, he, um, he climbed up to the top of the mountain and that a craft landed. Beings came out of the craft and talked to them, to him and told him that they were located in a base within their mountain. Okay. And that they had been there all along, that there wasn't going to be any problem, you know, don't worry. Um, and for him to go home. Well, he's told me that he went home and he became absolutely obsessed with getting inside of that mountain. And he happens to be a construction company owner and he does excavations. He excavates mountains. Um, he did not want to do this publicly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so he, he built a, um, a wood, wooden structure mm-hmm. and he threw some military netting on it right. so nobody could see what right. he was doing. And he went, he said he excavated, he went into this, this mountain that he just slowly 
went at it and next thing you know there wasn't a way he could talk to the extraterrestrials to ask permission to go in or he just kind of oh i think that they were telling him okay okay Uh, his obsession Uh that sounds to me like they were they were encouraging him Mm -hmm. to to do this and perhaps it was it was to bring me there you know i can't Mm -hmm. assume that it was just for me so he said that he went in um that he found the base there they were inside the mountain, and he said that he could take me to meet them. Well, give us a visual walkthrough of you know arriving there and everything you've seen as and how that unfolded, the conversation, mm-hmm. a description of you know what you were experiencing at that moment. I don't know if this is something that you guys will want to include in it in in this program, mm-hmm. but I do want uh, I do want to disclose that I did have medical cannabis that day mm-hmm. and that I I did have prescription medication that that I took on a daily basis and sometimes people are concerned that there was some kind of interaction mm-hmm. that could have caused my experience okay and I just want to make sure everyone understands sure. you know that 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 is absolutely not mm-hmm. the um the basis for this experience. And I suppose that this, this, this program already understands that. Okay. So we went to his home and we were waiting for a couple of friends to arrive. We were talking about his experience a little bit more. He walked over to uh, like this wooden arch. Um, It's like a passageway from one room to another. There's like a large door um, that can, you know, seal it off. He, he walks over and he hits the arch like this and he says, this is where they put me when they're done with me. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, just what I'm saying. When, when I'm done talking with them and they're there to, done talking with me, they teleport me right back here. I just end up right back here. And I thought to myself, either these people are absolutely insane or this is going to be the greatest day of my life. The friends arrived. Um, we, while we were walking down um, the path, uh, we we took a a circular path around. I started receiving hellos, mm-hmm. okay, like a series of hellos, and what those are are faces of other beings who come in and they show me who they are, and then they they send with it their intention. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful, but I couldn't figure out what was happening. And I would just throw my hands to my head and say, what the heck is going on? You know. Right. And um, so we arrived at the tunnel. He, we walked under the, the wooden structure. He pulled back. So in the back of the wooden structure, there's like a tunnel. There is. Or a door. It, we, walk, we walked along the, the, the side of the mountain right. mm-hmm. and there was a, a wooden structure that was okay. quite long against okay. it. Okay. And, um, when you get to the end of the wooden structure, the tunnel is here. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Lorenzo pulled back the, the tunnel. It was cooler, slightly cooler, mm-hmm. uh, slightly damper. Um, not really breezy, but, um, we walked in, Brian led the way, and 
I was walking through an excavated tunnel. That's it. You know, I had to watch my feet, right. make sure I wasn't tripping. I could stand up straight. You know, Lorenzo was the tallest. He was hunched over a little bit more. Mm-hmm. The two gals were in the back. They'd all been here before. Oh, okay. Okay. And we, we, we continued down the tunnel and we could see a light that was hitting, um, hitting the side of the tunnel and like in, and lighting up a section of it. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's the turn. We're getting close now. And was I, that like a man-made light or a light emanating from the, the cave there? It was ambient light emanating from somewhere around the corner that I couldn't see. Okay. Right. And we turned the corner and there they were. They were standing inside of their base. There was like a seamless transition mm-hmm. from the tunnel into their base. And there was a gray who was standing there and there were three tall whites. And I'm, I'm going to call them tall whites sure. because I've been taught that that's what they were. I didn't know any of this. Right. Um, but, uh, and they greeted me and I just, without a single hesitation, I just walked right into the base, right up to him. So you just kind of walked through this, this entryway from That's the right. cave into, do you believe was it maybe a craft or was it an actual base? I don't know. You don't know? Okay. I don't know that I'll ever know. Mm-hmm. But there was no, you didn't feel anything when you made that transition into this area. It was kind of like walking into I was conscious, but my mind was getting a little cloudy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I was a little, I was a little foggy. Right. And I was talking to them, and they were talking to me, and and none of us were using our mouths. It was all through conscious communication. Right. When you first met those beings, like yes. what were your feelings and emotions I right felt, off the bat? I. It was initially my very first reaction was I knew it. <laughs> I knew right. it. And then my second reaction was just pure joy. And I just, I just walked up to them. How do they welcome you? They were kind of playing like they had sure. been waiting to see me. Oh, you know, what a surprise. We've been waiting to talk to you. And I realize now that there was no surprise. This was all, this was all orchestrated. Right. What did you see? Like the first step in the beings that were there, you had one being right there greeting you kind of. That's right. And then. What did you see around you? What was that setting? Describe that in detail. I was standing like in an alcove. There was a a large half dome door mm-hmm. to my right. There was a hallway at this angle from where I was standing. Directly in front of me was another door just like this, another mm-hmm. arch, which I think was a door from things I learned when I went down that hallway. And then on this side was black. Like a dark wall or like no, like it's like it's being space. it's like it's being masked. They won't let me oh, see what okay. it is. I have no idea. Like a cloaking device it. or something. Yeah, there. it's completely black. Could you describe in detail? Because you said there was two different beings. You had the tall whites. Mm-hmm. You had the small, you know, four and a half foot beings. That's right. That you're used to seeing. That's right. Well, let's describe first the tall white too. Yes. Yeah. You know, what? How did he look or she? Okay, there were three beings. Um, two were appeared to be male. One appeared to be female. They were all extremely tall, well over six feet tall, and they they were all dressed the same. What were they wearing? They were wearing like dark blue and black 
overall suit, almost like Mm -hmm. a wetsuit, but not quite that tight. And black boots, like thick, Mm -hmm. really thick black boots, like what you would get issued um, from Mm -hmm. the military. Tell me about the facial features. You said they're tall, above six feet. They're kind of this... This bluish white That's right. color. They, they had they had very um their hair. They, absolutely. Yeah. They had hair whitish, uh or very white, but when I say whitish I mean it was like bluish white. If they were appearing to me the way that they actually mm-hmm. look, they're the only ones that could walk down the street and maybe yeah. with the right makeup nobody will even notice. Mm-hmm. They didn't speak to me. They looked at me like they were just assessing me. I felt so, some arrogance. <laughs> so they weren't doing the telepathy that the greys were doing with you. They didn't never spoke to me. They, I felt like they were escorting me, like maybe mm-hmm. they were security. So you mentioned that, you know, you felt like this was a male, you know, extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. What presence that they gave you that was like, oh, this might be family, this might be male. How did you come to that conclusion? The tall beings... Like I was saying, they mm-hmm. looked very human, except the colors of their skin and the fact that they were, they were just stunning. The men had short hair and the women had, the woman, she had long hair. It was to her shoulders. Mm-hmm. All of their hair was thinner. It wasn't like, you know, huge and, mm-hmm. and luxurious. What about the facial features? Were it more masculine or more feminine? I really feel like their, their features are so similar that you you rely on other things. There's almost like an androgyny to the face. Very assessing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you felt like they were scanning you. Oh, yeah. Those eyes, I just, I could tell that, that they weren't very impressed with me. Actually, what color was the hair? I guess I would have to say a a cooler white hair. Was it, What was the length of the hair? The ones that I perceived as men... Um, they had, you know, the square shoulders and, um, they had their hair cut shorter like, like men do in, in our society. There was a woman who was present who had, um, her hair was parted on the side and it came down to her shoulders. Did you have the impression that the hairstyle or appearance was there to please you or did you have the, um, idea that it was uh, their natural look when i was there i had no idea one way or the other i would probably venture to say that that maybe that is what they look like what what do you think the agenda was for you to go there i mean what information did they share with you well after they took me down the hallway Mm -hmm. we they took me into another room okay or into a room first first and only room like a square room um, what it, like. it was, well, the doorway was another one right. of those doorways. And I had no idea until this moment that it was like a pocket door, the ones that slide in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it slid open. And on the other side of it was a very tall being that was appearing to be a cross between humanoid and insectoid. And I would say more mantid in the insectoid side. And was presenting with the color skin that the being in my room had been presenting and greeted me with like this, this, this smile, you know, and, um, and I don't mean a physical smile. I mean like, um, an image of mm-hmm. just pure happiness, you know, and like a, um, almost like a ta-da, see, right. here I am, Error. you know, I'm real. 
you know, that sort of. Was the head shaped like a mantis? You say mantis hybrid human. Mm -hmm. Let's go over the details of how that body looks. Bulbous head. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, kind of like it's, it's bigger around in this area than, Mm -hmm. than ours. It comes down narrower and large eyes that come around and a very spindly neck. Mm-hmm. Everything else about it was just so very two delicate. Arms, two legs. Two arms, two legs. Okay. Very, very tall. Tall. Like when, when I was standing in the hallway, mm-hmm. it was on the other side, um, or they were on the other side of the door and, um, the ceiling in that room is much higher than the hallway. Oh. Okay. And so when I was standing in the hallway, I couldn't even see I couldn't see who it was. Right. It was as I was walking through, and they were kind of like, you right. know. Are we and, talking like seven feet, eight feet? Yeah, I, exactly. Okay. Like it's difficult for me to to even measure because right. it was definitely the tallest being in the mm-hmm. room, and in this room were multiple races of beings. Okay. And um, and how many are we talking about? Different races. I'm not sure. Well, that might okay. I'm not sure. Okay. There were probably, if I had to estimate, about 40 other beings that were in the room mm-hmm. at the time. I'm going to say 20 to 40, okay? Different. And I know that that sounds like, you know, a huge, a huge difference, but it's, it was all very confusing. I'm looking around at, at multiple kinds of beings mm-hmm. that I've never consciously, that I can't remember ever seeing before. And I'm having a very tactile, physical experience um there's nothing bizarre going on like the floor is normal the walls are normal everything is normal except the fact that i'm looking at these beings right okay mm-hmm. um and i'm feeling a little i'm feeling a little wooey and where's where's your team at? all the people that came with you are they experiencing the same thing you are, are they do they wander off are they with you so when i stepped in the the gray um which actually that's that's i believe a a misnomer i i am Pretty certain that it was actually a droid of some sort, mm-hmm. okay, and not uh, not a the biological gray that we often see, but very much looked like one. Sure, you know, mm-hmm. just much smaller. Brian wanted to come, and they said no. They told everyone to return home, and they would bring me back. Did that happen right when you? Came in, or is that pretty much within within oh. the, probably the first thirty seconds? Okay. Brian wanted to come in. They said no. To his credit, that man whom I had just met that day said, "I'm not leaving." You know, uh, he he was like, "I'm not leaving her. I'm staying here." And they said, "Okay, fine, stay there." You know, that was kind of right. the kind of attitude about it. This is the the thing about it that um, gave me the heebie-jeebies mm-hmm. a little bit. Is that when at the end of this contact, when they were bringing me back to the alcove, it, Brian was standing there, mm-hmm. and he looked like he hadn't moved. He was just standing there, like he was almost in like suspension or something. Usually, uh, first of all, when Brian was. Uh, Making the statement, was it through words? Was he talking out loud? No, no, it was absolutely fascinating. They were talking to each other and I could hear them. And it was all through conscious communication. So no one's mouths were moving, but I could hear everyone talking to one another. What was your emotional state at that time? Were you, were you frightened? No, Especially just, when you saw this 
insect looking. Right. Oh no. When I went in there and I realized who it was, that it was the being that I had seen three other times prior and it was giving me these messages. I was overjoyed. I was overjoyed. It was like, ah, it's true. <laughs> you know, it's not all in my head. And, um, I was, I was just elated the whole time. I, the only thing that made me hesitant, there were a few things. One was the, the tall beings that were with us. And it was because they were very aloof and they never spoke to me and they would just kind of right. look at me, you know, like they, they just didn't approve of me. And, and I don't know if they just don't like, People in human, you know. Oh, they're like that all the time. They just act like that. Are they arrogant that way? <laughs> did, don't did, take it to heart. The uh, tall, the yeah. tall ones. Yes. Um, were you frightened at all with their appearance or how you felt based on what they were uh, relaying or, or uh, the feelings that you got from them? No, I was curious about them. In some ways, I was jumping into intelligence officer mode. Because I started trying to assess why they were dressed that way, all of them the same. Why were they following us? Why were they just staring at me? Why weren't they speaking to me? What was their, what was their function? Essentially, they had to have a function, right? It was obvious that the little one was supposed to greet me and take me to the room. I couldn't figure out what their role is. And so it just, it kind of hit me. Ah. It's like security. They're actually physical bodies. From the time you entered that cave, yes, uh, to the time you left, was it all? Was you're feeling all euphoric, or was there ever a frightening experience or a, a, an unusual anticipation of something of the unknown? There was one moment when I was in the large room. You had yeah. asked it, what what the room looked like. It was a large like circular room. I remember there being one door um, on that side of the circle. Um, I don't know if that was the only door, but I remember that door. There was, um, there was like a, a metal bed that came up out of the floor that they wanted me to lay down on. And when I was laying down on that, I, I realized that there were a set of near of windows that were going around the top like an observation deck. Okay. But they were all blacked out and I couldn't see them. And I was thinking to myself, who's on the other side of those windows? How high was this uh, room, the ceiling and what was the shape of the ceiling? I think it was domed, Mm -hmm. but I had lights in my eyes I would say those windows may have been up 20, 30 feet high. There were a number of them. And I was thinking to myself, I'm on this table. I'm in a room full of of other races of beings. My mind is being blown. Who would have to hide behind windows? Humans. Humans have to hide behind those windows. This was what I would call an observation down right. or an old surgery. Right, you're looking down, right? Looking down so that they could see what was going on that I couldn't see. So was They're that like a holding ones. cell for all the different ETs? And here you are, a human coming in, and there's 40 other races there. 
and you have this observation deck. I mean, were you informed of, you know, what that room was and why you were there? I got a medical exam. That's the question I was going to ask you. (laughs) Were you physically examined by them, a medical examination? Yes, absolutely. Um, That was one of the reasons that I was there. While I, I laid down on this table like they asked me, and there was above the table, there was a like a rectangle that with inside of it, there was it was like all light. OK, but if you can imagine like mist that is light, do you know what I mean? Like misty, mm-hmm. sure. like the misty illuminated air, mist. illuminated mist. Absolutely. Thank you. I have been trying to figure out a way to describe That's that. That's what we call it. That's what Illuminated we call it. mist. That's perfect. Thank <laughs> you. So I'm laying on this table and there's illuminated mist above me that's coming down. And I feel that I'm outside of my body. And over here is the lavender being who's talking to me and telling me things. While over here, I'm being examined and they're telling the lavender being what they're finding. How were you examined? Well, with, I, I with, with a with a device, uh, some some. Uh, I have absolutely no idea. They removed my consciousness from my body. I was floating above my body. I could see it below me, and I was looking up into the mist. And they said that the mist was for healing and for diagnostics. Okay, and then these people over here were saying things like she, you know, she has um, medication that's causing seizures. There's something wrong with her root chakra. She's sicker than she was supposed to be. We weren't expecting this. You know, they were saying this kind of thing, the, all of these things, and I was hearing them, but they weren't talking to me. They were talking to each other. The only one talking to me was the lavender being. What, what was he saying? He was telling me that this was part of a council mm-hmm. of of beings mm-hmm. that are like guardians of this world and uh, and of the physical planet. They're, they're guardians of this creation. That they know this creator, and that I am here to deliver messages mm-hmm. on their behalf and that this is my job, that I do this over and over again, that I've never done it here in this world, that I've done it in other places where other human biotechnology is being used to create uh, like a conscious awakening, a conscious awareness and growth for the sake of future creations. To take it into, to take the knowledge and the wisdom that is learned so that it can coalesce that knowledge over time and it will inform the next creation. And they're telling me too that not only do I need to remember who I am, but I need to wake up people. Mm-hmm. I need to tell them sure. that they need to remember who they are, why they're here and to prepare to transcend. So. That's, you know, the nuts and bolts. And they told me that there was, that, that we were coming to the end of a cycle mm. of birth and rebirth. Did they give you like a time frame of this transcendence? They didn't then, but they have since then. Before I left, they told me that I would be able to communicate with them at any time now. Mm. That all I had to do was reach out 
if I set the intention to communicate, right. that they they would know and they would communicate back. Were you aware of them putting any type of implant in you or any other artificial intelligence or any devices? I'm not aware of anything. Like I said, I was out of my body. Mm-hmm. It was below me, so I had no physical sensation at that time. Right. Mm-hmm. However, I had sensation, and mm-hmm. it was like warmth and healing and love um, and compassion. Very, very old wisdom. Mm-hmm. It was quite it was quite um, an emotional experience. One, one, one question. Before you went into the cave, did you uh, check the time? what time you went in and when you came out did you check time was there missing time involved when i went in uh it was around 3 p.m and my recollection is that when i came out which we haven't even gotten to how mm-hmm. that happened that it was it was approximately 9 p.m did it feel it like you were gone time. for six hours you know? no 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 it really didn't uh, it didn't feel that way at all. Okay, since uh, you said there was about six hours involved. That's right. Um, how did the uh, experience conclude? I was put back into my body, and I was lowered from the table and walked out of the room and back down the hallway to the alcove that I had originally stepped into. And the only one with me was... The, the the tiny gray droid and the same three tall whites escorted me back to the alcove. Mm. As soon as I got to the alcove, Brian stepped into the base. Okay, he stepped through. And as soon as he did, I mean, I have this amazing memory of him stepping right to me and we're looking eye to eye. And then in a blink, we're standing under that arch in his home. Oh, in his home, not inside the no. inside the cave system. No, oh. they they literally moved us uh, physically. Like moved he said us. at the beginning, this is where I come out. That's right. And yes. He wasn't kidding. Wow. And, and why do you think you were chosen for this uh, meeting? I think it's because I've had a lifelong contact relationship that has laid the groundwork sure. for me to be able to do this. They have actually told me that I, I have been in a craft. Actually, when I was a child, mm-hmm. I was in a craft. And they told me at that time when I was playing with other children who didn't quite look like they could. They didn't quite look human, but they were all humanoid. They didn't have hair, you know, very friendly, very fun. They were quite interested in, in my skin and my clothes that I was wearing and my hair. There was lots of giggling. There were, were three what I would consider adults who were in the room who said to me, these are your brothers and sisters. They couldn't pass for Hume, but you did. And that's why we put your consciousness in this body. Wow. They, they, these were all other consciousnesses that they ended up putting in there because they didn't pass for human. And they needed a particular consciousness in human right. form that could pass and, and do what I'm doing. Angelie. Do you know, uh, I worked in DIA as you worked in DIA. Do you know of a special investigative unit within the Defense Intelligence Agency? No. Mm-mm. Do you know that within that branch, there's a team of uh, investigators that investigate uh, abductions? Oh, fantastic. Good. We, did, did, you, did you know that? No. This is all new. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, their job is to go out and uh, interview 
or sometimes interrogate uh, people who claim to have had an abduction experience. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. You made a uh, presentation in Washington, D.C. That's right. Uh, sometime after that, you were interviewed by two people who claimed to be uh, press people or uh, journalists. Okay. Do you remember the two interview, a man and a woman who interviewed you um, regarding what you, the statements that you made? But they were pr- primarily interested in Brian. Those people. Yes. Do you remember what you told them? Remember the, the the interview that you gave them? I mean, I remember giving them an interview, and I'm sure that everything I said was pretty much in line with with now. At any What's time, it? did you feel that they weren't who they claimed to be? You mean human? No, no, no. <laughs> intelligence officers. Oh. Um, you being an intelligence officer, mm-hmm. you could detect certain questions that that you were being somewhat even wittingly or unwittingly interrogated. I didn't care. You didn't care. Okay. Because that was my mission. I, I didn't go to the Lincoln Memorial and release this information not to get that attention. I mean, that was my intention, to make sure that those who were looking at this, looking at the phenomena, would know what has happened and what they're saying, what these beings are saying to me. But your natural reaction since, number one, you had a security clearance in the mm-hmm. Air Force. Mm-hmm. You had a security clearance within the Defense Intelligence Agency. Mm-hmm. Didn't you expect something like that to occur? Well, I expect made- I expect it all the time. See, I expect it from you. You know, okay. I don't know if you're working. I just assume you are. You know, and that's but it doesn't matter to me because what you do doesn't change what I need to do. So what they do doesn't change what I need to do. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. And I, I have been very clear that I am willing to give interviews and, and statements to anyone who wants to come and take it. So I'm okay with that. If what you said uh, didn't hold any credence with the government, mm-hmm. not, not just the DIA, but the other uh, alphabet soup yes. uh, agencies within the government, uh, they wouldn't have went the means they did to investigate you. So what you say and what you your statements you made at the Lincoln Memorial and 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 beyond uh, must hold some validation with the government. Yes, I've been told that uh, several times now from other other people who are actively working in intelligence that this matches other sources. So I am aware and I welcome you know any opportunity to talk with anyone because this is a this is an issue for humanity. It can't be kept from anyone. It was a validation for yes. your story. Oh, and that's um, nice. It's, a, it's an interest within the government. You make a statement like that, uh, if there wasn't anything to back it up or any background or any historical uh, past incidents of that nature, they wouldn't have cared. Or they wouldn't have done any. They wouldn't have spent time or money investigating you. So you validated your story right there. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Anjali, that was a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to do more episodes with you. Thank you so much you. for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Richard, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank Great you. to be here. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure, I was asleep in my bed, and then suddenly I was in a crack. There were small children they looked pretty human you know i 
instantly thought, oh my God, she went to the uh, great school for gifted kids. We know about, well, at least uh, a dozen of species that have their own uh, hybridization program on Earth. I know personally from the Reagan era, I was very concerned about whether an ET could infiltrate American society. Okay, the gang's all here. Greg Braden, Billy Carson, Armando, Ma'i, Hugh Newman, Kedrick Olson, Rita Louise, Matthew LaCroix, Andrew Collins, William Henry, Freddie Silva, Matthias Stefano. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have this one now. This is Layers of Machu Picchu. Oh, when was Machu Picchu built? And could its megalithic foundations offer evidence of a pre-Diluvian connection? With over 200 structures uncovered and more still being discovered, evidence at Machu Picchu is pointing to contrasting time periods with architects of differing sophistication challenging researchers since the public reveal by Hiram Bingham in 1911. Uh, Machu Picchu is proving to be more than a piece of history left by the Incan Empire and to have positive interstellar links. All right, and this one is 28 minutes. Here we go. It's coming. Located 7,972 feet above sea level in the mountains of Peru, sits Machu Picchu Temple Complex. Often referred to as the lost city of the Inca, Machu Picchu is an astounding feat of engineering and believed to have been inhabited around 1420 to 1530. But who else inhabited this site long before the Inca civilization began building upon these foundational wonders. When was it built? And who shaped these megalithic foundations have challenged alternative researchers and scientists. Evidence from several areas of this sacred mountaintop point to a pre-Diluvian interstellar connection. As with all the legendary relics on this planet, This one contains many secrets. 
What were our ancient ancestors doing at this sacred site before the legendary end of the world? When we think of the mysteries of ancient civilizations in South America, inevitably Machu Picchu comes to mind. And even today, it remains one of the most mysterious of the ancient sites in the Southern Andes, because the more that is revealed and the more we discover, the more mysterious the site becomes. Hiram Bingham is the man from Yale University that we say discovered Machu Picchu in 1911, although it was already known to the locals. He discovered it for the Western world. This site that was largely overgrown and under the, the jungle canopy, he could see portions of Machu Picchu poking up above the canopy. It's right on the edge of a rainforest. So it's typically very humid and very warm. And that is why there was so much overgrowth that was there. And the first part of the excavation was to clear that growth. They chose to do it through fire. So in 1912, the site today that is Machu Picchu was burned to reveal just how much and how extensive this site really is. And this is where the mysteries really began. From a geologic perspective, the architecture and the way that Machu Picchu was built and where it's situated, it's fascinating. When I went to Machu Picchu in 2017, what's very interesting is I saw evidence of ancient structures underneath what's there now. So this tells me what I've seen all over the world, the same thing. Ancient cultures build something megalithic, and then another culture comes after them, builds something else on top of that. And the higher you go, as you're coming closer to modern era, you find that the structures become smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, Machu Picchu is still an amazing feat of technology. However, there is evidence there that beneath what we see with our eyes, there is another structure underneath that that's even older and more megalithic, leading to the fact that these Incans actually stumbled into that area and inherited what was already there. It doesn't mean that they didn't gain any knowledge by being there, but initially that area was built by a culture even far more ancient than them. What impresses are the stones used to build the city. The working of the stones appear unusual for an Inca knowledge. The blocks are made of granite containing quartzite, that is one of the hardest material in nature. And these blocks have an average weight of 50 tons that were cut and put together in such precise way that was totally unknown to the local civilization. Archaeological evidences show that the Inca didn't have precise devices to manage the granite. That is why Machu Picchu is an enigma. But who built the city? and why the city was built, and what was its original function. Machu Picchu is clearly one of the most important sites on the planet. It's really quite unique. Its placement within the landscape, within the sacred valley, all the beautiful mountains, the scenery around it. But it's really what's built into it, which is the most important, and especially the megalithic aspect, the earlier foundation of the site, which was later adopted by the Inca. Speculation on what this sacred site was used for in our ancient past is full of myth and legend. 
several areas of this temple complex seem to have been constructed by the Inca Empire. But the question is, why did they build all of the smaller stone walls and corridors to encase the ancient megalithic temple monuments? Heroes on a spiritual journey were surely tested as they made their way from the coasts of the South Pacific and climbed to nearly one and a half miles above sea level. But why was this sacred location, deep in the mountains of Peru, chosen by our ancient ancestors before the chaos began in the atmosphere? Machu Picchu is built in a fault zone, and it is built on the lower portion of a fault zone, literally on top of faults. And the thinking from the engineers today is that this may have been intentional because those faults allow for drainage from the water as it's a rainforest draining away from the site rather than the site being mired in in puddles of water in the rainy season. There are over 200 buildings in Machu Picchu proper and more are still being excavated as more of the site is being revealed from undergrowth. But of those 200 sites, what we begin to see is that the architecture is so very, very different because it appears that Machu Picchu was not built all at one time. There was a portion that is very sophisticated, very sophisticated stonework, similar to what we see in the other parts of Peru and what we see in Egypt. Large, massive stone blocks that fit only where they are fitting with the stone next to them. They could not fit anywhere else with intricate detail. Between the stones, there is less than one one thousandth of an inch tolerance, and there's no mortar holding these stones together. What engineers have found is that not only are they intricately interlocked, but they also are always built at an angle. There's an offset to vertical. There are no vertical walls in this old part of Machu Picchu. And the reason is because by building at the offset with these interlocking blocks, it makes them earthquake proof. And this is one of the reasons in a geologic fault zone where there are earthquakes, why these buildings have remained for as long as they have. And this is the oldest part of Machu Picchu. Then there are other parts of Machu Picchu that are obviously more recent. And just as we see on the Giza Plateau in Egypt and throughout the rest of Egypt, when the newer architecture was attempted, whoever was attempting it did not have the technology to replicate the sophistication in the older buildings. So they could never build with the sophistication that we see in the older portions of of Machu Picchu. So there's a couple bits of evidence that suggest that there was a culture in Machu Picchu even before the Inca. When we look at the construction styles, we find that there are three distinct different kinds of constructions. The oldest used these polygonal shaped stones that were surgically placed without mortar. It suggested it was a fairly advanced culture doing that. After that, there was a culture carving structures straight out of protruding bedrock that they could build upon. Finally, when the Incas came in, they were making use of the structures that were already there, but the things that they built really weren't as sophisticated or as nicely done as those two previous cultures. 
Even the work of Brian Forrester, when he's talking to the indigenous people of Peru, those people said, yes, there were cultures here way before the Inca in Machu Picchu that were creating these things and building. And then when the Incas came in, they built on what was already there. How could these stones be cut so precisely? Could there have been a scientific construction method used by the ancient pre-Diluvian gods thousands of years ago to shape these stones? Some scientists are beginning to consider this the poured stone theory for portions of Machu Picchu, the pulverizing of native stone, mixing it with epoxy, pouring it into molds to achieve close tolerances between the stones and also to achieve very unique shapes between the stones where the one stone had to fit precisely to the stone next to it because no other shape would fit. One of the fascinating things about Machu Picchu is there are no square corners. It's very, very feminine. Feminine rounded corners everywhere on all of the blocks and even the Temple of the Sun is the only temple in all of Machu Picchu that has rounded walls is aligned with the sun for as a solstice marker so we know precisely how it was used and what it was used for. And all of this suggests that this may have been more of a ceremonial site and a ceremonial site at least orchestrated from a feminine perspective. One of the things that seems evident is that Machu Picchu was a ritual slash sacred site. And one of the things they found just outside of the main aspect of Machu Picchu were these ritual baths so that people could cleanse and purify themselves because when you went to Machu Picchu, you were stepping on holy ground. You were stepping in the land of the gods or the holy of holies in this area. And the ritual baths really do let you know how sacred this land was to these people. When we look at Machu Picchu and we delve into the history of that civilization that lived there, we find evidence that instead of being ruled by kings, it was actually ruled by divine feminine energy through a noble woman known as Koya Pasca, who was considered the consort of the ancient sun god of the Inca. And instead of being based on ritual, it was based on ceremony and practices. It looks like based on the evidence of studying that ancient site, that instead of being part of a civilization that lived there, it was more of a ceremonial aspect using the ancient temples to reach higher divine states of energy and consciousness. So the question is, who built Machu Picchu? Where did it come from? And this is a big part of the mystery because there are many, many theories. The truth is we do not know precisely who built Machu Picchu. One of the reasons we don't know is because there are no written records in Machu Picchu. Archaeologists today often will date an archaeological site by carbon dating the biological data that is found in that site, the biological information. Because we cannot carbon date stone, we can only carbon date something that has been alive. When a, a biological organism is living on Earth, it is absorbing carbon from the environment a very specific rate of absorption and when that organism dies that carbon begins to decay and it begins to release that carbon at a very specific rate and it's based upon these ratios that scientists can determine what's called carbon 14 dating 
You cannot do that with a stone. The questions around the date of construction for these megalithic foundations remains this mountaintop's biggest mystery. But another architectural mystery found at this sacred site may link it to several other ancient pre-Diluvian cultures. The triptych. So one of the design aspects of Machu Picchu is really interesting, and it appears to be in the Temple of the Three Windows. These three windows, or kind of doorways, are what are called a triptych temple. Now, this is an ancient tradition which is found all over the world, where the two outer windows appear to represent the sides of ourselves, the lower kind of parts of the human kind of psyche, whereas the central one represents the divine inner part of ourselves. There's different variations on this in different cultures, but this was adopted throughout the world, and it's found many megalithic sites, many Mayan sites as well in Mexico. We find it in Egypt. We find it in traditions in India and the Middle East, and it even got adopted by the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians as part of their tradition. The fact that you're finding these triptych designs in many different cultures is is quite interesting because we find it not only in like places like Machu Picchu and other parts of Peru and Bolivia, but we find it very significantly in the world of the Maya in Mexico. So, is this another connection proving there may have been kind of communication and ideas and even migrations between these two ancient cultures? Could these temples found at Machu Picchu provide a link to a vast cultural network shared before the Great Deluge? One temple in particular, the Torian, reveals a strong pre-Diluvian signature, a celestial connection. One of the most important structures at Machu Picchu is the Torian. Now, this is a tower. That's actually built into the living rock. That would seem to have been of great astronomical importance. In the centre of it, for instance, there is some kind of raised rock feature, which would seem to indicate that this location was important even before the building of this monument. But it has a door, what's known as the serpent door. That would seem to look out over the local landscape, but then there are these two windows, trapezoidal windows, and this was seen to have been very specifically placed so that you could watch the Pleiades, and the Pleiades would seem to have been a crucially important constellation in Incan and pre-Incan tradition. Several sources connect ancient civilizations in South America with the Pleiades, especially the star Maya. Could the original builders of the foundations at Machu Picchu have been from the star Maya? At Machu Picchu, there's a particular temple called the Torreon. From above, it kind of looks like a big shape of the letter P. And it has a window in it which is aligned to the June solstice. Now, in the southern hemisphere, that's the winter solstice, based around the 21st of June. Obviously, that's different to the northern hemisphere. What's also interesting is that it also marks and, and frames the movement of the Pleiades as well. 
as it moves through the sky. And specifically the star Maya, the brightest star of the Pleiades, is also witnessed at this time of year. During the winter solstice sunrise in June in Peru, it lines up with a carved grooved stone on the floor in the temple. And this particular part of the stone illuminates not long after the time of sunrise. And so you actually get a marker stone which directly illuminates, marking this time of year. And also it then matches the movement of the Pleiades, which is going on way distant behind it. And so there's a lot going on just in one temple here, and it suggests that most of the site and all the other sites in this part of the world are aligning themselves, measuring very accurately the movement of the stars. The Torreon is the most important building at Machu Picchu. Underneath the Torreon, carved out of the cliff, is a sacred space devoted to the sun god, Inti. Now, Inti is a very interesting character because he's portrayed as a humanoid figure whose face is shimmering like the sun. He's considered a sun god. And Inti has Pachamama, who in some instances is considered to be his mother as well as his consort. This is something similar like what, to what we see in Egypt with Isis Hathor and her son Horus, or in the case of Hathor, her companion Ra, the sun god. We're talking about a sun god and a connection to a goddess who represents the earth mother. And this is affirmed with what happened after the Spanish conquistadors came into Peru. When they came in, they converted the, the Incas to Catholicism, to Christianity. Pachamama, the earth goddess, the earth mother, became aligned with the Virgin Mary, the, the Virgin Mother. And her son, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus now took on the attributes of Inti. So we see this very interesting correspondence going from Egypt into Peru, and now with Christianity being the new level or iteration of this concept. Another one of the keys to the use of Machu Picchu is the cosmological link between specific portions of Machu Picchu and the stars, the Andean night sky. The highest point of Machu Picchu, there's a monument that is called the Intihuatana. Intihuatana literally translates into hitching post of the sun. And it is believed that this was a solar marker. Uh, and even today on the equinox, when the sun is directly overhead, there's no shadow cast. And there are very precise shadows that are cast on the solstices, the, the winter and the summer solstice, in a way that local people still use and still recognize to this time. But the cosmology goes beyond just looking at the sun, because now it has been recently recognized that there are portions of Machu Picchu that are the earthen mirror to the sky, to cosmological constants, including the three stars in the belt of Orion. So just the way that we see on the Giza Plateau, the three pyramids line up under the belt of Orion, it appears that something very similar is happening in Peru under the Andean night sky. Could the connections between the gods of Egypt and those of the Inca be a clue to the identity of the ancient builders of Machu Picchu? And if so, who could be responsible for transmitting these traditions to different cultures around the world? One example of these legendary wise elders is the Inca deity Viracocha. 
The tales from South America speak of him as a wise teacher in the arts of civilization. A Wittekoshen literally means a tilted plane, almost like a tilted plane on a, that you find on a roof to make sure that the water falls off the roof, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever until you realize that Wittekoshen was a master astronomer. Now, an astronomer would understand that term because the term of a tilted plane literally is the plane of the Earth relative to the plane that exists to define the plane of the ecliptic in the universe. So it's the Earth's relationship to the level of the plane of the sky, and that's made up of two different tilted planes. So the name Virakosha literally is a name of someone who understands the mechanics of the sky, and that makes a lot of sense for an astronomer. That's the first part of the equation. The next part is... Who were his seven helpers? Because wherever civilization appears on the face of the earth after the flood, they appear at the same time, around eight and a half thousand BC, and is always one charismatic leader who leads seven craftspeople, experts in their field. And in South America, they're called the High High Wapanti. Now, in Aymara, that means the shining ones. And at a stroke, you just linked these people to the followers of Horus in Egypt, who are also called the shining ones. And again, they're described exactly as an Egyptian would. So there are seven people, one of whom is a woman who carries the bloodline of the group and also happens to be the wife of the charismatic leader. So I wouldn't for one moment suggest that they're the same group of people that were in Egypt. I'm suggesting that these were the same groups that appeared all around the world that belonged to the same academy following exactly the same description. And that's what makes Virakosha and his group so important because they were they brought civilization to the part of the world that had been decimated by a global flood. And that's what the local traditions tell us about this incredible builder god. Could the building of Machu Picchu go back beyond ancient Egypt to possibly the time of the Mu and Atlantean empires, making the date of its inception even earlier? There is a connection between Egypt and Machu Picchu, but during the Atlantean civilization, not before. All the territory of the Andes was being taken care of by the Mu civilization. So all what was close to the Pacific was a move construction before, way before Atlantis came. As we know today, Machu Picchu, of course, was not like that. It was totally different because the construction was just the basis of stones, like platforms, so people could go and receive. The new civilization built this basis around to receive the people from the skies, but also to teach to the people from this earth about all what the masters were bringing here. Machu Picchu, before any humans took power on the territory, was a school for humans to learn about the art of manifestation. It was a place between the territory of the gods that were the mountains with the territory of the people that were the rainforest. So the people from the rainforest would come to this school and the people from the skies would come to that school to teach them and then they would go back to the forest. So it was the middle point where everyone would connect. And that Atlantic civilization got to control Central America and from there going through the Amazon and 
looking for the place of manifestation that today would be Peru and Bolivia. So through the Amazon River, you reach the valleys of Cusco. So you find the school, the great school of manifestation. So all this territory, once the musicalization fell down, disappeared. All these people from Atlantis, they came to South America, Central America, North America. So that's why there was a connection with Egypt historically. But also there was another connection which was related to the old Equator. The old Equator was a line that the Atlanteans were following in order to access the, the main movement of the magnetical field of the planet in that moment, crossing through Machu Picchu, Nazca, all the territory of Peru, going straight through the Amazons, going through Mauritania, Cambodia, through India, and then Egypt. And so it would connect that part of the South Peru with Egypt in a straight line. They were using this all Equator to access the information that was flowing around the planet. The age of Machu Picchu truly is older, so much older than we've been led to believe. It's possible because of the continuity of knowledge from civilization to civilization that this could be linked to some of the feminine principles of much earlier times, including Lemuria, including Atlantis. So as we begin to understand these relationships, the mystery in the Machu Picchu deepens because we still don't know where the people that built Machu Picchu came from. The technology was never replicated again, where they went when they left, and what was the purpose of this magnificent complex that they left as their legacy for us today. As with most pre-Diluvian cultures, Orion and the Pleiades play a predominant role in the legendary tales. But what other celestial secrets may remain buried in this majestic mountain? As the mainstream continues to find evidence that the lost city is older than originally believed, it is hard to deny that there are foundational connections between this enigmatic site and cultures around the world. Were there a group of wise ones who helped humanity rebuild after the Great Flood? Were there several groups of wise ones from the same school of initiation? And were they responsible for guiding humanity back to these sacred ceremonial sites to reconnect with the ancient ways of living, where connection between the stars and our planet was like a tightrope? But as the connection frayed, the heroes of humanity heard the call to go within, to unite the heart and mind, and help this planet be a powerful and positive influence in our galaxy. many things leading us beyond the norm of society today. Mm. We have another Regina Meredith, so let's see what she's got here. How can ET contact lead to a spiritual awakening beyond the dualistic nature of the three-dimensional reality? 
citing her years of experience as a clinical hypnotherapist, Lori McDonald offers insight into what humanity can learn from ET encounters revealed through hypnotherapy. <coughs> oh my goodness. Regression work. Please excuse me. Groups who use meditative manifestation techniques to consciously experience to consciously experience UFO and ET phenomena have reported increased extraterrestrial abilities and a connection to a higher spiritual potential. Lori McDonald is a consciousness researcher and clinical hypnotherapist and president of Opus Organization for Personal Understanding and Support. She has previously appeared on Gaia on both Open Minds and Beyond Belief, discussing her journey with ET contact experiences. So this is Regina Meredith and Laura McDonald. Mm. And again, it's 47 minutes, so let's do it. subject of ETs during regression work as a hypnotherapist. There are so many that come to visit with their own agendas. My concerns actually is when people appear disempowered, then we are opening ourselves up to be taken advantage of from an extraterrestrial. We're so vulnerable because we simply have amnesia, not because we lack capability. It is up to us ultimately to save ourselves in this third dimensional dualistic reality. There are two things to master. One is love and the other is fear and when we understand the dualistic nature of both of those things we're accelerating our spiritual understanding clinical hypnotherapist Lori mcdonald is back with us and today we're going to be talking about contacting et's via regression and their effect on the experiencer. One question Lori will answer is, is ET contact a spiritual awakening? Because that's how a lot of people render it later on. But we're not to that part in the conversation yet, but we are going to get to that. And so welcome back. Thank you. It's good to see you and your beautiful blunt hair again. Always good to be here. Thank you, Regina. <laughs> so you've been doing this for a long time, the subject of ETs during regression work as a hypnotherapist. And there are kind of periods where things start changing, anomalies start happening, and more patterns and such. We're going to talk about what is new and the commonalities of these experiences because it changes. It, does it change. changes as the era changes, the years change, and a lot has changed. Well, I think so, ETs may be getting bolder. Well, there you go. First of all, let's talk about that. Is this coming through more when you're doing your regression work now? It is coming through in regression work, but not only there. Um, working with a set amount of experiencers who own land and have old mines on the land. Mines? Yeah, so gold mines, malachite in particular. Well, we live right in the Sierra Foothills practically. Well, right. I do. You're nearby. Yeah. Where all those old gold mines have been abandoned. And have always had um, anomalous 
and extraterrestrial no, I sightings around them. We talk about Michael Tellinger talks about it, South Does Africa, he? and yeah, and the gold mining of the original, you know, slave species of the gods and all oh, of that. Sure. But now let's talk about what you're saying because you're saying this has been going on all along. All along, I think that they're still interested in our minerals and a particular element that they may need. Not all extraterrestrials. There are so many um, that come to visit and all with their own agendas, but there's an object has recently appeared on site of one of my experiencers and they're out in the desert and there's really no reason for this other than the old mines uh, that have been left abandoned there that he now owns. Is this out in Nevada or California? Nevada. Okay. Yeah. They have a lot of silver mines there in particular and other Mm -hmm. metals. Other metals and other minerals. So they're interested in a lot, not just the gold. I mean, the gold, that whole uh, gathering of gold was for a specific reason, and it was the Anunnaki using right. it to stabilize right. their atmosphere. That's the story people are familiar with. Right. Well, it's kind of like our chemtrails yeah. perhaps have another purpose outside of what people think when they're spraying worldwide. I've seen them in every continent that I've traveled to. Yes, so I have to, actually. Yeah. So. so Okay, so let's get back to, just for a moment... Just tell us what the element is that they that is that they seem to be looking for right now. No, <laughs> we're <laughs> we're keeping that back so far. Okay, um, because I'm having a science committee look at it. Okay, and when they get back to me, then I'll be screaming it. I'll tell you first if you want, Regina. Yeah, tell us first. Uh, other people have already talked to. It's not that big of a secret, but there is evidence indicating that certain ex extraterrestrials are still mining our planet mm-hmm. and an object has recently been found uh, that's being brought into the office and we're going to have a look at it mm-hmm. i'll probably involve some of the people at opus mm-hmm. and have them take a look at it and see what we can come up with interesting you know, so uh, just is it mineral rather than i'm not playing 20 questions no it's mineral it's mineral okay. it is mineral right. for sure yeah. yeah and so the experiences are changing and uh, the ets are not um i think that they know that the presence of them is almost accepted now. Right. I think the whole terminology change from UFO to UAP, that's how the government takes things over. They give it a new title, they change the name, and they begin to... Slip it to the New York Times. Exactly, (laughs) right. And then we see it in the Washington Poster. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, but to... Definitely, when they changed the name, uh, things began to change there, letting it out. But that's their... You mean UAPs? Yeah. Changing a UAP? Yeah. Yeah. No. Unidentified aerial phenomena instead of UFO. Right. Right. And that was just in the last five years. Well, yeah. They did that specifically for some committees Mm -hmm. that they created. Exactly. But uh, they know and have known for a very long time. But the ETs are becoming a little bit bolder. You know how all the sightings are primarily at night or Mm -hmm. when it's ambiguous or one's showing up in uh, in the middle of the night at the foot of your bed or something like that. Not so much anymore. It's more daytime, face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact. People have said they want more conscious, lucid experiences, Mm -hmm. and they are experiencing that. Got a whole group of people uh, vectoring in and calling in uh, UFOs. Mm -hmm. But what are we seeing? It's very difficult with the ability to group manifest. Are they creating? Are they conjuring? 
are the UFOs just waiting there to reveal themselves? All these things are questions that we should be asking rather than accepting a flat one-dimensional answer. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So I have a lot of older people interested in past experiences now. Okay. 70 to 75 years old, they've had experiences in their youth. They're, again, getting on in age, and they want to have answers before mm-hmm. they check out. Interesting. So now you were talking about this boldness. So when you're doing regressions on humans, mm-hmm. are you finding that ETs are often now tapping in on from the other side and coming maybe through them or to them? Yeah, they're communicating uh, mm-hmm. during a session. Mm-hmm. The ET said this or said that or believes this or that. And we can ask. Kind of like when Dolores Cannon was working and they started telling her right. a couple subjects, a bunch of stuff. So you're experiencing this quite a bit. Quite a bit of information is coming through. We are so incredibly busy with everybody coming in wanting regressions or having, you know, not particularly extraterrestrial abduction experiences, but contact Mm -hmm. or they were receiving downloads Mm -hmm. or they feel that uh, there's some commonalities here. I think the top three commonalities is one that the human, Uh all of the different races, we're talking about the reptilians. Or, the, or a Pleiadian or some other extraterrestrial from some far off red dwarf star system. They're all interested in us. We're the common denominator. They're all coming here. They're interested in, of course, reproduction for hybridization program. But the third thing that continues to come up is psychism. A lot of the experiencers are displaying obvious latent psychic ability. Mm-hmm. And develop psychism over the following two or three weeks after contact. Mm-hmm. That high heightened increased psychic ability, both sending and receiving messages. Mm-hmm. But just because you hear a message in your head, and that's off-putting to many mm-hmm. people, does not mean that it's extraterrestrial. Right, right. And you're very grounded this way. When you're looking and analyzing, you're very clear to note, there are some people who are paranoid. There are some people who are delusional. There are some people who have had actual experiences they need to um, unpack mm-hmm. psychologically and emotionally. And you do a good job of kind of separating those out and staying with what's essential. Absolutely. The idea is to give the experiencer a reasonable understanding of their experience mm-hmm. And, and not inflating it in any way. Mm-hmm. When we do that, we're, we've now changed the dynamic and we're not dealing with reality. Mm-hmm. So we want to be as grounded and as realistic as possible so that we can gain as much information. This actually helps me in doing psychological profiling of the ETs after mm-hmm. we interview the witness. Mm-hmm. We, I'll just make separate columns to begin writing out behaviors from the ETs so we can see which ETs exhibit specific behaviors so one might know what to anticipate if mm-hmm. they do find themselves in that situation. Now, And it's pretty likely when we look at the numbers, Now, I think the last report said that the majority of Americans do accept the fact that, that there are extraterrestrials and that they do come to visit. Yes, and so let's let's talk about, uh, you said there are a variety of different beings, and we know this, mm-hmm. but are you seeing that there is maybe one species that is showing up a little more than the others? 
in well, your work? Or? It, okay, so my work isn't just with abduction, but in abduction, mm-hmm. then it's always a combination mm-hmm. of a mantis, of a reptilian, and there are multiple forms of reptilian, and 22.2 subspecies of greys. Mm-hmm. including the Zetas. And mm-hmm. so we see all of them involved humans as well. Mm-hmm. So that draws in the my lab. So some humans are sighted often mm-hmm. in abduction. So current experiencer, I prompted her under regression to rise above the body and view the room. She could see four other beds, tables really, mm-hmm. with other people. And she realized that they all came from the same batch. Now, the word batch, batch, what's that mean? The same batch, that there's a batch of created. She considered herself one of them? or Okay. And she felt that they were all there for a checkup. So Hard- she felt she was hybrid? Uh, yeah, hybrid. Mm-hmm. But she also felt that the extraterrestrials involved were doing something to limit or restrict her, her psychism in sending and receiving uh, messages. The human themselves are natural uh, receivers. We're total receivers. Mm-hmm. It's the job of the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. It's simply a receiver. It receives everything outside of our optical ability, mm-hmm. trillions of bits of information mm-hmm. flowing and being put into the appropriate compartments based on the emotional impact of it lengthens or shortens the neural pathway for us to access that information. Mm-hmm. Why would they be limiting that? What did she say? Well, she thinks that they're suppressing that in us right. because what will happen is it'll give us the ability to communicate without a cell phone. We're, Which is where we're headed. Well, sending and receiving messages mm-hmm. telepathically, distance uh, shouldn't be a barrier. Mm-hmm. And we do have some evidence that states all humans at one time, we're fully telepathic. We still developed vocal cords. We still spoke. We had a spoken language. Right now, there are there is 7,000 different spoken languages, 5,000 which have the written word. So an extraterrestrial can't simply know 7,000 mm-hmm. languages. Mm-hmm. We have 5,000 echoplanets that have just recently been discovered. You know, what if they have 5,000 languages? You know, this isn't all about the language. It's not the words. It's psychotronics. Right. It's technology. Yes. They're not sending a psychic message like this. Right. It, this is technology, the same technology that we are currently using. And you talk about they're using synthetic right. technology. In the Pentagon, it's common verbiage synthetic telepathy it's what we use it's what they would use to send a message to uh, an assassin any covert black ops operation you can program somebody with psychotronics in fact here's the saddest thing of all regina is that psychotronics could be used to propagate health to prompt wellness and not only in the mind, but in the body as well. Psychotronics has been weaponized. Oh, it's been weaponized. And many people in this field of endeavor have been subject to it. And you can you see how powerful it is and how it almost feels as though there's nothing you can do against it. But you can. You can. Yeah, you but can you, change your you, frequency. You have to change your frequency. And right. you have 
to change your brain frequency. Right, and you can do that actually really easily. People should know that. Um, yeah, talk about that. Yeah, you are able to do that. Breath, first off, is the body's frequency modulator. And just as we all have, well, most of us have thumbprints, fingerprints, we also have an electromagnetic signature mm-hmm. that allows them to tune into you to drop that message. Just like words can change your DNA, particular thought patterns mm-hmm. can change the frequency that you're emitting. Mm-hmm. Scrambles it a little bit, makes them a little bit a little bit harder for them to target or find you. Yeah, but they are. There are many people who are targeted. Oh yes, and we'll. It, I just want to add one thing. I think it's also important to recognize. Uh, your own higher mind, the own, your own um, higher self, whatever, whichever someone's comfortable with, mm-hmm. has the ability to also modulate and shift those frequencies for you. Yeah, that's All right. you have to do is be aware that this is needed. And you can work in collaboration with yourself as well on all levels, electromagnetically if and you with know higher yourself. mind. If you know yourself and if you know that what's just occurred is not you. Yeah, you have to be able to differentiate. You have to be discerning. Because they, they can send um, a voice into your head. Mm-hmm. It can sound slightly robotic. Mm-hmm. It can sound uh, beautiful. It can sound high-pitched, tonal. Um, it can also sound like your very own voice. Mm-hmm. So you must know yourself because Absolutely. you get the defeating thought, causing a spiraling of depression. It's not even real. It's right. not true. So know your own mind, know your own thoughts. And I I hope that everybody begins some form of meditation mm-hmm. because the more you meditate, the more you're going to produce a gamma brain waves. Yes. Gamma brain waves are the higher perception. And this is what we want to be able to do. Now, staying away from other electronics um, is helpful. Yeah. And that's difficult. Like here in Boulder, it's that 5G is ubiquitous. Now, in this beautiful mountainous town, your city, there's 5G everywhere. And of course, you know, I think it's easy to imagine that this can be utilized and co-opted to piggyback with other types of signals, too. Yeah, well, so 5G has been around for an extraordinarily long time, decades. Um, And it's a military application. It works as a burst of energy. So the energy is shot upwards and umbrellas out into... Uh, about a uh, 800 foot radius. That's why they require so many. So many of the towers. Yeah. Right. Because they have to piggyback off. But them. now that they built those towers, it's not just military. Now right. No, now, well, that's when it was for military. Right. But so now, uh, mm-hmm. what are we using it for? Hmm? <laughs> exactly. Because people are saying, hey, I liked my 4G. It worked just great. And yet we don't seem to be given a choice in it. I'm seeing towers pop up in the country where well, I live. They called it 5G. Uh, hoping that people would assume that that's a natural progression mm-hmm. from fourth generation right. to five. You know, that's not fifth generation. That would happen way long ago. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's just another way to make it more acceptable to people so that they won't resist. Right. Well, they're not usually informed to begin with. So it's True. just there. It appears there. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you were talking about is this when extraterrestrials using this synthetic kind of telepathy to work with individuals. So it's not just 5G. You're saying extraterrestrials are working with this. Well, when you're getting a psychic message or mm-hmm. a, from, uh, that's the other commonality. One mm-hmm. of the top four then is telepathy. Mm-hmm. The way they communicate is telepathic, but it's not telepathic. 
they just feel that it is. Mm-hmm. It's a projected it's a signal into you. Yeah. I think it's important to note too at this point, Lori, is this goes under the area of overly concerned or paranoia. As many people that are going into alternative sources of information, one of the first things that happens is people become intrigued with conspiracy theory, for example. Sure. And it's normal. It's like, whoa, I've been lied to and you want to go down every rabbit hole. Sure. But you, People need, everyone watching this needs to understand there aren't that many people out there that are really of interest on that specific a level. There, as you say, there are people who are involved with black ops and intelligence, and these are people of interest that they are going to be targeted. Your average person watching this right now is not going to be personally targeted. No, absolutely not. Uh, And until there's a reason. You'd have to be, have something you're doing of extreme interest, some kind of profile. Exactly. Yes. Something, um, or, okay, another alternative possibly is just an, a mass, uh, change where a, a signal could change everybody's that's perception. True, that's different. Yeah. And, and so that's the other possibility because right. now they're using things like holographs or synthetic optical mm-hmm. vision where they can create a, a seamless Seamless, whether you're awake or asleep, a seamless, a landscape, mm-hmm. and you'll move from one into the other without knowing. And so that's sort of virtual reality. Yeah, the technology is yeah. there. Yeah. But again, we're the mighty human. You know, this is the part of the story that gets lost so often as people are staring to the heavens and praying for some command to come and save us. I am not down with those theories and practices whatsoever i don't want anyone to save us i'm no. going to just be straight there yeah that's I'm a huge you. mistake huge mistake if and that's one of the my concerns actually is when people appear disempowered yes and are warring with each other then we are opening ourselves up, up to be taken advantage of in a negative way absolutely from an extraterrestrial yes. i mean we're giving them an open door because we look disempowered mm-hmm. when we can come from a place of personal and mass empowerment, which is healthy and just to clear things. True personal empowerment really generates deep feelings of inner peace, mm-hmm. of self-acceptance, the ability to embrace the true mm-hmm. self. And the true self is just another way of saying spiritual self. Absolutely. And we have this multidimensionality that none of these tricks and tricksters are addressing. So we have to stay in that vertical alignment with ourselves. It's so important. I, I couldn't agree. agree with you more. Nobody's coming to save us and don't ask no, them and No, to. we don't want them we to. We do not want we, that. We, if we can't save ourselves, yeah. and then we need another kick at the can here yeah. and to try to come up out it to, from a different perspective. Yeah, It is up to us ultimately uh, to save ourselves. That's just being a good parent. Yeah. You know, a good parent is, you know, you're done parenting when your child no longer needs you. Yes. Then you did your job. Yes. Now they just want you. Yes. But that need, that changes things. Yes, it does. So now let's go back to some of the anomalies you're seeing. Because one of them we were talking about was um, a dome, a projected like holographic dome and UFO Let's talk about what's being projected that you're hearing through some of these people. So we kind of know what kind of tricks are up. Okay, so there's I've had several people tell me this year that prior to uh, contact and abduction, uh, they saw a like a green grid 
dome shape over their house and area. Hmm. And it was as if they were being shut off from anybody else being able to see or hear or to be involved in any way. Now, the first time I heard it, I contemplated what that could be. And then I heard it again. And then I've heard it again. And I'm hearing it still. There's some strange green grid, a grid pattern that seems like a dome that takes over areas. And underneath that, this is where the extraterrestrials are just walking and free to show themselves and do whatever they want to do with people that they're engaging. Almost kind of a shielding. It's a shielding. Mm-hmm. And it first appears in this green, alien green, uh-huh. <laughs> a, like a laser green. Well, it's interesting. Years ago, um, as I was uh, coming to consciousness and I kind of rolled out of my body a little bit, mm-hmm. I, I rolled out onto a green grid. Really? Yeah, a green laser, laser <sighs> lines of that almost phosphorescent bright green grid. But you know what I saw Hmm. is it was a grid. The grid actually contained at the vector points is where all information was programmed. Wow. All these grids with massive amounts of vector points and massive amounts of information as if it was holding the memory of every sentient thing on this planet. I didn't find it remotely intimidating or anything. I was fascinated by it. So that's how I saw that grid. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily the same grid that these people are seeing. It may be something I mean, else. I saw it constructed once as well. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, recovering uh, from some of the surgery I've had and um, rolled out of my body mm-hmm. because I was in so much pain. And I'm uh-huh. allergic to all pain medication. I'm allergic to... Um, Antibiotics and a lot you of just gotta suffer through it, girl. Right? Suffer right on through it. So <laughs> elevated yeah. myself a bit yeah. out of my body to yeah. not feel the pain so much, and uh, kept rose so quick. I, I actually hit the grid mm-hmm. and saw it and couldn't pass it. That interest. I couldn't move past the grid, and then I came back down uh, into my body. Interesting. I didn't try to go through it. I, I was just fascinated at watching its function and these huge balls of light that lit up at every vector point filled with all this information. Well, everything is information. Yeah, yeah. And it was just showing it was a storage system. That was all. But I didn't try to do anything with it. Where so you we can access this. Oh, that's so- what I saw. Is it's all Everything that's ever been is accessible. It's right there. Now, and, and extraterrestrials, mm-hmm. and again, just, you know, entities that live off planet. Right. You know, nothing special. Mm-hmm. Maybe older, maybe more technically advanced, just to some sentient, some mm-hmm. AI, just different. They do come, and maybe they are using that grid. Maybe they are for their own purposes, but also using human DNA for their own purposes, which, hey, yeah, well, okay. I don't believe that we're, our DNA is going to propagate the health of an extraterrestrial race when they've already got advanced technology. Some of their own citizens are uh, part AI, right. like the sh- a small greys, uh, the taller greys, more sentient entity. Uh, the tall, the shorter ones are programmed. You know, they've got a set amount of duties that they're capable of performing. They have 
limited free thinking because they're hive minded. Mm-hmm. But now they're created. But what about other entities, other types of entities, not the greys, that maybe would like a little bit of the incredible power of creativity and spirit that the human has? Not theirs. So the human, yeah. and we've discussed this before, the definition of what we are is in the name. Hue the light is a, how we measure the depth or saturation of specific whites. We measure that in hues. Man coming from the word manifestation. To come into the physical or to be embodied. Human, light and body being. Race and gender are subcategories of that. Right. And so that's also about knowing what you are. Mm-hmm. When you know what you are, you're able to see those larger uh, answers to those philosophical questions that we've pondered for hundreds of years. Yes. They're not that difficult anymore when you know what you are. Yeah. And so part of the hybridization program, I've always believed, was they're creating a hybrid that will have a soul, that light, which they do not have. Yes. So they can hijack our ascension. Our ascension is the chronological order of rising in awareness. Well, I did an interview with a former Archdeacon of the Anglican Church, Paul Ooh. Wallace, out of Australia, who deals with a lot with the subject of UFOs now, of, of um, abductees and such. And uh, Father Sean O'Lar, both of them talking about the uniqueness of the human being That's and right. going back historically about the attempt to suppress the magnificence of what we are and what we're capable of on a mental, psycho-spiritual level. Started so, at the Tower of Babel. Well, that's why I was going to bring that up. Oh. So you you go ahead, <laughs> and they talked about it in, in their own parlance, and you speak about it the way you understand it. I understand it this way, that all humans, no matter what tribe or what corner of the planet they were on, were able to communicate with each other without speaking. Still today, up to 95% of communication is still nonverbal. People don't realize mm-hmm. that, but it's body language and other nuances that communicate our messages far clearer than our words. So it was the Anunnaki. After the big flood, the people came together. The I, most recent big flood. Yeah, in yeah. Shinar. Mm-hmm. And they built a beautiful city and they started to build a tower towards heaven, towards the gods. The gods, the Anunnaki, saw this and were concerned. And they suppressed the people and sent them in multiple directions to relearn language. They feared us because we were working together. And when we were working together, we were creating advancement. And we were good. And it was they who sent us spiraling backwards in time by having to relearn this. But the universe is in a constant state of flux, and it's in a constant state of expansion. And in the cosmology of the universe and where our planet Earth is, by the year 2040, maybe 2050, the humans will be receiving a very specific cosmic wave that will allow the dissolving of the sheath over the pineal gland and will bring us back to that time where we communicated sending and receiving messages. And at this time, we should expect some huge changes on the planet as the population is getting closer to that 10 billion mark by then. 
And every time the population of the earth has gotten to 10 billion, it creates a quanta of energy. It's a natural evolutionary step for humanity. Yes. Mm-hmm. In the age of confluence, we'll have some decisions to make. I believe we'll make them correctly this time. That's interesting because <clears throat> we're going to talk about Elon Musk in a bit here. Mm-hmm. And in amidst all of this with AI and everything, one of the things he was saying in a recent talk (laughs) was that we're approaching population collapse. And this is really interesting because the replacement population, certainly in the Western world, is not in place. We don't have adequate population replacement at this moment in time. And depending on what else has happened and our abilities to procreate with all of the stuff around us, it could be that at least in large portions of the world, we're going into reduced population rather than increased population. Well, could we should that be, be increasing. Some I know, but should that be? Could that be by any design of some kind? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm saying that for a reason. Yes, you okay? I got you. <laughs> Take a second. No, no, they've been on a, a depopulized a depopulation agenda for a very long time, mm-hmm. and they're fearing that 10 billion mark. Mm-hmm. Because we will surprise them and we'll be right back to that time where we were able to do that and hopefully we'll be able to do it with the utmost respect for one another. Mm-hmm. With a different consciousness. With a different than consciousness. Than how we arrived right. at this point in time. Yeah. Right. And you know, consciousness is everything. It's key mm-hmm. here. It is all about our ability to elevate that in a way that allows everybody to participate. I don't believe that the world is grossly overpopulated. I think that that's the complete opposite. I think that we have room for many more people and we have the ability to provide for all of these people. We always have had the ability to provide for the people. It's just a matter of equal distribution and utilizing the technology that will allow I mean, doesn't Colorado have one of the world's largest vertical indoor farms? Uh, you know, I don't live here. It may, oh, oh, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. That. I think they're ca- called Kerala or something to that. Oh, okay. And so we do have technology available. Uh, BlackRock and Vanguard are the biggest investors in this vertical farming, by the way. Yeah, vertical farming is. Right. And even outside old-fashioned farming. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we have the ability to create desalinization plants and flood fields. We don't have a water shortage. Exactly. You know, in the areas, it's water. Yeah. We, do <laughs> not have, we do not have a water shortage on the planet. We can in certain locales where populations have sprung up where there isn't an obvious water source, for example. But other than that, in terms of the majority of the populations living along the coasts of the various continents, there's more, the technology's already there. It's just not being utilized. Right. Just for desalinization. You and I are on the same page. Yeah. Um, a woman named Lorraine Day was showing me kind of the math on that at one point about the land mass that every person in the planet's planet could fit in and still live healthfully. And it was a relatively small land mass. This is a massive planet. And so many beautiful technologies either already been created or on the verge of being created that allow us everything we need to thrive, not just mm-hmm. to survive. Right. And so it's interesting. This I bring it up because this 10 billion number has come up in other conversations. Right. Well, the 10 billion is very important. Yeah. Um, and we're estimated to arrive at that between 2040 
in 2050. So people do your part. <laughs> <laughs> do your part and enjoy yourselves while you're at it. Okay. So I want to get to a couple other things we talked about is a lot of times when people have ET contact, they start having a more paranormal experience, but a lot of people feel like I said in the tease when I brought you in that it's almost like a spiritual awakening. Can you speak to that for a moment? Okay. I think that it should be a spiritual mm-hmm. awakening. Uh, so I deal with people who have paranormal and um, extraterrestrial activity. Now, a person who has extraterrestrial activity, abduction, contact, downloads, whatever it happens to be, they do grow into an expanded consciousness. Their reality is challenged, and they grow into that, um, and they become empowered in a gentle way. Now, people who may have a paranormal one, I find that where they run to is religion. Mm-hmm. And now they're capped mm-hmm. into a good and evil uh, paradigm, conceptualized thoughts that we created. Mm-hmm. And they don't become awakened or they don't become spiritually conscious of what might be their next step. So of many people who've gone through the empowerment process, uh, they begin to understand that it is all spiritual because their soul has been either sucked out of their body by some extraterrestrial. We do see that. It's not just them dropping information into their consciousness. It's them taking our consciousness and moving it elsewhere and the body being left. Mm-hmm. That's uh, pretty scary for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the longest time, though, they think they're still in their body. It takes a little bit to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, but once you, they realize that outside of the body, they still maintain a personality, identity, and so on and so forth, then they begin to see that their existence here on the planet might be something altogether different than what they were led to believe. That maybe now they're beginning to see that they are embodied. They're in a third dimensional reality. And in this third dimensional dualistic reality, we have an opportunity to grow, to learn. Ultimately, there are two things to master. Mm-hmm. One is love and the other is fear. And when we understand the dualistic nature of both of those things, we're accelerating our spiritual understanding and we're moving. But with fear, it can trap you into a paralyzed state. Absolutely. Or you're a fear monger mm-hmm. and you're creating mm-hmm. that state in others. Right. Love, um, I see people are very good at giving. They can love, 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 love. <laughs> but then when it comes to receiving, mm-hmm. they're not completely open or vulnerable enough to receive it. So a lot of dating back to some of these early messages that have been propagated throughout the last several thousand years of being less than whoever these gods were that came to, quote, save humanity. Right. It was verbiage, too. I mean, um, we don't know that initially the word God meant what we interpreted exactly. it to be. Because yes, we recently this- learned that the word worship meant originally work for. So you worked for a god. Um, we now use the word worship. And so when we get to understand original definitions and verbiage, we see that there's a completely different direction. Right. And, and as you were speaking before, there are some experiences where people are taken by ETs and they feel they've been capped almost 
And there are others where people feel they have been expanded. So I'm wondering if there might not be a conscience happening also in the interplay with the human species. Because we're so vulnerable because we simply have amnesia, not because we lack capability. Right. And so those who have come for whatever their purpose is, to watch, to snag a little DNA, to help, to not help, Uh I think there are competing agendas on how they interface with humanity, too. There are many competing agendas. Exactly. but some of the extraterrestrials are becoming bolder. Mm-hmm. You know, mass extraterrestrial contact is a game changer. I mean, it will change religion, it will change politics, mm-hmm. and it will change technology, and it will open the door to artificial intelligence in ways that we can't quite fathom yet. But they're very advanced in that yeah. area. Well. Until then, we have Elon Musk, who most people think is an ET anyway, of some kind. And he could be. Partly. We all have extraterrestrial DNA. We do. But I bring him up for a reason because I find it absolutely fascinating that this interesting person who says they're on the spectrum, right? Yep. Has been able to single-handedly force, for example, the transportation industry to move up its agenda by 10 or 20 years, Mm -hmm. moving toward a cleaner type of vehicle. And... That's just one thing, but the big one, and, and it's interesting to me that people politically on the neo, the neo versions, the neocons and neoliberals, the, the extremes of the left and right hate this man with such a passion. Well, they fear him. And, and fear turns into what's hate. They, yeah. All of the media trashes him, all yeah. sides. So I look at that and say, I want to pay closer attention to what he's saying. He has to be doing something right if they're so afraid of him. Well, I'm not a hater. Yeah. I'm not a hater. I'm a big supporter personally, but this is the part I want to get to just to wrap up our conversation. The big fear is beyond uh, ETs, which are involved, I understand, is the notion of AI and the interface with the human brain and transhumanism. And so recently in this this talk I was sharing with you a moment ago um, with the founder of TEDx, they started questioning him on the neural link mm-hmm. because all of the media says this man is promoting transhumanism, but no one's listening to the words. And what I thought was interesting, because we're going to have to start contemplating this. He was saying this little disc, which for the next decade will continue to be used only for spinal cord injury and um, brain trauma. That's all it's being used for. As they develop it, what the idea is, is to help enhance cognitive functioning and memory in humans if they wish to do this by inserting this little thing in it's got little filaments that go yeah, and, and work with the I've brain. Seen it. But he's saying it's already happening. We have a choice. Either we are going to be the gods of the AI we interface with, or it's going to be the god over us. And I don't want something running us, right. artificial intelligence running us. And his position, the Neuralink, is actually a preemptive move in the area of AI, which is I mean, fascinating. His first a prototype. Uh, for the Neuralink mm-hmm. actually had an earpiece. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of looked cyborg yeah. in a way. And so that might have startled people. Well, but, this is not less creepy. It's a little well, oversized yeah, thing you put in, inside. Yeah, but this kind of little it, bit it skull fits out. within uh, the thickness <laughs> yes, of our skull. Yeah, And exactly. so there'll only be like a small scar. Tiny It'll scar. still have to be charged every night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have to charge it to, to right. make sure that you can use it. But right now, the idea of the Neuralink is to primarily help people who have been victims of car accidents and they're paralyzed. It's all trauma-based. 
all trauma spinal cord and brain trauma. Right. And he said it's going to be just that for at least 10 more years. And the problem is, and this is the majority of the people's concern, is that that can be corrupted. Right. And programmed from a distance. Right. To send whatever messages that the people are going to receive. Now they're going to be coming from a central source. That's their fear. That's their fear. That's their fear. He's specifically saying, well, there's a fear with electric cars too that they could take them over and crash them for you. Okay. So there's always fear. Yeah. But we should, we need to learn how to move through the fear. That's why I'm bringing this up. This is now a subject. You got your artificial communication, um, synthetic communication from ETs. Okay. That's other species. Now it's us. Now it's this species creating this and that we have a choice over and we have to start making intelligent decisions and listen to what's intended. He's the first one to say, there's no doubt this could have strange implications. That is true. And so we have to, he, they have to continue managing it in any way they can while the others are managing it in the way they wish, which I'm not happy about at all. I'm well, totally with them on that. Can you imagine though the Neuralink being hooked up to a quantum computer? Yeah. So, I mean, a quantum yeah. computer a hundred thousand times well, faster he, than your best laptop. Well, that's what he said is ideally if it were to develop all the way out, your computational skills would increase, memory would increase. Well, you would have the, the internet in your head. You would have the internet in your head. I don't know that I want that yet, but <laughs> well, <laughs> again, it's accessing. It's accessing. Okay, so it's there. Right. And, you know, you could be going But you on. have choice over it. Right. It's when you don't have choice and you're being exposed to it really against your okay, will. And so you don't want to use it anymore. Don't charge it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't and, charge. And they can be removed. They can, but I'm talking about the other kinds of AI that are coming in right now that right. I don't feel good about. Well, the new artificial intelligence, there are risks of it becoming corrupt. Absolutely. And politicians using it. Yes. Yeah. But it's here. It is. Psychotronics are already here. Holographic technology is already here. So now we have to gain the wisdom to say, how do we choose to interface with this and ultimately whether or not we want to use anything beyond our own organic self and brain? That's, those are going to be our choices though. Yeah. Well, I think that it, I we can't stop, um, the, the natural progression no, of science. We cannot. Uh, but what we can do is monitor it from a place of balance perspective. Right. And just because we can doesn't mean that we always should. So we have to look at certain technologies and think, should we advance in this area? What are the ramifications? What are the consequences? What can we project the outcome right. of this in 10, 20, or 30 years? And not let it usurp our sovereignty, our sovereignty of spirit and our sovereignty. Right. And so what happens to our spirituality when God what? becomes the, your the internet is God. Well, and this brings up a whole later conversation for later on, because a lot of these species that are interfacing with humanity have already been at these critical junctures and had to make these decisions for themselves. We need to learn from that as well. Well, they have. And of course, that's the, the primary message that comes back from uh, people who receive downloads mm-hmm. and even people who channel extraterrestrials as always. You know, the health of our planet, overpopulation, and so on and so forth. That message hasn't changed since Tuella uh, in 1947, who started channeling Ashtar from the Galactic Federation. So the messages haven't changed. I find that slightly suspect, to be honest with you. 
I would think that the messages should change. What is it? The same recording that just like, <laughs> right. So it's up to us to Always. know ourselves, to know thyself, to know your own mind, to know your own spirit and to understand our incredible human capabilities. Right. Because the truth is, I believe that humans are incredible. I do too. Highly I love creative, humans. beautiful, <laughs> loving, fun people. And we have a right to learn how to save ourselves and grow through this yes. very interesting time in history. I couldn't agree more. So we'll have you back on probably same time next year. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lori. Thank you. To connect with Lori and her work, you can go to trueyouhypnotherapy.com. You can also watch my previous interviews with Lori, which were very lively like this one here in the Gaia Archives. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Very interesting, everybody. Commander Doug, if you could hear me, could you uh, call our sister Rainbird and get her up here on the horn so we can chat chat with her? Rama will give you a little call. That didn't work. (laughs) Okay. Um, so, let's say that our sister Caroline has a message today, and, uh, and the collective of this week's guidance. Let me pull this forward. I'm sure you can hear me right, so, tally-ho, here we go. All right. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, the Earth Elementals, the Four Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have that this time to speak with you again today. And so, we were speaking the other day about releasing that which isn't you, which gets in the way of your growth and fulfillment. When you are willing to do that, when you are willing to look at the blockages in your life, energetic or physical, and of course, everything is energy, Yet, when you're willing to look at what is blocking you inwardly, you open up to a great opportunity for a beautiful new inner growth. This is part of your ascension process, and it is also part of what the earth is receiving right now. A lot of the tumults, and a lot of the chaos you're experiencing. This is Earth releasing the toxicity put into her for thousands of years. Rama, you gotta go call. You gotta go call. Okay. Um, It isn't her. It's not who she is. Just as 
any toxicity you yourself are carrying is not really you. The feeling of chaos and disruption can be difficult, of course, to take. Yet what it means is that you are all releasing the false self. This is a self that was created yet to survive calamity and difficulty and tragedy. It's also due to the kind of education you received over eons. Okay. Whoops. Maybe Rainford mute out. Go to who? Okay. Um, and that education told you that you were small and helpless. And that really the best you could hope to be would be somebody's servant, maybe if you were lucky. Otherwise, someone's slave. And so, oops, Rainbird, could you mute your phone? And so, I am muted. You're muted? Oh. <laughs> okay. And so, you were enslaved and programmed into different belief systems and every and very narrow orientations that took you away from your true self, your true, beautiful, empowered self. And Caroline found that picture. I've seen this picture before. It's in the jungle somewhere, and there's a... That a cheetah rama? The cheetah is just kind of hanging loose on a huge tree trunk. (laughs) Oh my god. So, this is the transformation so many are asking for, dear ones. Coming back into your true self. That's what it says. To your true real To your true, real, empowered, co-creative, beautiful, light-being self. And what does transformation look like for you? Take a moment right now. Ask yourself, what does this really call forth in me? Take, for instance, one area of your life. Perhaps your physical well-being. Perhaps your relationships, your desire for a new partner, improve family relationships, friendships, might be your home or your job or your business or energy practice. It might be your own spiritual growth, your own ascension path. What does this look like for you? as you were to transform that whole area of your life 
and to lift up to such a beautifully higher level that it was almost unrecognizable from what it had been a few months or a year before then. It is unlikely that this would happen overnight, though certainly great sudden shifts can happen. Yet just ask yourself what that would look like and put yourself in the picture as you're imaging it rather than seeing yourself up in the movie screen as it were. How would that show up in your life? What would be different? What would you release? What would no longer be happening? What would stop? What would stop for good? And look at your inner life. Include feelings of low self-esteem, self-criticism, inner anger, inability to forgive yourself or others. However, you need to do it. Yet look at your inner life as well as your outer life. How would you feel, in other words, dear ones, as you knew what the old agreements were? to feel small and to play small. Would you have the bravery to end them now? Even as you don't know what all of those soul agreements were and those old belief systems and their forms of programming, the forms of general smallness, even as you couldn't name them, do you have the courage to release them and to see who you would be without them. Ask yourself, can I take this next step even as my ego mind is afraid and suspicious of change and wanting very much to stay where it is because that feels safest, that's familiar, that's what it knows. Have I got the courage to change regardless? Have I got the courage to change, even as these, as those who love me would prefer I not change? Maybe some don't mind me playing small, feeling small, acting small, even though I'm not. I am quite a great and powerful light being, and I have been through this universe every corner of it I could explore and I'll explore some more always so let's work with this energetically dear ones taking in a deep breath breathing in through the nose with mouth closed and breathing out through the open mouth and continue doing that three or four times Breathing in pure light, breathing in the energy of, of change as we flow that to you. Positive, empowering change that you have come in for at this glorious time on this planet, Earth. Okay, I want to get near. So, we know it looks 
like sheer confusion. Yet there is much good occurring of a higher level that could not have come into the planet's atmosphere, let alone the surface life of the planet before now. So, you're breathing in that pure light of transformation, thinking of one specific part of your life, or just how how you feel about your life in general. Breathing in empowerment, and as you breathe out through that open mouth, you are breathing out the false self, the false programming, and we are working with you energetically, dear ones, to dissolve everything that is in your way. <laughs> There's a very dizzy-looking lion here. <laughs> Look at that lion. Mm-hmm. The wind blowing the fur off. <laughs> those energy blockages, those small, narrow self-concepts, the feeling that you can't change even though you're tr- you've tried. Breathe it out. Breathing in this beautiful life There is so much sentient light pouring onto this planet, dear ones. You cannot remain the same from one day to the next. You are absolutely transforming. And you are transforming on a level that you in this physical body have never seen before. So as you're leaving the third dimension, what will you say to it? And what will you say to your third dimensional life, dear ones? Will you say, thank you for all I learned, yet I am releasing the struggle now. I am releasing the smallness. I am releasing all of the old training, all of the old beliefs, all of the old interferences that have been in my way for such a long time. And anything or anyone that's in my energies or in my life that is not for my higher good, I release you because I am too busy transforming to bother with any of this nonsense anymore. (laughs) Say that however you need to say it, dear ones. Yet say it right now. You could just say, I am expanding to a level where the false self need no longer act as though it's me. I am coming into my true strength and my true identity, my true empowered life right now. And I give thanks. Beautiful. So, we have been discussing much about transformation with you. And next, we'll talk about really owning that beautiful moment. And owning these changes so that they stick with you. And continue to evolve in the highest possible ways. Wonderful. So, we send you much love, dear ones, and many blessings. Namaste. I made it. And I pass this talking stick with lions, tigers, bears, and that emerald serpent feathered one. And all the angels, fairies, feathers, and rainbows and crystals. Here it comes, Rainbird. Oh, I like I got it. Pretty oh, heavy. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. What a what a great day. It was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah, and I love the 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 music that Rama puts on and and the you know the chanting yeah it was just really good all day long and and it's interesting because it's only one twenty five here instead of two twenty five so 
That's right. You need my, an extra hour sleep every night. Tonight, I mean. Tonight. Yeah, yeah. I get to go to bed early tonight. <laughs> it was really weird. I was looking to see what time it was because it was one fifty-five when I checked the last time, and then when I looked the next time, it was one o'clock, and I go, "What happened?" <laughs> <laughs> I was going to yeah, say, Rachel, yeah. I just noticed something. I was looking at the weather channel tonight because it's getting cold. And there's a place called Grand Junction. It's not too far. It's a, it's in Colorado, but it's just on the other side of the border. It's going to be 11 degrees tonight. Yeah, you know what? I'm standing outside. It's balmy. There's no fire in the house. I'm at Peter Bear. I have nothing on my face here. Oh, yeah. dream on, Tara. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so, I like it here. Anyway, I just love the show today, and I know we all did. So, I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Hey. What's what you got, huh? This is how I watch. Reality is gorgeous. I can't remember if I played it or not, but it's relevant to the moment. Cause Play it again, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. It's a diamond light night, everyone. And I think it's time for... Um, seeing each other in our dreams. Yes. And on the ships, if so, so be it. I heard that lady talk about the Ashtar from me. That was very funny. Yeah. Satnam, <laughs> everyone. Satnam, Jeep. It won't be long and we'll see you again. Namaste. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, and live long and prosper. Allah.